high output management. It means taking charge of the decision making process. Self-confidence mostly comes from a gut-level realization that nobody has ever died from making a wrong business decision, or taking inappropriate action, or being overruled. And everyone in your operation should be made to understand this. High output management. It means learning how to use your resources wisely. A great deal of a manager's work has to do with allocating resources, manpower, money, and capital. But the single most important resource that we allocate from one day to the next is our own time. High output management. It means accurately assessing the value of your subordinates. The biggest problem with most reviews is that we don't usually define what it is we want from our subordinates. And if we don't know what we want, we are surely not going to get it. They're often the forgotten breed in companies and organizations, yet they represent the very backbone of business and industry. Think about it. As a manager, you are in effect a chief executive of an organization yourself. So don't wait for the principles and practices you find appealing to be imposed from the top. As a micro-CEO, you can improve your own and your group's performance and productivity whether or not the rest of the company follows suit. All it takes is putting into practice the ideas and concepts in this powerful audio program. Welcome to CareerTrack's High Output Management by Dr. Andrew S. Grove. In this thought-provoking program, you'll learn three basic yet powerful management ideas that you can put to work immediately. You'll learn how to apply the principles and discipline of an output-oriented endeavor, like manufacturing, to your own work as a manager. You'll learn how the team concepts can effectively increase the output of the group you lead. And finally, you'll learn how the same concepts used in the development of a sports athlete can be similarly used in the development of management skills. The ideas for this unique program were developed by a living legend in management, Dr. Andrew S. Grove, author of High Output Management and President and CEO of Intel Corporation. Drawing from his many years at the helm of a multi-billion dollar giant, Dr. Grove presents a system tailored specifically for managers like you in organizations of all types. You won't hear any lofty, high-level management theories here, but you will hear answers to practical issues you face every day. Before we begin, here are a few tips and suggestions to get the most from this career track program. First, as you listen, have a pencil and pad handy. When you hear a point that is of particular interest or importance, stop the tape and jot it down. By the time you complete this program, you will have created your own action plan to begin implementing the ideas in high output management. Second, listen to these tapes several times, at home, at the office, in your car. The more you listen, the more clear these ideas and concepts will become. And finally, at the end of this program, Andrew Grove includes 25 specific exercises to help you apply these ideas, principles, and techniques to your job. 
What is meant by an output-oriented approach to management? On this side, Andrew Grove will apply some of the principles and the discipline of manufacturing to the work of managers. The fact is, all of your employees produce in some way. And when you approach work with this basic understanding in mind, the concepts of production will give you a systematic way of managing your work. So let's begin with the basics of production in what Andrew Grove calls the breakfast factory. The narrator for this program is Bob Askey. Here is side one. High Output Management Published by arrangement with Dr. Andrew S. Grove Copyright 1990 by Dr. Andrew S. Grove All rights reserved Let me begin by telling you what this audio cassette album is not about. There's not a sentence in it about bits and bytes, RAMs and ROMs, or anything else remotely technical or arcane, even though Intel, where I work, is a high-tech Silicon Valley company. As a practitioner of the art of management, I've tried instead to lay out what I think constitutes a good, solid management approach. From my experience at Intel, this consists of energetic and committed people sitting down together, looking at problems, and figuring out ways to solve them. So my job here is to provide you with basic ideas, clear principles, and specific techniques you can use in your own managerial circumstances. And at the end of this program, I've included a list of 25 specific ways you can apply these basic ideas, principles, and techniques to your job so you can start increasing your output immediately. We can start our discussion of high output management by looking at the way a good business handles the basics of production. To do this, I've invented an example which I call the breakfast factory. The goal of the breakfast factory is to deliver breakfasts to its customers. But the way it does this can be applied to delivering any product or service, because as I'm going to show you, the basics of production are the same, whether you are required to deliver breakfasts or sales presentations or college graduates. To understand the principles of production, imagine that you're a waiter, which I was while I went to college, and that your task is to serve a breakfast consisting of a three-minute soft-boiled egg, buttered toast, and coffee. Your job is to prepare and deliver the three items simultaneously, each of them fresh and hot. The task here encompasses the basic requirements of production. These are to build and deliver products in response to the demands of the customer at a scheduled delivery time, at an acceptable quality level, and at the lowest possible cost. Production's charter cannot be to deliver whatever the customer wants whenever he wants it, for this would require an infinite production capacity, or the equivalent, very large, ready-to-deliver inventories. In our example, the customer may want to have a perfect three-minute egg with hot buttered toast and steaming coffee waiting for him the moment he sits down. To fulfill such an expectation, you would either have to have your kitchen idle and poised to serve the customer whenever he drops in, or have a ready-to-consume inventory of perfectly boiled eggs, hot buttered toast, and coffee. Neither is practical. Instead, a manufacturer should accept the responsibility of delivering a product at the time committed to, in this case, by implication, about five to ten minutes after the customer arrives at our breakfast establishment. 
and we must make our breakfast at a cost that enables us to sell it at a competitive price and still make an acceptable profit. How are we going to do this in the most intelligent way? We start by looking at our production flow. The first thing we must do is to pin down the step in the flow that will determine the overall shape of our operation. We'll call it the limiting step. The issue here is simple. Which of the breakfast components takes the longest to prepare? Because the coffee is already steaming in the kitchen and the toast takes only about a minute, the answer is obviously the egg. So we should plan the entire job around the time needed to boil it. Not only does that component take the longest to prepare, the egg is also, for most customers, the most important feature of the breakfast. Now, you'll need to calculate the time required to prepare the three components to ensure that they are all ready simultaneously. First, you must allow time to assemble the items on a tray. Next, you must get the toast from the toaster and the coffee from the pot, as well as the egg out of the boiling water. Adding the required time to do this to the time needed to get and cook the egg defines the length of the entire process, called in production jargon, the total throughput time. Next, using the egg time as your base, you must allow yourself time to get and toast the slices of bread. Finally, using the toast time as your base, you can determine when you need to pour the coffee. The key idea is that we construct our production flow by starting with the longest or most difficult or most sensitive or most expensive step and work our way back. Here we are planning our flow around the most critical step, the time required to boil the egg. And we are staggering each of the other steps according to their individual throughput times. In production jargon, we offset them from each other. The idea of a limiting step has very broad applicability. Take, for example, recruiting college graduates to work for Intel. Certain of our managers visit the colleges, interview some of the seniors, and invite the more promising candidates to visit the company. We bear the expense of the candidate's trip, which can be considerable. During the trip, the students are closely interviewed by other managers and technical people. After due consideration, employment is offered to some of the students whose skills and capabilities match our needs best, and those who accept the offers eventually come to work for the company. To apply the basic principle of production, you need to build the sequence here around its most expensive feature, which is the student's trip to the plant. To minimize the use of this step per final college hire, we obviously have to increase the ratio of accepted offers to applicants invited to visit the plant. We do this by using phone interviews to screen people before issuing invitations. The technique saves money, substantially increases the ratio of offers extended per plant visit, and reduces the need to use the expensive limiting step. The principle of time offsets is also present here. Working back from the time the students will graduate, the recruiter staggers the various steps involved to allow time for everything, on-campus interviews, phone screening, plant visits, to take place at the appropriate times during the months preceding graduation. Now that we know what our production flow should look like, we can use our breakfast service to examine other production principles. As we make each breakfast, we go through the three fundamental types of production operations. There is process manufacturing, an activity that physically or chemically changes material, just as boiling changes an egg. There is assembly, in which components are put together to make a new entity, just as the egg, the toast, and the coffee together make a breakfast. And finally, there is the test operation, 
which examines a component or a new entity. There are, for example, visual tests made at points in the breakfast production process. You can see that the coffee is steaming and that the toast is brown. Process, assembly, and test operations can be readily applied to other very different kinds of productive work. Take, for instance, the task of training a sales force to sell a new product. The three types of production operations can be easily identified. The conversion of large amounts of raw data about the product into meaningful selling strategies comprehensible to the sales personnel is a process step, which transforms data into strategies. The combination of the various sales strategies into a coherent program can be compared to an assembly step. Here, the appropriate product selling strategies and pertinent market data, such as competitive pricing and availability, are made to flow into one presentation, along with such things as brochures, handouts, and flip charts. The test operation comes in the form of a dry run presentation with a selected group of field sales personnel and management. If the dry run fails the test, the material must be reworked, another well-established manufacturing concept to meet the concerns and objections of the test audience. Breakfast preparation, college recruiting, and sales training are very much unlike one another, but all of them possess a basically similar flow of activity to produce a specific output. Now, real life, as you know, is full of thickets and underbrush, so there are a few complications to be added to our production process. We've been assuming our breakfast operation had infinite capacity. That means nobody had to wait for an available toaster or for a pot to boil an egg in. But no such ideal world exists. What would happen if you had to stand in the line of waiters waiting for your turn to use the toaster? If you didn't adjust your production flow to account for the queue, your three-minute egg could easily become a six-minute egg. The whole production process has to be conceived differently. Toaster capacity has become the limiting step, and what you do has to be reworked around it. Let's complicate things a little further. What happens if you are stuck in line waiting for a toaster when it's time to start boiling your egg? Your conflict is seemingly irreconcilable, but it really isn't. If you were managing the restaurant, you could turn your personnel into specialists by hiring one egg cooker, one toast maker, one coffee pourer, and one person to supervise the operation. But that, of course, creates an immense amount of overhead, probably making it too expensive to consider. If you were a waiter, you could ask the waiter in line next to you to help out to put your toast in while you ran off to start your egg. But when you have to depend on someone else the results are likely to be less predictable. As the manager, you could add another toaster, but this becomes an expensive addition of capital equipment. You could run the toaster continuously and build up an inventory of hot toast, throwing away what you can't use, but always having immediate access to product. That means waste, which can also become too expensive for the operation. But at least you know that alternatives do exist. Equipment capacity, manpower, and inventory can be traded off against each other and then balanced against delivery time. Because each alternative costs money, your task is to find the most cost-effective way to deploy your resources. Finding this way is the key to optimizing all types of productive work. Bear in mind that there is a right answer, one that gives you the best delivery time and product quality at the lowest possible cost. To find that right answer, you must develop a clear understanding of the trade-offs between the various factors, manpower, capacity, and inventory, 
and you must reduce the understanding to a quantifiable set of relationships. The thinking you force yourself to go through to understand the relationship between the various aspects of your production process is what is important here. Let's take our manufacturing example a step further and turn our business into a high-volume breakfast factory operation. First, you buy a continuous egg boiler, a gadget with a conveyor belt that carries the eggs into a container of boiling water and removes them after three minutes, producing a constant supply of perfectly boiled three-minute eggs. Note that our business now assumes a high and predictable demand for three-minute eggs. It cannot now readily provide a four-minute egg because automated equipment is not very flexible. Second, you match the output of the continuous egg boiler with the output of the continuous toaster. We have now turned things into a continuous operation, but we've done this at the expense of flexibility, and we can no longer prepare each customer's order exactly when and how he requests it. So our customers have to adjust their expectations if they want to enjoy the benefits of our new mode, lower cost and more predictable product quality. But continuous operation doesn't automatically mean lower cost and better quality. What would happen if the water temperature in the continuous egg boiler quietly went out of specification? The entire work-in process, all the eggs in the boiler, and the output of the machine from the time the temperature climbed or dropped to the time the malfunction was discovered becomes unusable. All the toast is also wasted because you don't have any eggs to serve with it. How do you minimize the risk of a breakdown of this sort? Performing a functional test is one way. From time to time, you open an egg as it comes out of the machine and check its quality. But you will have to throw away the egg you tested. A second way involves in-process inspection, which can take many forms. You could, for example, simply insert a thermometer into the water so that the temperature could be easily and frequently checked. To avoid having to pay someone to read the thermometer, you could connect an electronic gadget to it that would set off bells any time the temperature varied by a degree or two. The point is that whenever possible, you should choose in-process tests over those that destroy product. What else could go wrong with our continuous egg machine? The eggs going into it could be cracked or rotten, or they could be over or undersized, which would affect how fast they cook. To avoid such problems, you will want to look at the eggs at the time of receipt, something called incoming or receiving inspection. If the eggs are unacceptable in some way, you are going to have to send them back, leaving you with none. Now you have to shut down. To avoid that, you need a raw material inventory. But how large should it be? The principle to be applied here is that you should have enough to cover your consumption rate for the length of time it takes to replace your raw material. That means if your Eggman comes by and delivers once a day, you want to keep a day's worth of inventory on hand to protect yourself. But remember, inventory costs money, so you have to weigh the advantage of carrying a day's supply against the cost of carrying it. Besides the cost of the raw material and the cost of money, you should also try to gauge the opportunity at risk. What would it cost if you had to shut your egg machine down for a day? How many customers would you lose? How much would it cost to lure them back? Such questions define the opportunity at risk. All production flows have a basic characteristic. The material becomes more valuable as it moves through the process. A boiled egg is more valuable than a raw one. A fully assembled breakfast is more valuable than its constituent parts. And finally, the breakfast placed in front of the customer is more valuable still. The last carries the perceived value the customer associates with the establishment when he drives into the parking lot after seeing the sign, Andy's Better Breakfasts.
A college graduate to whom we are ready to extend an employment offer is more valuable to us than the college student we meet on campus for the first time. A common rule we should always try to heed is to detect and fix any problem in a production process at the lowest value stage possible. We should find and reject the rotten egg as it's being delivered from our supplier rather than permitting the customer to find it. Likewise, if we can decide that we don't want a college candidate at the time of the campus interview rather than during the course of a plant visit, we save the cost of the trip and the time of both the candidate and the interviewers. Now that we've discussed delivering a breakfast from the point of view of production basics, we're ready to talk about how to manage delivering a breakfast. As managers, we'll find that we need to consider four things. How to choose and use indicators, control our output, assure quality, and improve productivity. We can start by assuming that a hungry public has loved the breakfast you've been serving. And thanks to the help of your many customers and a friendly banker, you've created a breakfast factory, which, among other things, uses specialized production lines for toast, coffee, and eggs. As manager of the factory, you have a substantial staff and a lot of automated equipment. But to run your operation well, you will need a set of good indicators or measurements. Your output, of course, is no longer the breakfasts you deliver personally, but rather all the breakfasts your factory delivers, the profits generated, and the satisfaction of your customers. Just to get a fix on your output, you need a number of indicators. To get efficiency and high output, you need even more of them. And you have to focus each indicator on a specific operational goal. Let's say that as manager of the breakfast factory, you will work with five indicators to meet your production goals on a daily basis. Which five pieces of information would you want to look at each day immediately upon arriving at your office? Here are my candidates. First, you'll want to know your sales forecast for the day. How many breakfasts should you plan to deliver? To assess how much confidence you should place in your forecast, you would want to know how many you delivered yesterday compared to how many you planned on delivering. In other words, the variance between your plan and the actual delivery of breakfasts. Your next key indicator is raw material inventory. Do you have enough eggs, bread, and coffee on hand to keep your factory running today? If you find you have too little inventory, you can still order more. If you find you have too much, you may want to cancel today's egg delivery. Another important piece of information is the condition of your equipment. If anything broke down yesterday, you will want to get it repaired or rearrange your production line to meet your forecast for the day. You must also get a fix on your manpower. If two waiters are out sick, you will have to come up with something if you are still going to meet the demand forecasted. Should you call in temporary help? Should you take someone off the toaster line and make him a waiter? Finally, you want to have some kind of quality indicator. It's not enough to monitor the number of breakfasts each waiter delivers, because the waiters could have been rude to the customers even as they served a record number of breakfasts. Perhaps you should set up a customer complaint log maintained by the cashier. If one of your waiters elicited more than the usual number of complaints yesterday, you will want to speak to him first thing today. All these indicators measure factors essential to running your factory. If you look at them early, every day, you will often be able to do something to correct a potential problem before it becomes a real one during the course of the day. Indicators tend to direct your attention toward what they are monitoring. It is like riding a bicycle. You will probably steer it where you are looking. 
If, for example, you start measuring your inventory levels carefully, you're likely to take action to drive your inventory levels down, which is good up to a point. But your inventories could become so lean that you can't react to changes in demand without creating shortages. So, because indicators direct your activities, you should guard against overreacting. This you can do by pairing indicators, so both effect and counter-effect are measured. In the inventory example, you need to monitor both inventory levels and the incidence of shortages. A rise in shortages will obviously lead you to do things to keep inventories from becoming too low. Nowhere can indicators and paired indicators be of more help than in administrative work. Our company has been using measurements to improve the productivity of administrative work for several years. The first rule is that a measurement, any measurement, is better than none. But a genuinely effective indicator will cover the output of the work unit and not simply the activity involved. That means you measure salespeople by the orders they get, not by the calls they make, because orders are output, while calls are just activity. The second rule for a good indicator is that what you measure should be a physical, countable thing. For example, your indicator for accounts payable could be the number of vouchers processed. For custodial work, it could be the number of square feet cleaned. For customer service, the number of sales orders entered. And for inventory control, the number of items managed in inventory. Since these are all quantity or output indicators for administrative work, their paired counterparts should stress the quality of the administrative work. For example, in accounts payable, the number of vouchers processed should be paired with the number of errors found either by auditing or by suppliers. The number of square feet cleaned by a custodial group should be paired with a partially objective and partially subjective rating of the quality of the work as assessed by a senior manager who has an office in the cleaned area. Work quantity and work quality indicators have many uses. First, they spell out very clearly what the objectives of an individual or group are. Second, they provide a degree of objectivity when measuring an administrative function. Third, and as important as any, they give us a measure by which various administrative groups performing the same function in different organizations can be compared with each other. The performance of a custodial group in one major building can now be compared with that of another group in a second building. In fact, if indicators are put in place, the competitive spirit engendered frequently has an electrifying effect on the motivation each group brings to its work, along with a parallel improvement in performance. This completes Side 1 of CareerTrack's High Output Management by Dr. Andrew S. Grove. To get a better handle on the production process, you should begin to think of our breakfast factory example as though it's a black box. You'll learn more about this important concept on the next side as we continue. Now, please fast forward this cassette to the end, then turn it over to hear side two.
Welcome to Side 2 of Career Tracks High Output Management by Andrew S. Grove. As a manager, once you've sampled the indicators to know what's happening in your business, there's something else you need to know how to do. Control future output. On this side, you'll learn how to forecast future production needs, and you'll hear tips on how to assure product quality. Here is Side 2. To uncover more of these useful indicators, we can think of our breakfast factory as if it were a black box. The input, which is the raw materials, flows into the box, and the labor of waiters, helpers, and you, the manager, also flows into the box. The output, which is the breakfasts, flows out of it. In general, we can represent any activity that resembles a production process in this simple fashion. We can draw a black box to represent college recruiting, where the input is the applicants on campus, and the output is college graduates who have accepted our employment offers. The labor is the work of our on-campus interviewers and the managers and technical people who interview back at the plant. Similarly, the process of field sales training can be seen as a black box, with the input being the raw product specifications and the output being trained sales personnel. The labor here is the work of the marketing and merchandising people who turn raw information into usable sales tools and train the field sales personnel. In fact, we can represent most, if not all, administrative work by our magical black box. And we can sort out what the input, the output, and the labor are in the production process. Then, to improve our ability to run that process, we need to know what is going on inside the black box. We need to cut some windows into the box so we can better understand the internal workings of any production process and assess what the future output is likely to be. Various kinds of leading indicators can become those windows and give us a way to look inside the black box, showing us in advance what the future might look like. And because they give us time to take corrective action, they make it possible to avoid problems. Of course, for leading indicators to do any good, you must believe in their validity. While this may seem obvious, in practice, confidence is not as easy to come by as it sounds. To take big, costly, or worrisome steps when you are not yet sure you have a problem, is hard. But unless you are prepared to act on what your leading indicators are telling you, all you will get from monitoring them is anxiety. Leading indicators might include the daily monitors we use to run our breakfast factory, from machine downtime records to an index of customer satisfaction, both of which can tell us if problems lie down the road. A generally applicable example of a window cut into the black box is the linearity indicator. To create a linearity indicator for our college recruiting process, for instance, we plot the number of graduates who need to accept our offer in each month in order for us to reach our hiring target. If we start making offers in January and needed to hit our hiring target by June, our ideal line starts at 0% just before we make our offers in January and angles straight up across our chart to hit 100% in June. If we plot our actual progress against this ideal line, we can see whether we are ahead or below our ideal goal. If by April we find ourselves far below the ideal straight line, we know that the only way we can hit our target is by getting acceptance at a much higher rate in the remaining two months than we had gotten in the preceding four. 
Thus, the linearity indicator flashes an early warning, allowing us time to take corrective action. If we consider a manufacturing unit in this fashion, we may assume that because it makes monthly goals regularly, all is well. But we can cut a window into the black box here, measure production output against time as the month proceeds, and compare that with the ideal linear output. We may learn that output performance is spread evenly throughout the course of the month, or that it is concentrated in the last week of the month. If the latter is the case, the manager of the unit is probably not using manpower and equipment efficiently. And if the situation is not remedied, one minor breakdown toward month's end could cause the unit to miss its monthly output goal entirely. The linearity indicator will help you anticipate such a problem and is therefore quite valuable. Also valuable are trend indicators. These show output measured against time and also against some standard or expected level. A display of trends forces you to look at the future as you are led to extrapolate almost automatically from the past. This extrapolation gives us another window in our black box. Also, measurement against a standard makes you think through why the results were what they were and not what the standard said they would be. Another sound way to anticipate the future is through the use of the stagger chart, which forecasts an output over the next several months. The chart is updated monthly so that each month you will see your current forecast information compared to several prior forecasts. If you are forecasting for, say, six months at a time, you would write down in June what your forecasts are for each of the next six months, July through December. Then, in July, you would note your forecasts for the months August through January. In July, you will also write down the actual figures for July so you can compare them with what you had forecast. If you enter all this information on a chart, you can readily see the variation of one forecast from the next, which can help you anticipate future trends better than if you used a simple trend chart. In my experience, nowhere has the stagger chart been more productive than in forecasting economic trends. We use it, for example, to forecast rates of incoming orders. Such a chart shows not only your outlook for business month by month, but also how your outlook varied from one month to the next. This way of looking at incoming business, of course, makes the people who do forecasting take their tasks very seriously, because they know that their forecasts for any given month will be routinely compared with future forecasts and eventually with the actual result. But even more important, the improvement or deterioration of the forecasted outlook from one month to the next provides the most valuable indicator of business trends that I have ever seen. It's too bad that all economists and investment advisors aren't obliged to display their forecasts in a stagger chart form. Then we could really have a way to evaluate whatever any one of them chooses to say. Finally, indicators can be a big help in solving all types of problems. If something goes wrong, you will have a bank of information that shows all the parameters of your operation, allowing you to scan them for unhealthy departures from the norm. If you do not systematically collect and maintain an archive of indicators, you will have to do an awful lot of quick research to get the information you need, and by the time you have it, the problem is likely to have gotten worse. We've sampled the indicators a manager can use to know what's happening in the business. So let's move on to the second thing that a manager has to know how to do, controlling future output. There are two ways to control the output of any factory. Some industries build to order. For example, when you go shopping for a sofa, 
you are going to have to wait a long time to get what you bought, unless you buy it right off the floor. A furniture factory builds to order. When it learns what you want, the factory looks for a hole in its manufacturing schedule and makes the item for you. But if your competition in the sofa business makes the same product, but has it ready in four weeks, while you need four months, you are not going to have many customers. So even though you would much rather build to order, you will have to use another way to control the output of your factory. In short, you will have to build to forecast. To do this, the manufacturer sets up his activities around a reasoned speculation that orders will materialize for specific products within a certain time. An obvious disadvantage here is that the manufacturer takes an inventory risk, risking capital to respond to anticipated future demand in good order. At Intel, we build a forecast because our customers demand that we respond to their needs in a timely fashion, even though our manufacturing throughput times are quite long. Our breakfast factory makes its product to customer order, but buys from its suppliers, like the Eggman, on the basis of forecasted demand. Similarly, most companies recruit new college graduates to fill anticipated needs, rather than recruiting only when a need develops, which would be foolish because college graduates are turned out in a highly seasonal fashion. So building to forecast is a very common business practice. Delivering a product that was built to forecast to a customer consists of two simultaneous processes, each with a separate time cycle. A manufacturing flow must occur in which the raw material moves through various production steps and finally enters the finished goods warehouse. Simultaneously, a salesman finds a prospect and sells to that prospect, who eventually places an order with the manufacturer. Ideally, the order for the product and the product itself should arrive on the shipping dock at the same time. Because the art and science of forecasting is so complex, you might be tempted to give all forecasting responsibility to a single manager who can be made accountable for it, but this usually doesn't work very well. What works better is to ask both the manufacturing and the sales departments to prepare a forecast so that people are responsible for performing against their own predictions. At Intel, we try to match the manufacturing and selling flows with as much precision as possible. If there's no match, we end up with a customer order that we can't satisfy or with a finished product for which we have no customer. Either way, we have problems. Obviously, if the match does come off with a forecasted order becoming a real order, the customer's requirements can be nicely satisfied with the factory's product delivery. The ideal is rarely found in the real world because neither the sales flow nor the manufacturing flow is completely predictable, we should deliberately build a reasonable amount of slack into the system, and inventory is the most obvious place for it. Clearly, the more inventory we have, the more change we can cope with and still satisfy orders. But inventory costs money to build and keep, and therefore should be controlled carefully. Ideally, Inventory should be kept at the lowest value stage, as we've learned before, like raw eggs kept at the breakfast factory. Also, the lower the value, the more production flexibility we obtain for a given inventory cost. It's a good idea to use stagger charts in both the manufacturing and sales forecasts. As I noted, they will show the trend of change from one forecast to another, as well as the actual results. By repeatedly observing the variance of one forecast from another, you will continually pin down the causes of inaccuracy and improve your ability to forecast both orders and the availability of product. 
Forecasting future demands and then adjusting output to the forecasts is an old and honored way of operating widget factories. But it is also an important way to increase the productivity of administrative factories. Administrative work has up to now been considered qualitatively different from work in a widget factory. And it has also lacked objective performance standards. But if we have carefully chosen indicators that characterize an administrative unit and watch them closely, we are ready to apply the methods of factory control to administrative work. We can use actual standards inferred from the trend data to forecast the number of people needed to accomplish anticipated tasks. By rigorous application of the principles of forecasting, manpower can be reassigned from one area to another, and the headcount made to match the forecasted growth or decline in administrative activity. Without this rigor, the staffing of administrative units would always be left at its highest level, and given Parkinson's famous law, people would find ways to let whatever they're doing fill the time available for its completion. There is no question that having standards and believing in them and staffing an administrative unit objectively using forecasted workloads will help you to maintain and enhance productivity. In addition to using indicators and controlling future output, a manager has to know how to assure quality. Manufacturing's charter is to deliver product at a quality level acceptable to the customer at minimum cost. To assure that the quality of our product will, in fact, be acceptable, all production flows, whether they make breakfasts or college graduates, must possess inspection points. To get acceptable quality at the lowest cost, it is vitally important to reject defective material at a stage where its accumulated value is at the lowest possible level. In the language of production, the lowest value point inspection is called incoming material inspection, or receiving inspection. If we use a black box again to represent our production process, inspections that occur at points within it are called, logically enough, in-process inspections. Finally, the last possible point of inspection when the product is ready to be shipped to the customer is called final inspection or outgoing quality inspection. When material is rejected at incoming inspection, a couple of choices present themselves. We can send it back to the vendor as unacceptable, or we can waive our specifications and use the substandard material anyway. Using it would result in a higher reject rate in our production process than if we had used thoroughly acceptable material, but that might be less expensive than shutting down the factory altogether until our vendor provides better material. Such decisions can only be made properly by a balanced group of managers, which typically consists of representatives from the quality assurance manufacturing, and design engineering departments. This group can weigh all the consequences of rejecting or accepting substandard raw material. While in most instances the decision to accept or reject defective material at a given inspection point is an economic one, a manager should never let substandard material be used when its defects could cause a complete failure, a reliability problem for our customer because we can never assess the consequences of an unreliable product, we can't make compromises when it comes to reliability. Think of a component going into the cardiac pacemaker. If the component doesn't work upon receipt by the manufacturer, he can replace it while the unit is still in the factory. This will probably increase costs, but if the component fails later, after the pacemaker has been implanted, 
the cost of the failure is much more than a financial one. Inspections, of course, cost money to perform and further add to expense by interfering with the manufacturing flow and making it more complicated. Accordingly, a manager should recognize that a balance exists between the desired result of the inspection, improved quality, and disturbance to the production process itself, which should be minimal. Let's consider a few techniques commonly used to balance the two needs. There is a gate-like inspection and a monitoring step. In the gate-like inspection, all material is held at the gate until the inspection tests are completed. If the material passes, it is moved on to the next stage in the production process. If the material fails, it will be returned to an earlier stage where it will be reworked or scrapped. In the monitoring step, a sample of the material is taken, and if it fails, a notation is made from which a failure rate is calculated. The bulk of the material is not held as the sample is taken, but continues to move through the manufacturing process. The smoothness of the flow is maintained, but if, for example, three successive samples fail the monitoring test, we can stop the line. What is the trade-off here? If we hold all the material, we add to throughput time and slow down the manufacturing process. A monitor produces no comparable slowdown, but might let some bad material escape before we can act on the monitor's results and shut things down, which means that we might have to reject material later at a higher value stage. Clearly, for the same money, we can do a lot more monitoring than gate-type inspections. And if we do more monitoring, we may well contribute more to the overall quality of the product than if we do less frequent gate-like inspections. But any choice has to be made with a specific case in mind. As a rule of thumb, we should lean toward monitoring when experience shows we are not likely to encounter big problems. Another way to lower the cost of quality assurance is to use variable inspections. Because quality levels vary over time, it is only common sense to vary how often we inspect. For instance, if for weeks we don't find problems, it would seem logical to check less often. But if problems begin to develop, we can test ever more frequently until quality again returns to the previous high levels. The advantage here is still lower costs and even less interference with the production flow. Yet this approach is not used very often, even in widget manufacturing. Why not? Probably because we are creatures of habit and keep doing things the way we always have, whether it be from week to week or year to year. Suitably thought through, Intelligent inspection schemes can actually increase the efficiency and productivity of any manufacturing or administrative process. Let's take an example very different from the making of widgets or breakfasts. I recently read a story in a news magazine that said the American Embassy in London could not deal with a deluge of visa applications. Some one million Britons apply for visas each year, of which about 98% are approved. The embassy employs 60 people who process as many as 6,000 applications a day. Most applications are received by mail, and at any time, from 60,000 to 80,000 British passports are in the embassy's hands. Meanwhile, lines of 100 or more British and other nationals stand in front of the building, looking for an opportunity to walk their passports through. The embassy has tried a number of ways to handle matters more efficiently, including newspaper advertisements asking tourists to apply early and to expect a three-week turnaround. The embassy also installed boxes where applicants could drop off their passports and visa applications if they really needed same-day service. Even so, the lines at the embassy remained long. In fact, the embassy's expediting schemes only made the problem worse. 
because nothing was done to address the basic issue to speed the processing of visas overall. Time and money were spent to classify various kinds of applications slated for different processing times, but this only created more logistical overhead with no effect on output. If our government wants British tourists to visit the United States, our government should not irritate these would-be visitors. And if the embassy can't get the money to increase its staff, a simple solution can be borrowed from basic production techniques. We need, in short, to replace their present scheme with a quality assurance test. For that, the bureaucratic minds at the embassy would need to accept that a 100% check of the visa applicants is unnecessary. Some 98% of those applying are approved without any question. So, if the embassy were to institute a sampling test of visas, a quality assurance test, and a thorough one of that, the logjam of applications could be broken without materially increasing the chance that the undesirable will enter our country. Moreover, the embassy could select the sample to be checked according to predetermined criteria. The visa processing could then work rather like the Internal Revenue Service. Through the checks and audits that the IRS performs, that government agency induces compliance among most taxpayers without having an agent look at every single return. Later, when we examine managerial productivity, we'll see that when managers dig deeply into a specific activity under their jurisdiction, they're applying the principle of variable inspection. If the managers examined everything their subordinates did, they would be meddling, which for the most part would be a waste of their time. Even worse, their subordinates would become accustomed to not being responsible for their own work, knowing full well that their supervisor will check everything out closely. The principle of variable inspection applied to managerial work nicely skirts both problems and gives us one important tool for improving managerial productivity. Being able to improve productivity was the fourth thing I said a manager must be able to do, and there are two basic ways to go about it. The workings of our black box can furnish us with the simplest and most useful definition of productivity. Productivity is output divided by the labor required to generate the output. So one way to increase productivity is to do whatever we are now doing, but faster. This could be done by reorganizing the work area or just by working harder. A second way to improve productivity is to change the nature of the work performed. What we do, not how fast we do it. As the slogan has it, we want to work smarter, not harder. Here, I'd like to introduce the concept of leverage which is the output generated by a specific type of work activity. An activity with high leverage will generate a high level of output. An activity with low leverage, a low level of output. For example, a waiter able to boil two eggs and operate two toasters can deliver two breakfasts for almost the same amount of work as one. His output per activity, and therefore his leverage, is high. A waiter who can handle only one egg and one toaster at a time possesses lower output and leverage. A very important way to increase productivity is to arrange the workflow inside our black box so that it will be characterized by high output per activity, which is to say, high leverage activities. This completes Side 2. Management is a team game. And there are four key management skills or abilities where thinking of management as a team game can really pay off. 
You'll learn these on the next side as we continue with High Output Management by Andrew S. Grove. Now, please load the next cassette and listen to side three.
Output Management by Andrew S. Grove. Now that you have a clear picture of the production process and some critical managerial abilities, let's look more closely at several effective ways managers can increase their abilities and productivity. On this side, you'll learn important techniques in the areas of managerial leverage, getting the most from meetings, decision making, and planning. Here is side three. Automation is certainly one way to improve the leverage of all types of work. But in both widget manufacturing and administrative work, something else can also increase the productivity of the black box. This is called work simplification. To get leverage this way, you first need to create a flowchart of the production process as it exists. Every single step must be shown on it. No step should be omitted in order to pretty things up on paper. Second, Count the number of steps in the flowchart so that you know how many you started with. Third, set a rough target for reduction of the number of steps. In the first round of work simplification, our experience at Intel shows that you can reasonably expect a 30 to 50 percent reduction. To implement the actual simplification, you must question why each step is performed. Typically, you will find that many steps exist in your workflow for no good reason. Often they are there by tradition or because formal procedure ordains it and nothing practical requires their inclusion. Remember the visa factory at our embassy in Britain didn't really have to process 100% of the applicants. So no matter what reason may be given for a step, you must critically question each and throw out those that common sense says you can do without. Of course, the principle of work simplification is hardly new in the widget manufacturing arts. Industrial engineers have been doing it for a hundred years, but the application of the principle to improve the productivity of the soft professions, the administrative, professional, and managerial workplace, is new and slow to take hold. The major problem to be overcome is defining what the output of such work is or should be. As we will see, in the work of the soft professions, it becomes very difficult to distinguish between output and activity. And as I noted, stressing output is the key to improving productivity. Looking to increase activity can result in just the opposite. Now that we have a good picture of the production process and some critical managerial abilities, we can look more closely at ways managers can increase their abilities and productivity. Here, I'm going to concentrate on teamwork in management. Management is a team game. And there are four key management skills or abilities where thinking of management as a team game really pays off. The four are managerial leverage, getting the most from meetings, decision making, and planning. If we as managers want to increase our output through leverage and in meetings, decision making, and planning, the first thing we have to be able to do is to distinguish output from activity. What is a manager's output? I asked a group of middle managers just that question. I got these responses. Output is judgments and opinions. Direction. 
Allocation of resources. Mistakes detected. Personnel trained and subordinates developed. Courses taught. Products planned. Commitments negotiated. Do these things really constitute the output of a manager? I don't think so. They are instead activities, or descriptions of what managers do as they try to create a final result or output. What then does make up manager's output? At Intel, if they are in charge of wafer fabrication plants, their output consists of completed, high-quality, fully processed silicon wafers. If they supervise a design group, their output consists of completed designs that work correctly and are ready to go into manufacturing. Similarly, if managers are high school principals, their output will be trained and educated students. If managers are surgeons, their output will be fully recovered, healed patients. We can sum matters up with the proposition that a manager's output equals the output of the manager's organization plus the output of the neighboring organizations that are under the manager's influence. Why? Because business and education and even surgery represent work done by teams. Managers can do their own jobs, their individual work, and do it well. But that does not constitute their output. If the managers have groups of people reporting to them, or circles of people influenced by them, the manager's output must be measured by the output created by their subordinates and associates. If the managers are knowledge specialists or know-how managers, their potential for influencing neighboring organizations is enormous. The internal consultant who supplies needed insight to a group struggling with a problem will affect the work and the output of the entire group. Similarly, if a lawyer acquires a regulatory permit for a drug company, he will release the flow of the result of many years of research at that company to the public. Or a marketing analyst who reviews mountains of information, product information, market information, competitive information, analyzes market research, and makes fact-finding visits, can directly affect the output of many neighboring organizations. Her interpretations of the data and her recommendations will perhaps guide the activities for the whole company. Thus, the definition of manager should be broadened. Individual contributors who gather and disseminate know-how and information should also be seen as middle managers because they exert great power within the organization. But the key definition here is that the output of managers is a result achieved by groups either under their supervision or under their influence. While the manager's own work is clearly very important, that in itself does not create output. Their organizations create output. By analogy, a coach or a quarterback alone does not score touchdowns and win games. Entire teams do. League standings are kept by team, not by individual. Business, and this means not just the business of commerce, but the business of education, the business of government, the business of medicine, is a team activity. And always it takes a team to win. It is important to understand that managers will find themselves engaging in an array of activities in order to affect output. As the middle managers I queried said, 
Managers must form opinions and make judgments. They must provide direction. They must allocate resources. They must detect mistakes and so on. All these are necessary to achieve output, but output and activity are by no means the same thing. Consider my own managerial role. As president of a company, I can affect output through my direct subordinates, group general managers and others like them, by performing supervisory activities. I can also influence groups not under my direct supervision by making observations and suggestions to those who manage them. Both types of activity will, I hope, contribute to my output as a manager by contributing to the output of the company as a whole. I was once asked by a middle manager at Intel how I could teach in-plant courses, visit manufacturing plants, concern myself with the problems of people several levels removed from me in the organization, and still have time to do my job. I asked him what he thought my job was. He thought for a moment, and then answered his own question. I guess those things are your job too, weren't they? They are absolutely my job, not my entire job but part of it, because they help add to the output of Intel. Let me give you another example. Cindy, an engineer at Intel, supervises an engineering group in a wafer fabrication plant. She also spends some of her time as a member of an advisory body that establishes standard procedures by which all the plants throughout the company perform a certain technical process. In both roles, Cindy contributes to the output of the wafer fabrication plants. As a supervising engineer, she performs activities that increase the output of the plant in which she works. As a member of the advisory body, she provides specialized knowledge that will influence and increase the output of all the other Intel wafer fabrication plants. Let's refer again to our black box. If the machinery within an organization can be compared to a series of gears, we can visualize how middle managers affect output. In times of crisis, they provide power to the organization. When things aren't working as smoothly as they should, middle managers apply a bit of oil. And, of course, they provide intelligence to the machine to direct its purpose. Because you are a manager, has anybody ever asked you, as a manager, what you really do? Most of us have had to struggle to answer that question. What we actually do is difficult to pin down and sum up. Much of it often seems so inconsequential that our position in the business hardly seems justified. Part of the problem here stems from the distinction between our activities, which is what we actually do, and our output, which is what we achieve. The output seems important and worthwhile. The activities often seem trivial and messy, but a surgeon whose output is a cured patient spends his time scrubbing and cutting and suturing, and this hardly sounds very respectable either. To find out what we managers really do, let's review one of my busier days. I'll describe the activity in which I was engaged, explain it a bit, and categorize it into types. These types of activity are information gathering, information giving, decision making, giving nudges, and being a role model. Afterward, I'll discuss these types of activity in more detail. Here we go. 
From 8 o'clock to 8.30 a.m., I met with a manager who had submitted his resignation to leave for another company. I listened to his reasons. That was information gathering. I felt he could be turned around and saved for intel. So I encouraged him to talk to certain other managers about a career change. This was a nudge. And I made a decision to pursue this matter with them myself. During this time, I also took a phone call from a competitor. Ostensibly, he was calling about a meeting of an industry-wide society, but in reality, he was feeling out how I saw business conditions. I did the same. This was information gathering. From 8.30 until 9 a.m., I read mail from the previous afternoon. I scribbled messages on about half of it. Some of these were expressions of encouragement or disapproval. Others were exhortations to take certain types of action. Here, I was giving nudges. Making a decision, I denied one request to proceed with a particular small project. Of course, I was information gathering as I did this, too. From 9 a.m. to 12 o'clock noon, I attended the weekly executive staff meeting. We gathered information by reviewing the prior month's incoming order and shipment rates, and we engaged in decision-making by setting priorities for the upcoming annual planning process. Then we reviewed the status of a major marketing program. Earlier we had decided that this program was faltering and required review. Now we found that it was doing a little bit better than before. This was information gathering, but the presentation still elicited a lot of comments and suggestions, that is, nudges, from the people at the meeting. Finally, we gathered information by reviewing a program to reduce the manufacturing cycle time of a particular product line. Since the presentation showed that the program was in good shape, no further action was taken. From 12 noon to 1 p.m., I had lunch in the company cafeteria. I happened to sit with members of our training organization who complained about the difficulty they had in getting me and other senior managers to participate in training at our foreign locations. Their complaint was news to me, so this was information gathering. I made a note to follow up with my own schedule, as well as with my staff, and to nudge them into doing a better job of supporting the foreign training program. After lunch from 1 p.m. to 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I attended a meeting regarding a specific product quality problem. The bulk of the meeting was information gathering, getting sufficient information on the status of the product and the corrective action that had been implemented. The meeting ended in a decision made by the division manager, with my concurrence, to resume shipment of the product. Next, from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m., I gave a lecture for our employee orientation program. In this program, senior management gives all professional employees a presentation describing the objectives, history, management systems, and so forth of the company and its major groups. I am the first lecturer in the series. Here, I was giving information. And I was a role model, not only in communicating the importance we place on training, but also in the way I handled questions and comments and represented in living form some of the values of the company. At the same time, the nature of the questions gave me a feeling for the concerns and level of understanding of a large number of employees, employees I don't ordinarily have access to. So this meeting also represented information gathering. 
I spent the time from 4 to 4.45 in the afternoon in my office, returning phone calls. During these calls, I disapproved granting a compensation increase to a particular employee, which I thought was way outside of the norm. This was clearly a decision. I also decided to conduct a meeting with a group of people to decide what organization would move to a new site we were opening in another state. This was a decision to hold a decision-making meeting. From 4.45 to 5 p.m., I met with my assistant and discussed a variety of requests for me to attend a number of meetings. For those that I decided not to attend, I suggested alternatives. Finally, from 5 p.m. to 6.15, I read the day's mail, including progress reports. Like the morning's mail reading, this was information gathering, interspersed with nudging and decision-making. As you think about what happened during my day, you won't see any obvious patterns. I dealt with things in a seemingly random fashion. Also, my day always ends when I'm tired and ready to go home, not when I'm done, because I am never done. Managers must keep many balls in the air at the same time and shift their energies and attention to activities that will most increase the output of their organizations. In other words, they should move to the point where their leverage will be the greatest. As you can see, much of my day is spent acquiring information. And as you can also see, I use many ways to get it. I read standard reports and memos, but also get information ad hoc. I talk to people inside and outside the company, managers at other firms or financial analysts or members of the press. Customer complaints, both external and internal, are also a very important source of information. For example, the Intel Training Organization, which I serve as an instructor, is an internal customer of mine. To cut myself off from the casual complaints of people in that group would be a mistake, because I would miss getting an evaluation of my performance as an internal supplier. People also tell us things because they want us to do something for them. To advance their case, they will sometimes shower us with useful information. This is something we should remember, apart from whether we do as they ask. I have to confess that the information most useful to me, and I suspect most useful to all managers, comes from quick, often casual, verbal exchanges. This usually reaches a manager much faster than anything written down. And usually the more timely the information, the more valuable it is. So why are written reports necessary at all? They obviously can't provide timely information. What they do is constitute an archive of data, help to validate ad hoc inputs, and catch in safety net fashion anything you may have missed. But reports also have another totally different function. As they are formulated and written, the authors are forced to be more precise than they might be verbally. So the report's value stems from the discipline and the thinking the writers are forced to impose upon themselves as they identify and deal with trouble spots in their presentations. Writing the report is important. Reading it often is not. Similarly, our capital authorization process is important, not the authorization itself. To prepare and justify a capital spending request, people go through a lot of soul-searching analysis and juggling. And it is this mental exercise that is valuable. 
The formal authorization is useful only because it enforces the discipline of the process. To improve and maintain your capacity to get information, you have to understand the way it comes to you. There's a hierarchy involved. Verbal sources are the most valuable. But what they provide is also incomplete and sometimes inaccurate, like a newspaper headline that can give you only the general idea of a story. A headline can't give any of the details and might even give you a distorted idea of what the real story is. You read the newspaper article itself to find out who, what, where, why, and how. After getting the real story, you should have some reiteration and perspective, which can be compared to reading a news magazine or even a book. Each level in your information hierarchy is important, and you can rely on none alone. Though the most thorough information might come from the news magazine, you do not, of course, want to wait a full week after an event to find out about it. Your information sources should complement one another and also be redundant because that gives you a way to verify what you've learned. There is an especially efficient way to get information, much neglected by most managers. That is to visit a particular place in the company and observe what's going on there. Why should you do this? Think of what happens when people come to see managers in their offices. A certain stop-and-start dynamics occurs when the visitors sit down, something socially dictated, while a two-minute kernel of information is exchanged, the meeting often takes a half hour. But if managers walk through their areas and see people with whom they have two-minute concerns, they can simply stop, cover the concerns, and be on their way. Ditto for the subordinates when they initiate conversation. Accordingly, such visits are an extremely effective and efficient way to transact managerial business. Then why are they underutilized? because of the awkwardness that managers feel about walking through an area without a specific task in mind. At Intel, we combat this problem by using programmed visits meant to accomplish formal tasks, but which also set the stage for ad hoc mini-transactions. For example, we ask our managers to participate in Mr. Clean inspections, in which they go to a part of the company that they normally wouldn't visit. The managers examine the housekeeping, the arrangement of things, the labs, and the safety equipment, and in so doing, spend an hour or so browsing around and getting acquainted with things firsthand. As my schedule showed, managers not only gather information, they are a source of information, and giving information is a second major managerial activity. Beyond relaying facts to their own organizations and the groups they influence, Managers must also communicate their objectives, priorities, and preferences as they relate to certain tasks, so their subordinates will know how to make decisions that will be acceptable. Transmitting objectives and preferred approaches is a key to successful delegation. Someone who adheres to the values of a corporate culture will behave in consistent fashion under similar conditions which means that managers don't have to suffer the inefficiencies engendered by the formal rules, procedures, and regulations that are sometimes used to get the same result. The third major kind of managerial activity, of course, is decision-making. To be sure, once in a while we managers, in fact, make a decision. But for every time that happens, we participate in the making of many, many others. And we do that in a variety of ways. We provide factual inputs or just offer opinions. 
We debate the pros and cons of alternatives and thereby force a better decision to emerge. We review decisions made or about to be made by others, encourage or discourage them, ratify or veto them. We'll talk later about just how decisions should be made. Meanwhile, let's say that decisions can be separated into two kinds. The forward-looking kind are made, for example, in the capital authorization process. Here we allocate the financial resources of the company among various future undertakings. The second kind are made as we respond to a developing problem or a crisis. It's obvious that your decision-making depends finally on how well you comprehend the facts and issues facing your business. This is why information gathering is so important in a manager's life. Other activities, conveying information, making decisions, and being a role model for your subordinates, are all governed by the base of information that you, the manager, have about the tasks, the issues, the needs, and the problems facing your organization. In short, information gathering is the basis of all other managerial work, which is why I choose to spend so much of my day doing it. You often do things at the office designed to influence events slightly. Maybe making a phone call to an associate suggesting that a decision be made in a certain way, or sending a note or a memo that shows how you see a particular situation, or making a comment during an oral presentation. In such instances, you may be advocating a preferred course of action, but you are not issuing an instruction or a command. Yet you're doing something stronger than merely conveying information. I call it nudging, because through it you nudge an individual or a meeting in the direction you would like. This is an immensely important managerial activity in which we engage all the time, and it should be carefully distinguished from decision-making that results in firm, clear directives. In reality, for every unambiguous decision we make, we probably nudge things a dozen times. Finally, something more subtle pervades the day of all managers. While we move about doing what we regard as our jobs, we are role models for people in our organization, our subordinates, our peers, and even our supervisors. Much has been said and written about a manager's need to be a leader. The fact is, no single managerial activity can be said to constitute leadership and nothing leads as well as example. Values and behavioral norms are simply not transmitted easily by talk or memo, but are conveyed very effectively by doing, and doing visibly. All managers need to act so that they can be seen exerting influence. But they should do so in their own way. Some of us feel comfortable dealing with large groups and talking about our feelings and values openly in that fashion. Others prefer working one-on-one -on -one with people in a quieter, more intellectual environment. These and other styles of leadership will work, but only if we recognize and consciously stress the need for us to be role models for people in our organization. Don't think for a moment that the way I've described leadership applies only to large operations. An insurance agent in a small office who continually talks with personal friends on the phone imparts a set of values about permissible conduct to everyone working for her. A lawyer who returns to his office after lunch a little drunk does the same. On the other hand, a supervisor in a company, large or small, who takes his work seriously 
exemplifies to his associates the most important managerial value of all. This completes side three of Career Tracks High Output Management by Andrew S. Grove. As a manager, a great deal of your work has to do with allocating resources, manpower, money, and capital. But the single most important resource you can allocate from one day to the next is your time. You'll learn how to allocate this valuable resource on the next side. Please fast forward this tape to the end, then turn it over to hear side four. Welcome to Side 4 of Career Tracks High Output Management. For every activity a manager performs, the output of the organization should increase by some measurable degree. The extent to which that output is increased is determined by the leverage of that activity. And clearly, the key to high output is being sensitive to the leverage of what you do during your day. You'll learn more about this important concept as we continue. Here is side four. A great deal of a manager's work has to do with allocating resources, manpower, money, and capital. But the single most important resource that we allocate from one day to the next is our own time. In principle, more money, more manpower, or more capital can always be made available, but our own time is the one absolutely finite resource we each have. Its allocation and use, therefore, deserve considerable attention. How you handle your own time is, in my view, the single most important aspect of being a role model and leader. In a typical day of mine, I can count some 25 separate activities in which I participated, mostly information gathering and information giving, but also decision-making and nudging. Some two-thirds of my time was spent in a meeting of one kind or another. Before you are horrified by how much time I spend in meetings, answer a question. Which of the activities, information gathering, information giving, decision-making, nudging, and being a role model, could I have performed outside a meeting? The answer is, 
practically none. Meetings provide an occasion for managerial activities. Getting together with others is not, of course, an activity. It is a medium. You, as a manager, can do your work in a meeting, in a memo, or through a loudspeaker, for that matter, but you must choose the most effective medium for what you want to accomplish. And that is the one that gives you the greatest leverage. Now, leverage was the concept I introduced earlier in discussing productivity. Meetings allow me to leverage my time. What else can I do to gain greater managerial leverage? First, let me define leverage more precisely. For every activity a manager performs, the output of the organization should increase by some degree. The extent to which that output is increased is determined by the leverage of that activity. Clearly, the key to high output is being sensitive to the leverage of what you do during the day. The output of managers per unit of time worked can be increased in three ways. First, by increasing the rate with which managers perform their activities, speeding up their work. Second, by increasing the leverage associated with the various managerial activities. And third, by shifting the mix of managers' activities from those with lower to those with higher leverage. So, let's consider the leverage of various types of managerial work. High leverage activities can be achieved in these basic ways. When many people are affected by one manager. When a single person's activity or behavior over a long period of time is affected by a manager's brief, well-focused set of words or actions. And when a large group's work is affected by an individual supplying a unique, key piece of knowledge or information. Having many people affected by one manager is the most obvious example of a high leverage activity. Consider Robin, an Intel finance manager, responsible for setting up the annual financial planning process for the company. When Robin defines in advance exactly what information needs to be gathered and presented at each stage of the planning process and lays out who is responsible for what, she directly affects the subsequent work of perhaps 200 people who participate in the planning process. By spending a certain amount of time in advance of the planning activities, Robin will help to eliminate confusion and ambiguity for a large population of managers over an extended period of time. Consequently, her work contributes to the productivity of the entire organization and clearly has great leverage. Leverage that depends, however, on when it is performed. Work done in advance of the planning meeting obviously has great leverage. If Robin has to scramble later to help a manager define guidelines and milestones, her work will clearly have much less leverage. To maximize the leverage of their activities, managers must keep timeliness, which is often critical, firmly in mind. Leverage can also be negative. Some managerial activities can reduce the output of an organization. Suppose I am a key participant at a meeting, and I arrive unprepared. Not only do I waste the time of the people attending the meeting because of my lack of preparation, but I deprive the other participants of the opportunity to use that time to do something else. Each time a manager imparts knowledge, skills, or values to a group, his leverage is high, as members of the group will carry what they learn to many others. But again, leverage can be positive or negative. 
An example of leverage that I hope is high and positive is my talk in the orientation course. During the two hours I have, I try to impart a great deal of information about Intel, its history, its objectives, its values, its style, to a group of 200 new employees. Besides what I say specifically, my approach toward answering questions and my conduct in general communicate our way of doing things to these employees when they are most impressionable. Here is another example of this kind of leverage. To train a group of salespeople, Barbara, an Intel marketing engineer, sets out to teach them what the organization's products are. If she does her job well, these salespeople will be better equipped to sell the line. If she does it poorly, great and obvious damage is done. A final, less formal example here. Cindy, as you recall, is a member of a technical coordinating body in which she tries to disseminate her understanding of a specific technology to all of the company's manufacturing groups. In effect, she uses the coordinating body as an informal training vehicle to affect high leverage on her counterparts in neighboring Intel organizations. Managers can also exert high leverage by engaging in activities that take them only a short time, but that affect another person's performance over a long time. Performance reviews represent a good example of this. With the few hours' work that managers spend preparing and delivering each review, they can affect the work of the recipients enormously. Here, too, managers can exert either positive or negative leverage. Subordinates can be motivated and even redirected in their efforts, or the reviews can discourage and demoralize them for who knows how long. Another seemingly trivial piece of work, creating a tickler file, can improve daily work significantly for a long time. Setting up this simple mechanical aid is a one-time activity, yet it is likely to improve the productivity of the managers who use it indefinitely. The leverage here is very, very high. Examples of high negative leverage abound. After going through the annual planning process, an Intel manager saw that, in spite of successful cost reduction efforts in the prior year, his division was still not going to make any money in the coming year. The manager became depressed. Though he didn't realize it, he almost immediately began to affect people around him, and soon depression spread throughout his organization. He snapped out of it only when someone on his staff finally told him what he was doing to the people under him. Another example is waffling. This occurs when a manager puts off a decision that will affect the work of other people. In effect, the lack of a decision is the same as a negative decision. No green light is a red light, and work can stop for a whole organization. Managerial middling is also an example of negative leverage. This occurs when supervisors use their superior knowledge and experience of subordinates' responsibilities to assume command of situations rather than letting the subordinates work things through themselves. For example, if a senior manager sees an indicator showing an undesirable trend and dictates to the person responsible a detailed set of actions to be taken, that is managerial meddling. After being exposed to a lot of meddling, the subordinates will begin to take a much more restricted view of what is expected of them, show less initiative in solving their own problems, and refer them instead to their supervisors because the output of the organization will consequently be reduced in the long run, 
Middling is clearly an activity having negative managerial leverage. The third kind of managerial activity with high leverage is exercised by a person with unique skills and knowledge. One such person is an Intel marketing engineer responsible for setting prices for the product line. Hundreds of salespeople in the field can be negatively affected if prices are set too high. No matter how hard they may try, they won't be able to get any business. Of course, if the prices were set too low, we would be giving money away. Take another example. An Intel development engineer who has uniquely detailed knowledge of a particular manufacturing process effectively controls how it is used. Since the process will eventually provide the foundation for the work of many product designers all over the company, the leverage the development engineer exerts is enormous. The same is true for a geologist in an oil company or an actuary in an insurance firm. All are specialists whose work is important for the work of their organization at large. The knowledge specialist or the know-how manager has tremendous authority and influence on the work of others and therefore very high leverage. The art of management lies in the capacity to select from the many activities of seemingly comparable significance to select the one or two or three that provide leverage well beyond the others and to concentrate on them. For me, paying close attention to customer complaints constitutes a high leverage activity. Aside from making a customer happy, the activity tends to give me important insights into the workings of my own operation. Such complaints may be numerous, and though all of them need to be followed up by someone, they don't all require my personal attention. Choosing which one out of 10 or 20 complaints to dig into, analyze, and follow up is where art comes into the work of a manager. The basis of that art is an intuition that behind this complaint and not the other lurk many deeper problems. Because managerial time has a hierarchy of values, Delegation is an essential aspect of management. For high leverage, the delegator and delegatee must share a common information base and a common set of operational ideas or notions on how to go about solving problems, a requirement that is frequently not met. Unless both parties share the relevant common base, the delegatee can become an effective proxy only with specific instructions. As in meddling, where specific activities are prescribed in detail, this produces low managerial leverage. Picture this. I am your supervisor, and I walk over to you with pencil in hand and tell you to take it. You reach for the pencil, but I won't let go. So I say, what is wrong with you? Why can't I delegate the pencil to you? We all have some things that we don't really want to delegate simply because we like doing them and would rather not let go. For your managerial effectiveness, this is not too bad, so long as it is based on a conscious decision that you will hold on to certain tasks that you enjoy performing, even though you could, if you chose, delegate them. But be sure to know exactly what you're doing and avoid the charade of insincere delegation which can produce immense negative managerial leverage. Given a choice, 
Should you delegate activities that are familiar to you or those that aren't? Before answering, consider the following principle. Delegation without follow-through is abdication. You can never wash your hands of a task. Even after you delegate it, you are still responsible for its accomplishment. And monitoring the delegated task is the only practical way for you to ensure a result. Monitoring is not meddling. It means checking to make sure an activity is proceeding in line with expectations. Because it is easier to monitor something with which you are familiar, if you have a choice, you should delegate those activities you know best. But recall the pencil experiment and understand that this will very likely go against your emotional grain. Monitoring the results of delegation resembles the monitoring used in quality assurance. We should apply quality assurance principles and monitor at the lowest added value stage of the process. For example, review rough drafts of reports that you have delegated. Don't wait until your subordinates have spent time polishing them into final form before you find out that you have a basic problem with the contents. A second quality assurance principle applies to the frequency with which you check your subordinates' work. A variable approach should be employed using different sampling schemes with various subordinates. You should increase or decrease your frequency depending on whether your subordinates are performing a newly delegated task or one that they have experience handling. How often you monitor should not be based on what you believe your subordinates can do in general, but on their experience with specific tasks and their prior performance. As your subordinates' work improves over time, you should respond by reducing the intensity of the monitoring. To use quality assurance principles effectively, managers should only go into details randomly, just enough to try to ensure that subordinates are moving ahead satisfactorily. To check into all the details of a delegated task would be like quality assurance testing 100% of what manufacturing turned out. Making certain types of decisions is something managers frequently delegate to subordinates. How is this best done? By monitoring their decision-making process. How do you do that? Let's examine what Intel goes through to approve a capital equipment purchase. We ask a subordinate to think through the entire matter carefully before presenting a request for approval. And to monitor how good the person's thinking is, we ask him quite specific questions about his request during a review meeting. If he answers them convincingly, we'll give an approval. This technique allows us to find out how good the thinking is without having to go through it ourselves. You can get even more out of your highly leveraged activities by increasing the speed at which you perform them. This is the most obvious way of increasing managerial output, and time management techniques have been the commonest approach to it. Any number of consultants will tell managers that the way to higher productivity is to handle a piece of paper only once, to hold only stand-up meetings, which will presumably be short, and to turn their desks so that they present their backs to their office doors. These time management suggestions can be improved upon, I think, by applying our production principles. First, we must identify our limiting step. Back to that breakfast factory example, what is the egg in our work? 
In a manager's life, some things really have to happen on a schedule that is absolute. For me, an example is the class I teach. I know when it is going to meet, and I know I must prepare for it. There is no give in the time here, because over 200 students will be expecting me. Accordingly, I have to create offsets and schedule my other work around this limiting step. In short, if we determine what is immovable and manipulate the more yielding activities around it, we can work more efficiently. A second production principle we can apply to managerial work is batching similar tasks. Any manufacturing operation requires a certain amount of setup time. So for managerial work to proceed efficiently, we should use a single setup effort for a whole group of similar activities. For example, once we have prepared a set of illustrations for a training class, we will obviously increase our productivity if we can use the same set over and over again with other classes or groups. Similarly, if managers have a number of reports to read or a number of performance reviews to approve, they should set aside a block of time and do a batch of them together, one after the other, to maximize the use of the mental setup time needed for the task. What makes running a factory different from running a job shop? The job shop is prepared to service any customer who drops in. The owner handles the job required and moves on to the next one. A factory, on the other hand, is usually run by forecast and not by individual order. From my experience, a large portion of managerial work can be forecasted. Accordingly, forecasting those things you can and setting yourself up to do them is only common sense and an important way to minimize the feeling and the reality of fragmentation experienced in managerial work. Forecasting and planning your time around key events like the egg in the breakfast factory, are literally like running an efficient factory. What is the medium of managers' forecasts? It is something very simple. They're calendars. Most people use their calendars as a repository of orders that come in. Someone throws an order to them for their time, and it automatically shows up on their calendars. This is mindless passivity. To gain better control of their time... Managers should use their calendars as production planning tools, taking firm initiatives to schedule work that is not time-critical between those limiting steps in the day. Another production principle can be applied here. Because manufacturing people trust their indicators, they won't allow material to begin its journey through the factory if they think it is already operating at capacity. If they did, material might go halfway through and back up behind a bottleneck. Instead, factory managers say no at the outset, so they don't overload the system. Other kinds of managers find this hard to apply because their indicators of capacity are not as well established or not as believable. How much time do you need to read your mail, to write your reports, to meet with a colleague? You may not know precisely, but you surely have a feel for the time required, and you should exploit that sense to schedule your work. To use your calendar as a production planning tool, you must accept responsibility for two things. You should move toward the active use of your calendar 
taking the initiative to fill the holes between the time-critical events with non-time-critical, though necessary, activities. You should say no at the outset to work beyond your capacity to handle. It is important to say no earlier rather than later because we've learned that to wait until something reaches a higher value stage and then abort due to lack of capacity means losing more money and time. Remember, too, that your time is your one finite resource. And when you say yes to one thing, you are inevitably saying no to another. The next production principle you can apply is to allow slack, a bit of looseness in your scheduling. Highway planners, for example, know that a freeway can handle an optimum number of vehicles. Having fewer cars means that the road is not being used at capacity. But at that optimum point, if just a few more cars are allowed to enter the traffic flow, everything comes to a crunching halt. With the new metering devices that control access during the rush hour, planners can get a fix on the right number. The same thing can be done for managerial work. There is an optimum degree of loading, with enough slack built in so that one unanticipated phone call will not ruin your schedule for the rest of the day. You need some slack. Another production principle is very nearly the opposite. Managers should carry a raw material inventory in terms of projects. This is not to be confused with a work-in-process inventory, because that, like eggs in a continuous boiler, tends to spoil or become obsolete over time. Instead, this inventory should consist of things you need to do but don't need to finish right away. Discretionary projects. The kind you can work on to increase your group's productivity over the long term. Without such an inventory of projects, managers will most probably use their free time meddling in their subordinates' work. And don't forget this production principle. Most production practices follow well-established procedures, and rather than reinventing the wheel repeatedly, use a specific method that has been shown to work before. But managers tend to be inconsistent. They bring a welter of approaches to the same task. We should work to change that. As we become more consistent, we should also remember that the value of an administrative procedure is contained not in formal statements, but in the real thinking that led to its establishment. This means that even as we try to standardize what we do, we should continue to think critically about what we do and the approaches we use. Another important component of managerial leverage is the number of subordinates managers have. If they do not have enough, their leverage is obviously reduced. If they have too many, they get bogged down with the same result. As a rule of thumb, managers whose work is largely supervisory should have six to eight subordinates. Three or four are too few, and ten are too many. This range comes from a guideline that managers should allocate about a half day per week to each of their subordinates. Two days a week per subordinate would probably lead to meddling. An hour a week does not provide enough opportunity for monitoring. The 6 to 8 rule, 6 to 8 subordinates for a manager whose work is largely supervisory, is right for the classically hierarchical managers whose primary work is the supervision of others. What about know-how managers? The middle managers who mainly supply expertise and information, 
Even if they work without a single subordinate, servicing a number of varied customers as an internal consultant can in itself be a full-time job. In fact, anyone who spends about a half day per week as a member of a planning, advisory, or coordinating group has the equivalent of a subordinate. So, as a rule of thumb, if managers are both hierarchical supervisors and suppliers of know-how, they should try to have a total of six to eight subordinates, or their equivalent. Sometimes the business is organized in a way that makes the ideal fan out of six to eight subordinates hard to reach. A manufacturing plant, for example, may have an engineering section and a production section, in which case the plant manager would only have two people reporting directly to him. The manager might then choose to act as one of the two subordinates, choosing to be his own engineering manager, for instance. If he does that, the manufacturing manager will still report to him, and the people who would ordinarily report to the head of engineering will also report to him. So he will actually have six direct reports, five engineers and the manufacturing manager. This completes Side 4 of Career Track's High Output Management by Andrew Grove. Did you know that the use of indicators, especially a bank of indicators kept over time, can also reduce the time managers spend dealing with interruptions? You'll learn more about this important time management concept on the next side. Please replace this cassette with Side 5 and continue. This 
is side five of Career Track's High Output Management by Andrew Grove. On this side, we'll cover additional information on managerial leverage. Then we'll cover significant information on the curse of the manager's existence, the topic of meetings. Here is side five. The next important production concept we can apply to increasing our leverage as managers is to strive toward regularity. We could obviously run our breakfast factory more efficiently if customers arrived in a steady and predictable stream rather than dropping in by ones and twos. Though we can't control our customers' habits, we should try to smooth out our workload as much as possible. As I said, we should try to make our managerial work take on the characteristics of a factory, not a job shop. Accordingly, we should do everything we can to prevent little stops and starts in our day, as well as interruptions brought on by big emergencies. Even though some emergencies are unavoidable, we should always be looking for sources of future high-priority trouble by cutting windows into the black box of our organization. Recognizing you've got a time bomb on your hands means you can address a problem when you want to, not after the bomb has gone off. But because you must coordinate your work with that of other managers, you can only move toward regularity if others do too. In other words, the same blocks of time must be used for like activities. For example, at Intel, Monday mornings have been set aside throughout the corporation as the time when planning groups meet. So anybody who belongs to one can count on Monday for that purpose and be free of scheduling conflicts. About 20 middle managers at Intel were once asked to be part of an experiment. After pairing up, they tried some role-playing in which one manager was to define the problem most limiting his output and the other was to be a consultant who would analyze the problem and propose solutions. The most common problem cited was uncontrolled interruptions which affected both supervisory and know-how managers in a remarkably uniform fashion. Moreover, the interruptions had a common source, most frequently coming from subordinates and from people outside the manager's immediate organization, but whose work the managers influenced. The most frequently proposed solutions were not very practical. The idea mentioned most often was to create blocks of time for individual work by actually hiding from the interrupters. But this is a less-than-happy answer, because the interrupters obviously have legitimate problems, and if the managers responded by hiding, these would pile up. One solution was a suggestion that customers not call marketing managers at certain hours. No good. There are better ways. Let's apply a production concept. Manufacturers turn out standard products. By analogy, if you can pin down what kind of interruptions you're getting, you can prepare standard responses for those that pop up most often. People don't come up with totally new questions and problems day in and day out, and because the same ones tend to surface repeatedly, managers can reduce the time spent handling interruptions by using standard responses. Having them available also means that managers can delegate much of the job to less experienced personnel. Also, if you use the production principle of batching, that is, handling a group of similar chores at one time, 
Many interruptions that come from your subordinates can be accumulated and handled not randomly, but at staff and one-on-one -on -one meetings. If such meetings are held regularly, people can't protest too much if they're asked to batch questions and problems for scheduled times, instead of interrupting you whenever they want. The use of indicators, especially a bank of indicators kept over time, can also reduce the time managers spend dealing with interruptions. How fast they can answer a question depends on how fast they can put their fingers on the information they need for a response. By maintaining archives of information, managers don't have to do ad hoc research every time the phone rings. If the people who interrupt you knew how much they were disturbing you, they would probably police themselves more closely and cut down on the number of times they felt they had to talk to you right away. In any case, managers should try to force frequent interrupters to make an active decision about whether an issue can wait. So instead of going into hiding, managers can hang signs on their doors that say, I am doing individual work. Please don't interrupt me unless it really can't wait until 2 p.m. Then hold an open office hour and be completely receptive to anybody who wants to see you. The key is this. Understand that interrupters have legitimate problems that need to be handled. That's why they're bringing them to you. But you can channel the time needed to deal with them into organized, scheduled form by providing an alternative to interruption, a scheduled meeting or an office hour. The point is to impose a pattern on the way managers cope with problems. To make something regular that was once irregular is a fundamental production principle. And that's how you should try to handle the interruptions that plague you. Now that we've covered managerial leverage in detail, we can move on to the topic of meetings. I mentioned a few points about meetings earlier, but because they are such an important part of management as a team game, we should look more closely at the best ways to approach them. Meetings have a bad name. One school of management thought considers them the curse of the manager's existence. Someone who did a study found that managers spend up to 50% of their time in meetings and implied that this was time wasted. Peter Drucker once said that spending more than 25% of his time in meetings is a sign of a manager's malorganization. And William H. White, Jr., in his book, The Organization Man, described meetings as non-contributory labor that managers must endure. But there is another way to regard meetings. Earlier, I said that a big part of a middle manager's work is to supply information and know-how and to impart a sense of the preferred method of handling things to the groups under her control and influence. Managers also make and help to make decisions. Both kinds of basic managerial tasks can only occur during face-to-face -face encounters and therefore only during meetings. Thus, I assert that meetings are nothing less than the medium through which managerial work is performed. That means we should not be fighting their very existence, but rather using the time spent in them as efficiently as possible. The two basic managerial roles of sharing information and making decisions produce two basic kinds of meetings. In the first kind of meeting, called a process-oriented meeting, knowledge is shared and information is exchanged. Such meetings take place on a regularly scheduled basis. 
The purpose of the second kind of meeting is to solve a specific problem. Meetings of this sort, called mission-oriented, frequently produce a decision. They are ad hoc affairs, not scheduled long in advance because they usually can't be. Here's how to make the most of a process-oriented meeting. To start with, we should aim for regularity in this kind of meeting. The people attending should know how the meeting is run, what kinds of substantive matters are discussed, and what is to be accomplished. It should be designed to allow managers to batch transactions, to use the same production set of time and effort to take care of many similar managerial tasks. Moreover, given the regularity, you and the others attending can begin to forecast the time required for the kinds of work to be done. Then a production control system can take shape, which means that a scheduled meeting will have minimum impact on other things people are doing. At Intel, we use three kinds of process-oriented meetings. The one-on-one, -on -one, the staff meeting, and the operation review. A one-on-one -on -one at Intel is a meeting between a supervisor and a subordinate, and it is the principal way their business relationship is maintained. Its main purpose is mutual teaching and exchange of information. By talking about specific problems and situations, the supervisors teach the subordinates skills and know-how and suggest ways to approach things. At the same time, the subordinates provide the supervisors with detailed information about what they are doing and what they are concerned about. From what I can tell, regularly scheduled one-on-ones are highly unusual outside of Intel. When I ask a manager from another company about the practice, I usually get an, oh, no, I don't need scheduled meetings with my supervisor or my subordinate. I see him several times a day. But there is an enormous difference between a casual encounter between a supervisor and a subordinate, or even a meeting to resolve a specific problem, and a one-on-one. -on -one. When Intel was a young company, I realized that even though I was expected to supervise both engineering and manufacturing, I knew very little about the company's first product line, memory devices. I also didn't know much about manufacturing techniques, my background having been entirely in semiconductor device research. So, two of my associates, both of whom reported to me, agreed to give me private lessons on memory design and manufacturing. These took place by appointment and involved a teacher, who was also a subordinate of mine, preparing for each. During the session, the pupil, supervisor, me, busily took notes trying to learn. As Intel grew, the initial tone and spirit of such one-on-ones endured and grew. Who should have one-on-ones? In some situations, supervisors should perhaps meet with all those who work under them, from professionals to production operators. But here, I want to talk about one-on-ones between supervisors and each of the professionals who report to them directly. How often should you have one-on-ones? Or put another way, how do you decide how often somebody needs such a meeting? The answer is the job or task relevant maturity of each of your subordinates. In other words, how much experience do given subordinates have with the specific tasks at hand? This is not the same as the experience they have in general, or how old they are. As we'll see later, the most effective management style in a specific instance varies from very close to very loose supervision, 
as the subordinate's task maturity increases. Accordingly, you should have one-on-ones frequently, for example, once a week, with subordinates who are inexperienced in the specific situation, and less frequently, perhaps once every few weeks, with experienced veterans. Now, another consideration here is how quickly things change in a job area. In marketing, for example, the pace may be so rapid that supervisors need to have frequent one-on-ones to keep current on what's happening. But in a research environment, life may be quieter. And for a given level of task-relevant maturity, less frequent meetings may suffice. How long should one-on-one meetings last? There really is no answer to this, but the subordinates must feel that there is enough time to broach and get into thorny issues. Look at it this way. If you had a big problem that you wanted to kick around with your supervisor, the person whose professional interest in the matter is second only to yours, would you want to bring it up in a meeting scheduled to last only 15 minutes? You would not. I feel that a one-on-one should last an hour at a minimum. Anything less, in my experience, tends to make subordinates confine themselves to simple things that can be handled quickly. Now, where should a one-on-one meeting take place? In the supervisor's office? in the subordinate's office, or somewhere else. I think you should have the meetings in or near the subordinate's work area, if possible. A supervisor can learn a lot simply by going to the subordinate's office. Is he organized or not? Does he repeatedly have to spend time looking for documents he wants? Does he get interrupted all the time? Does he never get interrupted? And in general, how does he approach his work as a subordinate? A key point about one-on-one meetings. They should be regarded as the subordinates' meetings, with agendas and tones set by them. There's good reason for this. Somebody needs to prepare for the meeting. Supervisors with eight subordinates would have to prepare eight times. The subordinate only once. So, the subordinate should be asked to prepare an outline. This is very important because it forces him to think through in advance all of the issues and points he plans to raise. Moreover, with an outline, the supervisor knows at the outset what is to be covered. Outlines also provide a framework for supporting information, which the subordinate should prepare in advance. The subordinate should then walk the supervisor through all the material. What should be covered in a one-on-one meeting? We can start with performance figures. Indicators used by the subordinate, such as incoming order rates, production output, project status. Emphasis should be on indicators that signal trouble. The meeting should also cover anything important that has happened since the last meeting. Current hiring problems, people problems in general, organizational problems and future plans, and, very, very important, potential problems. Even if it's only an intuition that something's wrong, a subordinate owes it to his supervisor to tell him, because it triggers a look into the organizational black box. The most important criterion governing matters to be talked about is that they be issues that preoccupy and nag the subordinate. These are often obscure and take time to surface, consider, and resolve. What is the role of a supervisor in one-on-one meetings? He should facilitate the subordinate's expression of what's going on and what's bothering him. The supervisor is there to learn and to coach. Peter Drucker sums up the supervisor's job here very nicely, saying, 
the good time users among managers do not talk to their subordinates about the manager's problems, but they know how to make the subordinates talk about the subordinates' problems. How is this done? By applying Grove's principle of didactic management, which is, ask one more question. When a supervisor thinks a subordinate has said all that he wants to say about a subject, she should ask another question. She should try to keep the flow of thoughts coming by prompting a subordinate with queries until both feel satisfied that they have gotten to the bottom of a problem. I'd like to suggest some mechanical hints for effective one-on-one -on -one meetings. First, both the supervisor and the subordinate should have a copy of the outline, and both should take notes on it, which serves a number of purposes. I take notes in just about all circumstances, and most often end up never looking at them again. I do it to keep my mind from drifting, and also to help me digest the information I hear and see. Since I take notes in outline form, I am forced to categorize the information logically, which helps me to absorb it. Equally important is what writing it down symbolizes. Many issues in one-on-ones lead to action required on the part of a subordinate. When he takes notes immediately following the supervisor's suggestions, the act implies a commitment, like a handshake, that something will be done. The supervisor, also having taken notes, can then follow up at the next one-on-one. -on -one. A real time-saver is using a hold file, where both supervisors and subordinates accumulate important but not altogether urgent issues for discussion at the next meeting. This kind of file applies the production principle of batching and saves time for everyone involved by minimizing the need for ad hoc contact, like phone calls, drop-in visits, and so on which constitute the interruptions we considered earlier. Supervisors should also encourage the discussion of heart-to-heart -heart issues during one-on-ones, because this is the perfect forum for getting at subtle and deep work-related problems affecting subordinates. Are they satisfied with their own performances? Does some frustration or obstacle gnaw at them? Do they have doubts about where they are going? But supervisors should be wary of the zinger, which is a heart-to-heart -heart issue brought up at an awkward time. More often than not, these come near the end of a meeting. If you let that happen, your subordinate might tell you something like he's unhappy and has been looking outside for a job and give you only five minutes to deal with it. Long-distance telephone one-on-ones have become necessary because many organizations are now spread out geographically but these can work well enough with proper preparation and attention. Exchanging notes after the meeting is a way to make sure each knows what the other committed to. One-on-ones should be scheduled on a rolling basis, setting up the next one as the meeting taking place ends. Other commitments can thereby be taken into account and cancellations avoided. What is the leverage of the one-on-one? -on -one? Let's say you have a one-on-one -on -one with your subordinate every two weeks, and it lasts one and a half hours. Ninety minutes of your time can enhance the quality of your subordinate's work for two weeks, or for some eighty-plus hours, and also upgrade your understanding of what he's doing. Clearly, one-on-ones can exert enormous leverage. This happens through the development of a common base of information, 
and similar ways of doing and handling things between a supervisor and a subordinate. And this is the only way in which efficient and effective delegation can take place. At the same time, the subordinates teach the supervisors, and what is learned is absolutely essential if supervisors are to make good decisions. During a recent one-on-one -on -one meeting, my subordinate, who is responsible for Intel's sales organization, reviewed trend indicators of incoming orders. While I was vaguely familiar with them, he laid out a lot of specific information and convinced me that our business had stopped growing. Even though the summer is typically slow, he proved to me that what was going on was not just seasonal. After we pondered the data for a while and considered their relationship to other indicators of business activity in our industry, we came to the reluctant conclusion that business was, in fact, slowing down. This meant we should take a conservative approach to near-term investment. No small matter. After he shared his base of information with me, the two of us developed a congruent attitude, approach, and conclusion. Conservatism in our expansion plans. He left the meeting having decided to scale back growth in his own area of responsibility. I left having decided to share what we had concluded with the business groups I supervised. This one-on-one -on -one produced substantial leverage. The Intel sales manager affected all the other managers who reported to me. To digress a bit, I also think that one-on-ones at home can help family life. As the father of two teenage daughters, I have found that the conversation in such a time together is very different in tone and kind from what we say to each other in other circumstances. The one-on-one -on -one makes each of us take the other seriously and allows subtle and complicated matters to come up for discussion. Obviously, no notes are taken, as father and daughter usually go out for dinner at a restaurant, but a family one-on-one -on -one very much resembles a business one-on-one. -on -one. I strongly recommend both practices. Staff meetings are another kind of process-oriented meeting where knowledge is shared and information is exchanged. A staff meeting is one in which a supervisor and all of his or her subordinates participate. It presents an opportunity for interaction among peers. Now, peer interaction is not easy, yet it is key to good management. The approach to decision-making that I'll advocate later depends on a group of peers working well together by learning how this happens in staff meetings where a group of peers get to know each other and where the presence of a common supervisor helps peer interaction to develop Managers will be prepared to be members of other working bodies based on peer groups. Staff meetings also create opportunities for supervisors to learn from the exchange and confrontation that often develops. In my own case, I get a much better understanding of an issue with which I am not familiar by listening to two people with opposing views discuss it than I do by listening to one side only. My first experience with staff meetings dates back to my early professional years when I was the head of a small group of engineers doing semiconductor device research. Everyone in this group worked on an isolated aspect of a problem or on a different problem altogether. I was supposed to be the supervisor, but I found that others in the group were often more familiar with the work of another researcher than I was. So a group discussion on any subject tended to get more detailed and more heated but always more rewarding 
than an exchange between me and one other specialist. What should be discussed at a staff meeting? Anything that affects more than two of the people present. If the meeting degenerates into a conversation between two people working on a problem affecting only them, the supervisor should break it off and move on to something else that will include more of the staff while suggesting that the two continue their exchange later. How structured should the meeting be? A free-for-all brainstorming session or controlled with a detailed agenda? It should be mostly controlled with an agenda issued far enough in advance that the subordinates will have had the chance to prepare their thoughts for the meeting. But it should also include an open session, a designated period of time for the staff to bring up anything they want. This is when a varied set of housekeeping matters can be disposed of, as well as when important issues can be given a tentative first look. What is the role of the supervisor in the staff meeting? A leader? Observer? Expediter? Questioner? Decision-maker? The answer, of course, is all of them. Please note that lecturer is not listed. A supervisor should never use staff meetings to pontificate or lecture people. This is the surest way to undermine free discussion and the meeting's basic purpose. The supervisor's most important roles are being a meeting's moderator and facilitator and controller of its pace and thrust. Ideally, the supervisor should keep things on track with the subordinates bearing the brunt of working the issues. Staff meetings are an ideal medium for decision-making because the group of managers present has typically worked together for a long time. The formal as well as informal authority of each individual has been well established, and everybody knows who likes to spout off, who tends to daydream, and who knows what interesting stuff about the company. A staff meeting is like the dinner table conversation of a family. Operation reviews are the third kind of process-oriented meeting. They are a medium of interaction for people who don't otherwise have much opportunity to deal with one another. The format here should include formal presentations in which managers describe their work to other managers who are not their immediate supervisors and to peers in other parts of the company. The basic purpose of an operation review at Intel is to keep the teaching and learning going on between employees several organizational levels apart. This is important for both the junior and senior manager. The junior person will benefit from the comments, criticisms, and suggestions of the senior manager, who in turn will get a different feel for problems from people familiar with their details. Such meetings are also a source of motivation. Managers making the presentations will want to leave a good impression on their supervisor's supervisor and on their outside peers. Who are the players at an operation review? The organizing manager, the reviewing manager, the presenters, and the audience. Each of these players has a distinct role to play if the review is to be a useful one. Each review is organized by a supervisor of the presenting managers. These organizing managers should help the presenters decide what issues should be talked about and what should not, what should be emphasized, and what level of detail to go into. The organizing managers should also be in charge of housekeeping, the meeting rooms, visual materials, invitations, and so on. Finally, they should be the timekeepers, 
scheduling the presentations and keeping them moving along. They should pace the presenters using inconspicuous gestures so that the managers talking don't suddenly find themselves out of time with only half their points covered. The reviewing manager at each review is the senior supervisor at whom the review is aimed. Reviewing managers have a very important, although more subtle, role to play than the organizing managers. They should ask questions, make comments, and in general impart the appropriate spirit to the meeting. They are the catalysts needed to provoke audience participation, and by their example they should encourage free expression. They should never preview the material, since that will keep them from reacting spontaneously. Because the senior supervisors are role models for the junior managers present, they should take their roles at the review extremely seriously. The people presenting the reviews should use visual aids to the extent possible. People are endowed with eyes as well as ears, and the simultaneous use of both definitely helps the audience understand the points being made. But care must be taken, because all too frequently presenters get so obsessed with getting through all of their visual material that the message gets lost even while all the charts get flipped. As a rule of thumb, I would recommend four minutes of presentation and discussion time per visual aid, which could include tables, numbers, or graphics. The presenters must highlight whatever they want to emphasize with a color pen or pointer. Throughout, presenters have to watch their audiences like hawks. Facial expressions and body language, among other things, will tell them if the audience is getting the message, if they need to stop and go over something again, or if they are boring people and should speed up. The audience at an operation review also has a crucial part to play. One of the distinguishing marks of a good meeting is that the audience participates by asking questions and making comments. If you avoid the presenter's eyes, yawn, or read the newspaper, it's worse than not being there at all. Lack of interest undermines the confidence of the presenter. Remember that you are spending a big part of your working day at the review. Make that time as valuable for yourself and your organization as you can. Pay attention and jot down things you've heard that you might try. Ask questions if something is not clear to you, and speak up if you can't go along with an approach being recommended. And if a presenter makes a factual error, it is your responsibility to go on record. Remember, you are being paid to attend the meeting, which is not meant to be a siesta in the midst of an otherwise busy day. Regard attendance at the meeting for what it is. Work. This completes side five of high output management. So far, we've discussed the importance of process-oriented meetings. On the next side, our discussion will turn to the subject of the mission-oriented meetings. You'll also hear a discussion of what Andrew Grove considers to be the ideal decision-making model. Please fast-forward this cassette to the end, then turn it over to your side six.
Welcome to side six of Career Tracks High Output Management. In your job as a manager, you are called upon to make decisions which range from the profound to the trivial, from the complex to the very simple. On this side, you'll hear pertinent information on the decision-making process as we discuss Andrew Grove's ideal decision-making model. Here is side six. All the process-oriented meetings I've been discussing are regularly scheduled affairs held to exchange knowledge and information. The mission-oriented meeting, on the other hand, is usually held ad hoc, and it is designed to produce a specific output. Frequently, this output is a decision. The key to success here is what the chairman or chairperson or chair does. Very often, no one is officially given that title, but by whatever name, one person usually has more at stake in the outcome of the meeting than others. In fact, it is usually the chairpersons or the de facto chairman who call these meetings, and most of what they contribute should occur before it begins. All too often, they show up as if they were just ordinary attendees and hope that things will develop as they want. When mission-oriented meetings fail to accomplish the purpose for which they were called, the blame belongs to the chairpersons. Chairpersons must have a clear understanding of the meeting's objectives, what needs to happen, and what decisions have to be made. The absolute truth is that if you don't know what you want, you won't get it. So, before calling a meeting, ask yourself, what am I trying to accomplish? Then ask, is a meeting necessary, or desirable, or justifiable? Don't call a meeting if all the answers aren't yes. An estimate of the dollar cost of a manager's time, including overhead, is about $100 per hour. So a meeting involving 10 managers for two hours costs the company $2,000. Most expenditures of $2,000 have to be approved in advance by senior people, like buying a copying machine or making a transatlantic trip. Yet a manager can call a meeting and commit $2,000 worth of managerial resources at a whim. So, even if you're just an invited participant, you should ask yourself if the meeting and your attendance is desirable and justified. Tell the person who invited you if you don't feel it is. Determine the purpose of a meeting before committing your time and your company's resources. If a meeting makes no sense, get it called off early at a low-value-added stage. And find a less costly way, a one-on-one -on -one meeting, a telephone call, a note, to pursue the matter. Let's assume this mission-oriented meeting has to be held, and you are the chairperson. What are your obligations? The first one has to do with attendance. As the chairperson, you must identify who should attend, and then try to get those people to come. It is not enough to ask people and hope for the best. You need to follow up and get commitments. If someone invited can't make it, see to it that he or she sends a representative. Keep in mind that a meeting called to make a specific decision is hard to keep moving if more than six or seven people attend. Eight people should be the absolute cutoff. Decision-making is not a spectator sport, because onlookers get in the way of what needs to be done. As chairperson, you are also responsible for maintaining discipline. It is criminal to allow people to be late and waste everyone's time. Remember, wasting time here really means that you are wasting the company's money. 
with the meter ticking away at the rate of about $100 per hour per person. Do not worry about confronting the late arriver. Just as you would not permit a fellow employee to steal a piece of office equipment worth $2,000, you shouldn't let anyone walk away with the time of your fellow managers. Finally, as chairperson, you're responsible for logistical matters. You should, for example, make sure that all necessary and audiovisual equipment is present in the meeting room. You should also send out an agenda that clearly states the purpose of the meeting, as well as what role everybody there is expected to play to get the desired output. This may sound like too much regimentation for you, but whether it's that or needed discipline depends on your point of view. If a chairperson forces you to show up at a meeting prepared and on time, you might consider that person a drill sergeant. But if you show up on time, ready to work, and someone else doesn't and isn't, you'll probably be unhappy with the person responsible for wasting your time. Once the meeting is over, you, the chairperson, must nail down exactly what happened by sending out minutes that summarize the discussion that occurred, the decision made, and the actions to be taken. And it's very important that attendees get the minutes quickly, before they forget what happened. The minutes should also be as clear and as specific as possible, telling the reader what is to be done, who is to do it, and when. All this may seem like too much trouble, but if the meeting was worth calling in the first place, the work needed to produce the minutes is a small additional investment, an activity with high leverage, to ensure that you get the full benefit from what was done. Ideally, managers should never have to call ad hoc mission-oriented meetings, because if all runs smoothly, everything is taken care of in regularly scheduled, process-oriented meetings. In practice, however, if all goes well, routine meetings will take care of maybe 80% of the problems and issues. The remaining 20% will still have to be dealt with in mission-oriented meetings. Remember, Peter Drucker said that if people spend more than 25% of their time in meetings, it is a sign of malorganization. I would put it another way. The real sign of malorganization is when people spend more than 25% of their time in ad hoc mission-oriented meetings. In addition to knowing how to exert managerial leverage and hold productive meetings, managers must be able to participate fully in the decision-making process. Decisions range from the profound to the trivial, from the complex to the very simple. Should we buy a building or should we lease it? Should we hire this person or that one? Should we give someone a 7% or a 12% raise? Can we appeal this case on the basis of Regulation 939 of the Internal Revenue Code? Should we serve free drinks at our departmental Christmas party? In traditional industries, where the management chain of command was precisely defined, a person making a certain kind of decision was a person occupying a particular position in the organization chart. Authority went with responsibility. However, in businesses that mostly deal with information and know-how, managers have to cope with a new phenomenon. Here, a divergence rapidly develops between power based on position and power based on knowledge. For example, when someone graduates from college with a technical education, at that time and for the next several years, that young person will be fully up to date in the technology of the time, and he'll possess a good deal of knowledge-based power in the organization that hired him. If he does well, he will be promoted to higher and higher positions, and as the years pass, his position power will grow, 
but his intimate familiarity with current technology will fade. He is not now the technical expert he was when he joined the company. At Intel, anyway, we managers get a little more obsolete every day. So a business like ours has to employ a decision-making process unlike those used in more conventional industries. If Intel used people holding old-fashioned position power to make all its decisions, decisions would be made by people unfamiliar with the technology of the day. The key to success for us is the middle manager, who not only is a link in the chain of command, but also can see to it that the holders of the two types of power mesh smoothly. Here's my ideal decision-making model, which describes how I think decision-making should work in a know-how business. The first stage should be free discussion, in which all points of view and all aspects of an issue are openly welcomed and debated. The greater the disagreement and controversy, the more important becomes the word free. This sounds obvious, but it's not often the practice. Usually when a meeting gets heated, most participants hang back, trying to sense the direction of things, saying nothing until they see what view is likely to prevail. Then they throw their support behind that view to avoid being associated with a losing position. Bizarre as it may seem, some organizations actually encourage such behavior. In a news report about the woes of a certain American automobile company, an employee of the company is quoted as saying, In the meeting in which I was informed that I was released, I was told, Bill, in general, people who do well in this company wait until they hear their superiors express their view and then contribute something in support of that view. This is a terrible way to manage. All it produces is bad decisions, because if knowledgeable people withhold opinions, whatever is decided will be based on information and insight less complete than it could have been otherwise. That's free discussion, the first stage. The next stage is reaching a clear decision. Again, the greater the disagreement about the issue, the more important becomes the word clear. In fact, particular pains should be taken to frame the terms of the decision with utter clarity. Again, our tendency is to do just the opposite. When we know a decision is controversial, we want to obscure matters to avoid an argument. But the argument is not avoided. It is merely postponed. People who don't like a decision will be a lot madder if they don't get a prompt and straight story about it. So much for clear decision, the second stage in our three-stage setup. Finally, everyone involved must give the decision reached by the group full support. This does not necessarily mean agreement. So long as the participants commit to back the decision, that is a satisfactory outcome. No matter how much time we may spend trying to forge agreement, we just won't be able to get it on many issues. But an organization does not live by its members agreeing with one another at all times about everything. It lives instead by people committing to support the decisions and the moves of the business. All managers can expect is that the commitment to support is honestly present. And this is something they can and must get from everyone. This ideal decision-making model seems an easy one to follow. Yet I have found that it comes easily to only two classes of professional employees. Senior managers who have been in the company for a long time, who feel at home with the way things are done, and who identify with the values of the organization. And the new graduates that we hire, 
because they used the model as students doing college work. For middle managers, the decision-making model is easier to accept intellectually than it is to practice. Why? Because they often have trouble expressing their views forcefully, a hard time making unpleasant or difficult decisions, and an even harder time with the idea that they are expected to support a decision with which they don't agree. Still, the logic of this ideal model will eventually win everyone over. Another desirable and important feature of the model is that any decision should be worked out and reached at the lowest competent level. It should be made by people who are closest to the situation and know the most about it. And by know, I don't just mean understand technically. That kind of understanding must be tempered with judgment. And judgment is developed through experience and learning from the many errors one has made in one's career. Thus, ideally, decision-making should occur in the middle ground, between reliance on technical knowledge on the one hand, and reliance on the bruises one has received from having tried to implement and apply such knowledge on the other. If you can't find people with both qualities, you should aim to get the best possible mix of participants available. For experience, we at Intel are likely to ask a person in management senior to the other members of the group to come to the meeting. But it is very important that everybody there voice opinions and beliefs as equals throughout the free discussion stage, forgetting or ignoring status differences. A journalist, puzzled by our management style, once asked me, Mr. Grove, isn't your company's emphasis on visible signs of egalitarianism, such as informal dress, partitions instead of offices, and the absence of other obvious perks like reserved parking spaces, just so much affectation? My answer was that this is not affectation, but a matter of survival. In our business, we have to mix knowledge power people with position power people daily. And together, they make decisions that could affect us for years to come. If we don't link our engineers with our managers in such a way as to get good decisions, we can't succeed in our industry. Now, status symbols most certainly do not promote the flow of ideas, facts, and points of view. What appears to be a matter of style really is a matter of necessity. I mentioned that it's difficult for middle managers to practice this model. It can also be hard to implement because anybody who makes a business decision also possesses emotions such as pride, ambition, fear, and insecurity. The most common problem is something we call the peer group syndrome. A number of years ago at Intel's very first management training session, we tried some role-playing to show people what can occur when a group of peers meets to solve a problem or make a decision. We sat the people around a table to tackle what was then a live issue for them in their real jobs. Everyone was an organizational equal. The chairperson of the meeting was one level higher, but was purposely sent out of the room so he couldn't hear what was to happen. Observers in the audience couldn't believe their eyes and ears as the mock meeting proceeded. The managers working on the problem did nothing but go around in circles for some 15 minutes, and none of them noticed they weren't getting anywhere. When the chairperson was brought back in, he sat down and listened for a while and couldn't believe things either. We watched him lean forward as if he were trying to glean more from the conversation. We then saw a black cloud form over his head. Finally, he slapped the table and exclaimed, What's going on here? You people are talking in circles and getting nowhere.
After the chairperson intervened, the problem was resolved in very short order. We named this the Peer Plus One approach, and we have used it since then to aid decision-making where we must. Peers tend to look for a more senior manager, even if that manager is not the most competent or knowledgeable person involved, to take over and shape a meeting. Why? Because most people are afraid to stick their necks out. John, an Intel software engineer, says, One of the reasons why people are reluctant to come out with an opinion in the presence of their peers is the fear of going against the group by stating an opinion that is different from that of the group. Consequently, the group as a whole wanders around for a while, feeling each other out, waiting for a consensus to develop before anyone risks taking a position. If and when a group consensus emerges, one of the members will state it as a group opinion. I think our position seems to be not as a personal position. After a weak statement of the group position, if the rest of the mob buys in, the position becomes more solid and is restated more forcefully. Note the difference between the situation described earlier by the auto executive and the one John describes. In the former instance, the people were expected to wait for their supervisor to state his opinion first. In the latter, members of the group were waiting for a consensus to develop. The dynamics are different, but the bottom line in both is that people didn't really speak their minds freely. That certainly makes it harder for managers to make the right decisions. You can overcome the peer group syndrome if each of the members has self-confidence, which stems in part from being familiar with the issue under consideration and from experience. But in the end, self-confidence mostly comes from a gut-level realization that nobody has ever died from making a wrong business decision or taking inappropriate action or being overruled. And everyone in your operation should be made to understand this. If the peer group syndrome manifests itself and the meeting has no formal chairperson, the person who has the most at stake should take charge. If that doesn't work, one can always ask the senior person present to assume control. One thing that paralyzes both knowledge and position power possessors is the fear of simply sounding dumb. So the senior person may not ask the questions that should be asked, and the same fear will make other participants think their thoughts privately rather than say them out loud for all to hear. At best, they will whisper what they have to say to a neighbor. As a manager, you should remind yourself that each time an insight or fact is withheld and an appropriate question is suppressed, the decision-making process is less good than it might have been. A related phenomenon influences lower-level people present in the meeting. This group, the lower-level group, has to overcome the fear of being overruled, which might mean embarrassment. This, even more than fear of sanctions or even of the loss of job, makes junior people hang back and let the more senior people set the likely direction of decision-making. But some issues are so complex that those called on to make a decision honestly aren't really sure how they feel. When knowledge power and position power are separated, the sense of uncertainty can become especially acute because the knowledge people are often not comfortable with the purely business-related factors that might influence a decision. What is often heard is, we don't know what the company wants of us. Similarly, 
managers holding position power don't know what to do because they realize they don't know enough about the technical details to arrive at the correct decision. We must strive not to be done in by such obstacles. We are all human beings, endowed with intelligence and blessed with willpower. Both can be drawn upon to help us overcome our fear of sounding dumb or of being overruled, and lead us to initiate discussion and come out front with a stand. Sometimes no amount of discussion will produce a consensus, yet the time for a decision has clearly arrived. When this happens, the senior person, or peer plus one, who until now has guided, coached, and prodded the group along, has no choice but to make a decision personally. If the decision-making process has proceeded correctly up to this point, the senior manager will be making the decision, having had the full benefit of free discussion, where all points of view, facts, opinions, and judgments were aired. This is often not easy. We Americans tend to be reluctant to exercise position power deliberately and explicitly. It is just not nice to give orders. Such reluctance on the part of the senior manager can prolong the first phase of the decision-making process, the time of free discussion, past the optimum point, and the decision will be put off. If you either enter the decision-making stage too early or wait too long, you won't derive the full benefit of open discussion. The criterion to follow is this. Don't push for a decision prematurely. Make sure you have heard and considered the real issues rather than the superficial comments that often dominate the early part of a meeting. But if you feel that you have already heard everything, that all sides of the issue have been raised, it is time to push for a consensus, and failing that, to step in and make a decision. Like other things managers do, decision-making has an output associated with it, which in this case is the decision itself. Like other managerial processes, decision-making is likelier to generate high-quality output in a timely fashion if we say clearly at the outset that we expect exactly that. In other words, one of the manager's key tasks is to settle six important questions in advance. These questions are, what decision needs to be made? When does it have to be made? Who will decide? Who will need to be consulted prior to making the decision? Who will ratify or veto the decision? Who will need to be informed of the decision? Let me illustrate how these six questions came into play in a recent decision I was involved in. Intel had already decided to expand its Philippine manufacturing plant, roughly doubling its capacity. The next question was where? Only limited space was available next to the existing plant, but other things being equal, building there was the most desirable thing to do because overhead and communications could be shared, transportation costs between the two plants would amount to virtually nothing, and our employees could be transferred from one plant to the other very easily. The alternative consisted of buying a less expensive plot of land quite some distance away. The land would be not only cheaper, but more plentiful, which would allow us to build a relatively inexpensive one- or two-story building. Buying the lot near the existing plant meant that we would have had to build a high-rise to get the amount of floor space we needed, and a high-rise semiconductor manufacturing plant would not be the most efficient. That made us hesitate. But it would be nice to have a second building next to the one we already own. 
Back and forth went the discussion. Let's apply our six questions here. It was clear what decision needed to be made. We either build a multi-story building next to our existing plant, or we build a one- or two-story building at a new outlying location. As for the question, when? According to our long-range plans, we needed the new plant in two to two-and-a-half years. After we applied time offsets, we found that we had to make a decision within a month. This answered the when. Who will decide? Our facilities, construction people, or the Intel group that manages the manufacturing plants? The answer wasn't easy. The facilities construction people were sensitive to matters pertaining to the costs and difficulties of construction and would probably lean toward the new location. The plant management group, knowing that operational benefits would come from having the two plants side by side, would probably opt for the high-rise. So the decision-making body was composed of our construction manager for our Far East locations, his supervisor, the construction manager for the corporation, the manager of the Far East Manufacturing Plant Network, and his supervisor, the senior manufacturing manager. The meeting gave us parallel levels of managers from the two organizations. The sensitivities of two interest groups coming to bear on a single decision is quite common in real corporate life. In such meetings, it is important to give to the two sides roughly equal representation, because only from such balance will an even-handed decision emerge. All of these individuals have consulted their staffs prior to the decision and gathered all relevant knowledge and views on the subject. Who will ratify or veto the decision? The first common person to whom the senior managers of both organizations reported was myself. Also, this was a big enough deal that the president of the company should be involved. Moreover, I was somewhat familiar with the locations in the Philippines and how a plant like the one we have there operates. So I was chosen as the person to veto or ratify the decision of the meeting. Who will need to be informed of the decision? I chose Gordon Moore, our chairman of the board. He's not directly involved with manufacturing plants like the one contemplated, but we don't build a new one in the Far East every day, so he should know about what happened. This is how the decision was made. After studying maps, construction plans, and costs, land costs, and traffic patterns, and considering several times everything we thought was important, the group decided to build next to our existing plant but to accept only as much manufacturing area as four stories would yield. The cost would have escalated had we exceeded that. This, with all relevant background, was presented to me at a mission-oriented meeting. I listened to the presentation of the alternatives the group considered and of the reasons why they preferred their choice to these, and after asking a series of questions and probing both the group's information and its thinking process, I ratified the decision. Subsequently, I informed Gordon more of the outcome, and as you are hearing this, the plant is either under construction or already operating. Employing consistent ways to make decisions has value beyond simply expediting the decision-making itself. People invest a great deal of energy and emotion in coming up with a decision. Then somebody who has an important say-so or the right to veto it may come across the decision later. If he does veto it, he can be regarded as a Johnny-come-lately who upsets the decision-making apple cart. This, of course, will frustrate and demoralize the people who may have been working on it for a long time. If the veto comes as a surprise, 
however legitimate it may have been on its merits, an impression of political maneuvering is inevitably created. Politics and manipulation, or even their appearance, should be avoided at all costs. And I can think of no better way to make the decision-making process straightforward than to apply before the fact the structure imposed by our six questions. One last thing. If your final word has to be dramatically different from the expectations of the people who participated in the decision-making process, make your announcement, but don't just walk away from the issue. People need time to adjust, rationalize, and in general put their heads back together. Adjourn, reconvene the meeting after people have had a chance to recover, and solicit their views of the decision at that time. This will help everybody accept and learn to live with the unexpected. If good decision-making appears complicated, that's because it is and has been for a long time. Let me quote from Alfred Sloan, the General Motors president who spent a lifetime preoccupied with decision-making. Alfred Sloan said this, Group decisions do not always come easily. There is a strong temptation for the leading officers to make decisions themselves without the sometimes onerous process of discussion. Because the process is indeed onerous or burdensome, people sometimes try to run away from it. A middle manager I once knew came to us straight from one of the better business schools and possessed what we might call a John Wayne mentality. Having become frustrated with the way Intel made decisions, he quit. He joined a company where his employers assured him, during the interview, that people were encouraged to make individual decisions which they were then free to implement. Four months later, he rationalize and in general put their heads back together. Adjourn, reconvene the meeting after people have had a chance to recover, and solicit their views of the decision at that time. This will help everybody accept and learn to live with the unexpected. If good decision-making appears complicated, that's because it is and has been for a long time. Let me quote from Alfred Sloan, the General Motors president who spent a lifetime preoccupied with decision-making. Alfred Sloan said this, Group decisions do not always come easily. There is a strong temptation for the leading officers to make decisions themselves without the sometimes onerous process of discussion. Because the process is indeed onerous or burdensome, people sometimes try to run away from it. A middle manager I once knew came to us straight from one of the better business schools and possessed what we might call a John Wayne mentality. Having become frustrated with the way Intel made decisions, he quit. He joined a company where his employers assured him, during the interview, that people were encouraged to make individual decisions which they were then free to implement. Four months later, he came back to Intel. He explained that while he could make decisions without consulting anybody, so could everybody else. <laughs> This completes Side 6 of High Output Management by Andrew S. Grove. Even after you learn to leverage your activities to get high output and become an expert in handling meetings and decision-making, you still have one other key ability to master, and that key ability is planning. 
You'll hear important information on this subject as we continue on the next side. Please load the next cassette and continue. This is Side 7 of High Output Management by Andrew Grove. An important managerial role is planning, and this involves answering three important questions. What will the environment demand from you? Where will your business be if you do nothing different from what you are now doing? And what more or less do you need to do to produce what your environment will demand? You'll hear specific answers to these questions and more as we continue. Here is Side 7. Even after managers learn to leverage their activities to get high output and become expert in handling meetings and decision-making, they still have one other key ability to master. That key ability is planning. Now, most people think planning is one of the loftier responsibilities of management. We all learn somewhere that a manager plans, organizes, controls. In fact, planning is an ordinary, everyday activity. For instance, as you're driving to work in the morning, you are likely to decide whether or not you need gasoline. You look at the gauge to see how much gas you have in the tank. You estimate how far it is you need to go and you then make a rough guess as to how much gas you need to get to and from your office. By comparing in your mind the gas you need 
with the gas you have, you decide whether you should stop for gas or not. This is a simple example of planning. The dynamics of planning can best be understood by going back to our basic production principles. As we learned earlier, the key method of controlling the future output of a factory is through forecasting demand and building to forecast. How one plans at the factory can then be summarized as follows. Step 1. Determine the market demand for product. Step 2. Establish what the factory will produce if no adjustment is made. And step 3. Reconcile the projected factory output with the projected market demand by adjusting the production schedule. Your general planning process should be similar. Step 1 is to establish projected need or demand. What will the environment demand from you, your business, or your organization? Step 2 is to establish your present status. What are you producing now? What will you be producing as your projects in the pipeline are completed? Put another way, where will your business be if you do nothing different from what you are now doing? Step three is to compare and reconcile steps one and two. Namely, what more or less do you need to do to produce what your environment will demand? Let's consider each step in more detail, starting with step one, environmental demand. Just what is your environment? If you look at your own group within your organization as if it were a standalone company, you see that your environment is made up of other such groups that directly influence what you do. For example, if you were the manager of the company's mail room, your environment would consist of customers who need your services, that would be everyone else in the company, vendors who are able to provide you with certain capabilities in the form of such things as postage meters and mail carts, and finally, your environment would include your competitors. Of course, you don't have competitors internally, but you can compare your service to one like United Parcel as a way to judge performance and set standards. What should you look for when you examine your environment? You should attempt to determine your customers' expectations and their perception of your performance. You should keep abreast of technological developments like electronic mail and other alternative ways of doing your job. You should evaluate the performance of your vendors. You should also evaluate the performance of other groups in the organization to which you belong. Does some other group, like the traffic department, affect how well you can do your work? Can that group meet your needs? Once you have established what constitutes your environment, you need to examine it in two time frames. Now and sometime in the future, let's say in a year. The questions then become, what do my customers want from me now? Am I satisfying them? What will they expect from me one year from now? You need to focus on the difference between what your environment demands from you now and what you expect it to demand from you a year from now. Doing a difference analysis is crucial, because if your current activities satisfy the current demands placed on your business, anything more and new that you do should be done specifically to make up for this difference. How you react to this difference is, in fact, the key outcome of the planning process. Should you, at this stage, consider what practical steps you can actually take to handle matters? No, that will just confuse the issue. 
What would happen to a factory, for instance, if the marketing organization adjusted its demand forecast on the basis of its own assessment of the manufacturing unit's ability to deliver? If marketing knew they could sell 100 widgets per month, but thought that manufacturing could only deliver 10, and so submitted a demand forecast of 10 units, manufacturing would never tool up to satisfy the real demand. The second step of planning is to determine your present status. You do this by listing your present capabilities and the projects you have in the works. As you account for them, be sure to use the same terms or currency in which you stated demand. For instance, if your demand is listed in terms of completed product designs, your work in process should be listed as partially completed product designs. You also need to look at timing. You must ask yourself, will every project now moving through be completed? Chances are, no. Some will get scrapped, and you have to factor this into your forecasted output. The final step of planning consists of undertaking new tasks or modifying old ones to close the gap between your environmental demand and what your present activities will yield. The first question is, what do you need to do to close the gap? The second is, what can you do to close the gap? Consider each question separately, and then decide what you actually will do. Evaluate what effect your actions will have on narrowing the gap, and when they will have an effect. The set of actions you decide upon is your strategy. Much confusion exists between what is strategy and what is tactics. Although the distinction is rarely of practical significance, here's one that might be useful. As you formulate in words what you plan to do, the most abstract and general summary of those actions meaningful to you is your strategy. What you'll do to implement the strategy is your tactics. Frequently, a strategy at one managerial level is the tactical concern at the next higher level. Here are a couple of examples of the way managers at Intel have gone about their planning responsibilities. As he defined his present environment and status, Bruce, an Intel marketing manager, found that he had only three people in his department who could possibly handle a huge inventory of projects. As he looked at his desired future status, he concluded that every single one of the projects had to be completed. Not finishing everything would result in significant extra cost and far more effort later. Bruce was faced with a genuine dilemma, especially since the budget kept him from hiring more people. He realized that the best he could do was to narrow the gap a bit, getting the projects and his group's capacity to complete them to converge. A complete match was impossible. Bruce decided to move as many non-critical tasks as possible to other groups in the company, groups less qualified for them than his own, but also less busy. He also made arrangements with his manager to bring a summer student on board to help with some easily definable tasks. Then he set himself up to monitor the performance of his group tightly. He also proceeded to look at other avenues that could help him in the longer term, such as splitting the job of completing some of the work with other similar marketing groups in the company and eliminating any duplication of effort between them. Finally, Bruce initiated a request to increase the size of his organization. His plan, and the obvious reality that full convergence between his tasks and his capabilities was not possible even after going the extra mile, would lay the basis for his request. 
My second example involves Cindy, the middle manager and manufacturing process engineer whom we've met before. Cindy is responsible for maintaining and improving the process by which complex microchips are produced in a plant. She defines her environment as a collection of objects and influences. The objects are new processes and manufacturing tools that have not yet been tested in production. The influences are the people who can affect her work directly or indirectly. Development engineers, for example, would like her to require less experimentation and documentation before she chooses to implement new processes they have developed. Meanwhile, production engineers would like her to provide more experimentation and documentation on these same new processes. And finally, there are the product engineers eager to get chips out the door who need her help to do that, along with other members of the production team who put pressure on her to ensure that the new processes are manufacturable and the new manufacturing tools work as soon as they are put to use. Cindy herself works like a consultant, advising each group, influencing her, about whether something can go into production. She is the chief coordinator for the set of events required to put a product, a process, or a tool on stream. Her customer is the production area itself, and her vendors are the engineering groups from production, development, and product engineering. Analyzing her present status, Cindy found that the data and experimentation she needed from the development group always came in incomplete. Looking into matters further, she found that providing complete data and adhering to schedules were not really high on the development engineer's set of priorities. Determining where she needed to go, it was clear to Cindy that she must have all future new processes and production machinery tested, debugged, demonstrated, and most important, accompanied by the necessary data for them to be accepted and used by the production engineers, who had become more demanding because of past problems. Cindy then defined her strategy, her plan of action, to get there. She specified exactly what steps had to be completed before any new process was to be implemented or tool deployed. Then she used time offsets, as we did when we organized our breakfast factory, to determine when each step needed to be done in order for her entire plan to be completed on time. Next, she got the manager of the development engineers to agree to her detailed schedule. She negotiated with him what she had to do and what they had to do, and by what date, in order to meet what became the mutually agreed-upon goals. Finally, to ensure that she stayed on track, she decided to monitor all of her engineering group vendors on a weekly basis. She would also publish their performance against the schedule to motivate them to meet key dates. This comparison also served as an indicator to tell her about potential problems. It was a window into the black box of the production process she had set up. The key to both Bruce's and Cindy's efforts is that their planning produced tasks that had to be performed now in order to affect future events. I have seen far too many people who, upon recognizing today's gap, try very hard to determine what decision has to be made to close it. But today's gap represents a failure of planning sometime in the past. By analogy, forcing ourselves to concentrate on the decisions needed to fix today's problem is like scurrying after our car has already run out of gas. Clearly, we should have filled up earlier. To avoid such a fate, remember that as you plan... You must answer the question, 
What do I have to do today to solve, or better, avoid, tomorrow's problem? The true output of the planning process is the set of tasks it causes to be implemented. The output of Intel's annual plan, for instance, is the actions taken and changes prompted as a result of a thinking process that took place throughout the organization in order to write the plan. I, for one, hardly ever look at the bound volume finally called the annual plan. In other words, the output of the planning process is the decisions made and the actions taken as a result of the process. How far ahead should the planners look? At Intel, we put ourselves through an annual strategic long-range planning effort in which we examine our future five years off. But what is really being influenced here? It is the next year, and only the next year. We will have another chance to replan the second of the five years in the next year's long-range planning meeting, when that year will become the first year of the five. So keep in mind that you implement only that portion of a plan that lies within the time window between now and the next time you go through the exercise. Everything else you can look at again. We should also be careful not to plan too frequently, allowing ourselves time to judge the impact of the decisions we made. Who should be involved in the planning process? The operating management of the organization. Why? Because the idea that planners can be people apart from those implementing the plan simply does not work. Finally, remember that by saying yes to projects or a course of action, you are implicitly saying no to something else. Each time you make a commitment, you forfeit your chance to commit to something else. People who plan have to have the guts, honesty, and discipline to drop projects as well as to initiate them, to shake their heads no, as well as to smile yes. Up to now, I've been talking mostly about long-term planning, but managers also have to apply the planning process to their daily work. This is where the idea of management by objectives comes in handy. The system of management by objectives assumes that because our concerns here are short-range, we should know quite well what our environment demands from us. So, Management by Objectives, or MBO, concentrates on steps two and three of the planning process. Those steps are determining your present status and closing the gap. An MBO tries very hard to make those steps specific. The idea behind MBO is extremely simple. If you don't know where you are going, you will not get there. A successful MBO system needs only to answer two questions. The first is, where do I want to go? The answer to this provides the objective. And the second question is, how will I pace myself to see if I am getting there? The answer to this gives us milestones or key results. To illustrate an objective and a key result, consider the following. I want to go to the airport to catch a plane in an hour. That is my objective. I know that I must drive through towns A, B, and C on my way there. My key results become reaching A, B, and C in 10, 20, and 30 minutes, respectively. If I have been driving for 20 minutes and haven't yet made town A, I know I'm lost. Unless I get off the highway and ask someone for directions, I probably won't make my flight. MBO is largely designed to provide feedback relevant to the specific task at hand. 
It should tell us how we are doing so we can make adjustments in whatever we are doing if need be, such as getting off the highway and asking for directions. For the feedback to be effective, it must be received very soon after the activity it is measuring occurs. If we plan on a yearly basis, the corresponding MBO system's time frame should be at least as often as quarterly or perhaps even monthly. The one thing an MBO system should provide par excellence is focus. This can only happen if we keep the number of objectives small. In practice, this is rare, and here as elsewhere, we fall victim to our inability to say no. We must realize and act on the realization that if we try to focus on everything, we focus on nothing. To familiarize ourselves with the MBO system, let's look at a case history. It's Columbus's discovery of the New World, though how I tell the story takes considerable liberties with the grammar school version. Thanks to its annual planning process of 1491, the government of Spain concluded that it could not continue a war everybody felt was utterly necessary unless money became available to buy weapons and ammunition. Since pushing the Moors out of Spain was the supreme goal of Queen Isabella's government, the Queen needed the funds to do it. Isabella decided she would get money by dramatically improving Spain's foreign trade balance. She then talked to her subordinate, Christopher Columbus, and told him about her objective. Columbus agreed to think about various ways to do what she wanted, and after a time went back to her with several suggestions, which included finding pirate-free passage to England, and perhaps finding a new route to the Orient. Isabella and Columbus discussed the entire matter freely, eventually reaching a clear decision that he would look for a new route to the east. Once the decision was made, Columbus began to think of all the things that he would need to do to accomplish his intent. In MBO terms, the queen defined her own objective, which was to increase Spain's wealth. Columbus and the queen then agreed upon his objective, which was to find a new route to the Orient. Columbus then went on to formulate the key results by which he would pace himself, which included obtaining several ships, training crews, conducting a shakedown cruise, setting sail, and so forth, with each possessing a specific deadline. The relationship between Isabella's and Columbus's objectives is clear. The queen wanted to increase her nation's wealth, while Columbus wanted to find a safe trade route to the Orient. And we see a nesting hierarchy of objectives. If the subordinates' objectives are met, the supervisors will be as well. Now, the key results can come in like clockwork, but the objectives can still be missed. For Columbus, the key results were relatively easy to achieve, but he most certainly did not find a new trade route to China, and therefore failed to meet his objective. Did Columbus perform well even though he failed by strict MBO terms? He did discover the new world, and that was a source of incalculable wealth for Spain. So it is entirely possible for a subordinate to perform well and be rated well, even though he missed his specific objective. The MBO system is meant to pace people, to put stopwatches in their hand so they can gauge their own performances. It is not a legal document upon which to base performance reviews, but should be just one input used to determine how well individuals are doing. If supervisors mechanically rely on the MBO system to evaluate their subordinates' performance, 
or if the subordinates use it rigidly and forego taking advantage of emerging opportunities because they aren't specified objectives or key results, then both are behaving in a petty and unprofessional fashion. Let's illustrate the workings of the MBO system using the decision about Intel's plant expansion in the Philippines that I described earlier. The Far East construction manager had an objective that read, Obtain decision on Philippine plant expansion. The key results supporting the objective were, Do a study of land availability near the present plant and at other acceptable locations by June. Do financial analyses showing the trade-offs between land costs and construction costs, as well as the operating costs associated with the two locations. Present the results to the plant location steering group and obtain a decision from them. And have Grove ratify the decision by October. Each key result was accomplished and the objective was met. Note that the objective is relatively short-range, and the key results are so specific that a person knows without question whether he has completed them and done it on time or not. As you might have guessed, the Far East construction manager's supervisor had an objective that read, Ensure that all plant expansion projects stay on schedule. To support this objective, he in turn had a key result, much like his subordinate's objective, that said, Obtain Philippine plant expansion decision by October. You can now see, I hope, the parallels between how Queen Isabella's government and Intel work. Managers' objectives are supported by appropriate key results. These objectives, in turn, are tied to the manager's supervisor's objectives. If the managers meet their objectives, the supervisor's objectives will also be met. But the management by objective system cannot be run mechanically by a computer. It requires your judgment and your common sense. The leverage tactics and the decision-making and planning processes that I've shown you all depend on your being an active participant in a team. But as a manager, you probably belong to more than one team in your company. And you are also responsible for making sure your team works productively with other teams. So at this point, let's go back to the example of the breakfast factory and see what it can show us about the roles managers have to fill as part of the total organization. We left the breakfast factory as it was enjoying great success. Like good entrepreneurs, we knew we had a good thing going, and we started another branch of the breakfast factory across town. This, too, became a remarkable success. Neighborhood Gourmet, a magazine with a large national circulation, ran a story on our operation. We decided to seize the opportunity and franchise the breakfast factory nationwide. We rapidly moved into neighborhoods with the right demographic mix for our breakfasts, and we were soon enough running a vast network of breakfast factories. Before long, we found, however, that the network required a set of tasks and skills very different from those needed to run our one restaurant. The most important of these was to figure out how to use the advantages made possible by having a local entrepreneur set up and run each franchise without losing the enormous economies of scale that became available to us. Because the local managers know their neighborhoods, they can adapt their operations to them and, we hope, operate the most profitable franchises possible. At the same time, with over a hundred breakfast factories, our purchasing power is immense. If we centralize certain activities, we are in a position to do many things much better and much less expensively 
than each of our franchises could do individually. And most important, because the quality of our breakfasts has played a major role in our success so far, we have to be very concerned about maintaining a perception of first-rate food and service. In other words, we can't permit any breakfast factory branch to jeopardize the real secret of our business. In fact, the centralization-decentralization dichotomy has become one of the most important themes in the management of our network. Do we, for instance, want to advertise locally or nationally? Do we want to give local managers the control over advertising in their communities? We don't know who reads the Daily Blatt, and they probably do. Do we want to give them the right to hire and fire personnel? Should we let them set their wage scale, or do we want to impose one nationally? Imposing a wage scale hardly makes sense, since labor market conditions vary considerably from region to region. But we do want to buy our sophisticated automatic machinery centrally. After all, it has taken us a long time to develop suitable vendors and the capacity to test the incoming machines. We now have a sizable group of people doing only that in Chicago, and we hardly want each branch or even each region to duplicate the effort. But I don't think we should buy all our eggs in Chicago. We want them to be fresh, and we don't want to truck this delicate commodity all over the country. Neither do we want to have each branch set up its own egg inspection operation. Here, some kind of compromise makes sense, such as regional egg purchasing centers. We do want uniform, high-quality standards everywhere, and we will monitor each of the franchises to make sure that they are adhered to. In other words, we definitely want to impose national quality control standards. What about items on the menu? What about furniture? How do we choose the location of new franchises within each metropolitan area? Things have become very complicated. Sometimes as I sit behind my big desk at corporate headquarters, I wish I could go back to the early days when I was running a single breakfast factory and I knew everybody by name and could make all the decisions without having to struggle with a mountain of pros and cons. Then there was virtually no overhead. Now there's a corporate personnel manager. There's also a traffic manager who wants to buy a computer to optimize the flow of eggs from the regional centers to the individual franchises. He says he can minimize transportation costs while ensuring same-day delivery. It won't be long before we'll have a corporate manager for real estate acquisitions. Things will be very complicated indeed. Earlier, we established that the game of management is a team game. The output of managers is the output of the organizations under their supervision or influence. We now discover that management is not just a team game. It is a game in which we have to fashion a team of teams where the various individual teams exist in some suitable and mutually supportive relationship with each other. This completes Side 7 of High Output Management. Please fast forward this cassette to the end, then turn it over to hear Side 8.
Welcome to Side 8 of High Output Management by Andrew S. Grove. On this side, we'll cover the two forms of organizations, the mission-oriented form and the functional form. Then we'll move on to the practice of dual reporting. Here is Side 8. What happened to the breakfast factory has to happen, or has already happened, to every reasonably large organization. Most middle managers run departments that are a part of a larger organization. The black boxes, or production systems they oversee, are connected to other black boxes in much the same way that the breakfast factories are linked to each other and to the main office. So let us look more carefully at what happens within an organization composed of smaller units. Most organizations are a mixture of two forms, the mission-oriented form and the functional form. But they can also be extremes of one of these forms, becoming totally mission-oriented or totally functional. The extreme mission-oriented organization is completely decentralized. Each individual business unit pursues what it does, its mission, with little tie-in to the other units. If the breakfast factory corporation were organized this way, each breakfast factory would be responsible for all elements of its operation, determining its own location and constructing its own building, doing its own merchandising, acquiring and maintaining its own personnel, and doing its own purchasing. In the end, it would submit monthly financial statements to the corporate executive office. At the other extreme is the totally functional organization, which is completely centralized. In a breakfast factory corporation set up this way, the merchandising department would be responsible for merchandising at all locations. The staff of the personnel organization would hire, fire, and evaluate personnel at all branches, and so on. The desire to give individual branch managers the power to respond to local conditions moves us toward a mission-oriented organization. But a similarly legitimate desire to take advantage of the obvious economies of scale and to increase the leverage of the expertise we have in each operational area across the entire corporation pushes us toward a functional organization. In the real world, of course, we look for a compromise between the two extremes. Alfred Sloan summed up decades of experience at General Motors by saying, good management rests on a reconciliation of centralization and decentralization. Or we might say, on a balancing act to get the best combination of responsiveness and leverage. Intel is a hybrid organization because our form results from a mix of business divisions and functional groups. The business divisions at Intel are the component business group, the microcomputer business group, and the system business group. All three of these groups are mission-oriented. Then there are four functional groups, sales, manufacturing, technology development, and administration. Our mix of business and functional groups is much like the way I imagine an army is organized. The business divisions are analogous to individual fighting units, which are provided with blankets, paychecks, aerial surveillance, intelligence, and so forth, by the functional organizations, which supply such services to all fighting units. Because each such unit does not have to maintain its own support groups, it can concentrate on a specific mission, like taking a hill in a battle. And for that, 
each unit has all the necessary freedom of action and independence. The functional groups can be viewed as if they were internal subcontractors. Some two-thirds of Intel's employees work in the functional units, indicating their enormous importance. What are some of the advantages of organizing so much of the company in such groups? The first is the economies of scale that can be achieved. Take the case of computerized information processing. Complex computer equipment is very expensive, and the capacity of large electronic machines can be best used if all the various business units draw from them. If each unit had its own computer, very expensive equipment would be sitting idle much of the time. Another important advantage is that resources can be shifted and reallocated to respond to changes in corporate-wide priorities. For instance, because manufacturing is organized functionally, we can change the mix of product being made to match need as perceived by the entire corporation. If each business unit did its own manufacturing, shifting capacity away from one unit to another would be a cumbersome and sticky exercise. And the advantage here is that the expertise of specialists, know-how managers, such as the research engineers who work in technology development, can be applied across the breadth of the entire corporation, giving their knowledge and work enormous leverage. Finally, Intel's functional groups allow the business units to concentrate on mastering their specific trades rather than having to worry about computers, production, technology, and so forth. Having so much of Intel organized in functional units also has its disadvantages. The most important is the information overload hitting a functional group when it must respond to the demands made on it by diverse and numerous business units. Even conveying needs and demands often becomes very difficult. A business unit has to go through a number of management layers to influence decision-making in a functional group. Nowhere is this more evident than in the negotiations that go on to secure a portion of centralized and limited resources of the corporation, be it production capacity, computer time, or space in a shared building. Indeed, things often move beyond negotiation to intense and open competition among business units for the resources controlled by the functional groups. The bottom line here is that both the negotiation and competition waste time and energy because neither contributes to the output or the general good of the company. What are some of the advantages of organizing much of a company in a mission-oriented form? There is only one. It is that the individual units can stay in touch with the needs of their business or product areas and initiate changes rapidly when those needs change. That is it. All other considerations favor the functional type of organization. But the business of any business is to respond to the demands and needs of its environment, and the need to be responsive is so important that it always leads to much of any organization being grouped in mission-oriented units. Countless managers have tried to find the best mix of the two organizational forms, and it's been no different at Intel. But no matter how many times we have examined possible organizational forms, we have always concluded that there is simply no alternative to the hybrid organizational structure. In fact, just about every large company or enterprise that I know is organized in a hybrid form. And that has led me to come up with a principle which I call Grove's Law. Grove's Law states, all large organizations with a common business purpose end up in a hybrid organizational form.
But the use of the hybrid organizational form does not even necessarily depend on how large a business or activity is. A friend of mine is a lawyer in a medium-sized law firm. He told me how his firm tried to deal with the problems and conflicts he and his colleagues were having over resources they all shared, such as the steno pool and office space. They ended up forming an executive committee that would not interfere with the legal, mission-oriented work of the individual attorneys, but would address the acquisition and allocation of common shared resources. Here is a small operation finding itself with the hybrid organizational form. Sooner or later, many companies must cope with the problems inherent in the workings of a hybrid organization. The most important task before such an organization is the optimum and timely allocation of its resources and the efficient resolution of conflicts arising over that allocation. Though this problem may be very complex, allocators working out of some central office are certainly not the answer. In fact, the most glaring example of inefficiency I've encountered went on some years ago in Hungary, where I once lived, and where a central planning organization decided what goods were to be produced, when, and where. The rationale for such planning was very solid, but in practice, it usually fell far, far short of meeting real consumer needs. In Hungary, I was an amateur photographer. During the winter, when I needed high-contrast film... None was to be found anywhere. Yet during the summer, everyone was up to his waist in the stuff, even though regular film was in short supply. Year after year, decision-making in the central planning organization was so clumsy that it could not even respond to totally predictable changes in demand. If we at Intel tried to resolve all conflicts and allocate all resources at the top, we would begin to resemble the group that ran the Hungarian economy. Instead, the answer lies with middle managers. Within a company, they are, in the first place, numerous enough to cover the entire range of operation, and in the second place, very close to the problem we're talking about, namely, generating internal resources and consuming those resources. For middle managers to succeed at this high-leverage task, two things are necessary. First, they must accept the inevitability of the hybrid organizational form if they are to serve its workings. Second, they must develop and master the practice through which a hybrid organization can be managed. This practice is dual reporting, and here's how it works. To put a man on the moon, NASA asked several major contractors and many subcontractors to work together, each on a different aspect of the project. An unintended consequence of the moonshot was the development of a new organizational approach, matrix management. This provided the means through which the work of various contractors could be coordinated and managed so that if problems developed in one place, they did not subvert the entire schedule. Resources could be diverted, for example, from a strong organization to one that was slipping in order to help the latter make up lost time. The core idea was that a project manager, somebody outside any of the contractors involved, could wield as much influence on the work of units within a given company as could the company management itself. NASA elaborated the principle of dual reporting on a grand scale, but in reality the basic idea had been quietly at work for many years, enabling hybrid organizations of all types to function, from the neighborhood high school 
to Alfred Sloan's General Motors. Not to mention the Breakfast Factory franchises. Let's recreate how Intel came to adopt a dual reporting system. When our company was young and small, we stumbled onto dual reporting almost by accident. At a staff meeting, we were trying to decide to whom the security personnel at our new outlying plants should report. We had two choices. One would have the employees report to the plant manager. But a plant manager, by background, is typically an engineer or a manufacturing person who knows very little about security issues and cares even less. The other choice would have them report to the security manager at the main plant. This manager hired them in the first place and is the expert who sets the standards that the security officers are supposed to adhere to throughout the company. And it was clear that security procedures and practices at the outlying plants had to conform to some kind of corporate standard. There was only one problem with the latter arrangement. The security manager works at corporate headquarters and not at the outlying plant. So this manager wouldn't know if the security personnel outside the main plant even showed up or came in late or otherwise performed badly. After we wrestled with the dilemma for a while, it occurred to us that perhaps security personnel should report jointly to the corporate security manager and to the local plant manager. The security manager would specify how the job ought to be done, and the plant manager would monitor how it was being performed day by day. While the arrangement seemed to solve both problems, the staff couldn't quite accept it. We found ourselves asking, a person has to have a boss, so who is in charge here? Could an employee have, in fact, two bosses? The answer was a tentative yes. And the culture of joint reporting relationships, dual reporting, was born. It was a slow, laborious birth. But the need for dual reporting is actually quite fundamental. Let's think for a minute about how managers come to be. They start their careers by being individual contributors. Salespeople, for instance. If they prove to be superior salespeople, they are promoted to sales managers where they supervise people in their functional specialty, sales. When they have shown themselves to be superstar sales managers, they are promoted again, this time becoming regional sales managers. If they work at Intel, they are now not only supervising salespeople, but also field application engineers who obviously know more about technical matters than these regional managers do, but whom they still manage. The promotions continue until our superstars find themselves general managers of business divisions. Among other things, our new general managers have no experience with manufacturing, so while they are perfectly capable of supervising their manufacturing managers in the more general aspects of the jobs, the new bosses have no choice but to leave the technical aspects to their subordinates, because as graduates of sales, they have absolutely no background in manufacturing. In other divisions of the corporation, manufacturing managers may similarly be reporting to people who rose through the ranks of engineering and finance. We could handle the problem by designating one person the senior manufacturing manager and having all the manufacturing managers report to that person instead of to the general manager. But the more we do this, the more we move toward a totally functional form of organization. A general manager could no longer coordinate the activities of the finance, marketing, engineering, and manufacturing groups toward a single business purpose responsive to marketplace needs. We want the immediacy and the operating priorities coming from the general manager as well as a technical supervisory relationship. The solution 
is dual reporting. But does the technical supervisor's role have to be filled by a single individual? No. Consider the following scenario, which could be taken from an ordinary day at Intel. Our manufacturing manager is sitting in the cafeteria having a cup of coffee, and the manufacturing manager from another division, whose boss, the general manager, has a finance background, comes over. They start chatting about what's going on in their respective divisions and begin to realize that they have a number of technical problems in common. Applying the theory that two heads are better than one, they decide to meet a bit more often. Eventually, the meetings become regularly scheduled, and manufacturing managers from other divisions join the two to exchange views about problems they share. Pretty soon, a committee or a council made up of a group of peers comes into existence to tackle issues common to all. In short, they have found a way to deal with those technical issues that their bosses, the general managers, can't help them with. In effect, they now have supervision that a general manager competent in manufacturing could have given them, but that supervision is being exercised by a peer group. The manufacturing managers report to two supervisors, to this group and to their respective general managers. To make such a body work requires the voluntary surrender of individual decision-making to the group. Being a member means you no longer have complete freedom of individual action because you must go along with the decisions of your peers in most instances. By analogy, think of yourself as one of a couple who decides to take a vacation with another couple. You know that if you go together, you will not be free to do exactly what you want to do when you want to do it, but you go together anyway because you'll have more fun, even while you'll have less freedom. At work, surrendering individual decision-making depends on trusting the soundness of actions taken by your group of peers. Trust in no way relates to an organizational principle, but is instead an aspect of the corporate culture. Put simply, a corporate culture is a set of values and beliefs, as well as familiarity with the way things are done and should be done in a company. A strong and positive corporate culture is absolutely essential if dual reporting and decision-making by peers are to work. This system does make managers' lives ambiguous, and most people don't like ambiguity. People will strive to find something simpler. But the reality is that it doesn't exist. A strictly functional organization, which is clear conceptually, tends to remove engineering and manufacturing, or the equivalent groups in your firm, from the marketplace, leaving them with no idea of what the customers want. A highly mission-oriented organization, in turn, may have definite, crisp reporting relationships and clear and unambiguous objectives at all times. However, the fragmented state of affairs that results causes inefficiency and poor overall performance. It's not because Intel loved ambiguity that we became a hybrid organization. We have tried everything else. And while other models may have been less ambiguous, they simply didn't work. Hybrid organizations and the accompanying dual reporting principle like a democracy, are not great in and of themselves. They just happen to be the best way for any business to be organized. To make hybrid organizations work, you need a way to coordinate the mission-oriented units and the functional groups so that the resources of the functional groups are allocated and delivered to meet the needs of the mission-oriented units. Consider advertising. Should each business division devise and pursue its own advertising campaign? 
or should all of it be handled through a single corporate entity? There are pros and cons on both sides. Each division clearly understands its own strategy best, and therefore presumably best understands what its advertising message should be and to whom it should be aimed. This would suggest that advertising stay in the hands of the divisions. However, the products of various divisions often all serve the needs of a specific market and taken together represent a much more complete solution to the customer's needs than what can be provided by an individual division. Here, the customer, and hence the manufacturer, clearly benefit if all the advertising stories are told in a coherent, coordinated fashion. Also, advertising sells not just a specific product, but the entire corporation as well because the ads ought to project a consistent image that is right for everybody, we should at the very least not let a division go out and hire its own advertising agency. As with much else in a hybrid organization, the optimum solution here calls for the use of dual reporting. The divisional marketing managers should control most of their own advertising messages, but a coordinating body of peers, consisting of the various divisional marketing managers and perhaps chaired by the corporate merchandising manager, should provide the necessary functional supervision for all involved. This body would choose the advertising agency, for instance, and determine the graphic image to which all divisional ads should conform. It could also define the way the division marketing managers would deal with the agency, which could reduce the cost of space through the use of volume buying. Yet the specific selling message communicated by an individual ad would be mainly left to the divisional people. Dual reporting can certainly tax the patience of the marketing managers, as they are now also required to understand the needs and thought processes of their peers. But no real alternative exists when you need to communicate individual product and market messages and maintain a corporate identity at the same time. Now, whenever people become involved in coordination, something not part of their regular daily work, we encounter a subtle variation of dual reporting. Remember Cindy, the know-how manager responsible for maintaining and improving a specific manufacturing process? Cindy reports to a supervising engineer, who in turn reports to the engineering manager of the plant. In her daily work, Cindy keeps things going by manipulating the manufacturing equipment watching the process monitors, and making adjustments when necessary. But Cindy has another job, too. She meets formally, once a month, with her counterparts from the other production plants to identify, discuss, and solve problems related to the process for which they are each responsible in their respective plants. This coordinating group also works to standardize procedures used at all plants. The work of Cindy's group, and others like it, is supervised by another, more senior group, called the Engineering Managers Council, which is made up of the engineering managers from all the plants. Again, we see dual reporting because Cindy has two supervisors. What's more, Cindy's two responsibilities won't fit on a single organization chart. Instead, we have to think of the coordinating group as existing on a different chart or on a different plane. This sounds complicated, but really isn't. If Cindy belonged to a church she would be regarded as a member of that organization as well as being part of Intel. Her supervisor there would be the local pastor, who in turn is a member of the church hierarchy. No one would confuse these two roles, 
clearly operating on two different planes, each has its own hierarchies, and that Cindy is a member of both groups at the same time would hardly trouble anyone. Cindy's being part of a coordinating group is like her church membership. Our ability to use Cindy's skill and know-how in two different capacities makes it possible for her to exert a much larger leverage at Intel. In her main job, her knowledge affects the work that takes place in one plant. In her second, through what she does in the process coordinating group, she can influence the work of all plants. So we see that the existence of such groups is a way for managers, especially know-how managers, to increase their leverage. The two-plane concept being used here is a part of everyday organizational life. For instance, while people mostly work at an operating task, they also plan. The hierarchy of the corporation's planning bodies lies on a plane separate from the one on which you'll find the operating groups. Moreover, if people can operate in two planes, they can operate in three. Cindy could also be part of a task force to achieve a specific result in which her expertise is needed. This is as if Cindy were to work at Intel, to belong to a church, and to do advisory work for the town's parks department. These are separate roles and do not conflict with one another, though they all do vie for Cindy's time. It could also turn out that people who are in a subordinate supervisory relationship in one plane might find the relationship reversed in another. For example, I am president of Intel, but in another plane, I am a member of a strategic planning group where I report to its chairman, who is one of our division controllers. The two-plane or multiplane organization is very useful. Without it, I could only participate if I were in charge of everything I was part of. I don't have that kind of time, and often I'm not the most qualified person around to lead. The multiplane organization enables me to serve as a foot soldier rather than as a general when appropriate and useful. This gives the organization important flexibility. Many of the groups that we are talking about here are temporary. Some, like task forces, are specifically formed for a purpose, while others are merely an informal collection of people who work together to solve a particular problem. Both cease to work as a group once the problem has been handled. The more varied the nature of the problems we face, and the more rapidly things change around us, the more we have to rely on such specially composed transitory teams. The techniques that we have to master to make hybrid organizations work, dual or multiple reporting, and also decision-making by peer groups, are both necessary if such transitory teams are to work. The key factor common to all is the use of cultural values as a mode of control. And the modes of control that you can use when you are a manager or what I want to tell you about next. This completes Side 8 of Career Tracks High Output Management by Andrew Grove. Please replace this cassette with Side 9 and continue.
This is side nine of Career Tracks High Output Management. In a work environment, our behavior can be controlled by three invisible and pervasive means free market forces, contractual obligations, and cultural values. On this side, we'll discuss the importance of each. Then we'll turn our attention to the players on our teams and ask what can managers do to help people achieve individual peak performances? Here is side nine. Let's look at the ways in which our actions can be controlled or influenced. Say you need new tires for your car. You go down the street to the dealer and take a look at the various lines he has to offer. Then you'll probably go up the street to see what the competition has. Maybe later you'll turn to a consumer magazine to help you choose. Eventually, you'll make a decision based on one thing, your own self-interest. You want to buy the tires you think will meet your needs at the lowest cost to you. You are not concerned about the tire dealer's welfare. There's not much chance that you would say to him that he isn't charging you enough for the tires. Now you have the tires on your car, and you drive off. After a while, you come to a red light. You stop. Do you think about it? No. It's a law established by the society at large that everybody stops at a red light, and you unquestioningly accept and live by it. Vehicular chaos would reign if all drivers had not entered into a contract to stop. The traffic cop monitors adherence and penalizes those who break the law. After the light changes, you continue on down the road and come upon the scene of a major accident. Quite likely you'll forget about laws like not stopping on a freeway, and also forget about your own self-interest. You'll probably do everything you can to help the accident victims, and in the meantime, expose yourself to all kinds of dangers and risks. What motivates you now is not at all what did when you were shopping for tires or stopping at the red light. Not self-interest or obeying the law, but concern about someone else's life. Similarly, our behavior in a work environment can be controlled by three invisible and pervasive means. These are free market forces, contractual obligations, and cultural values. Looking first at the free market forces that came into place when you bought your tires, we can say that these forces are based on price. Goods and services are being exchanged between two entities, individuals, organizational units, or corporations, with each seeking only to enrich itself. This is very simple. It is a matter of I want to buy the tire at the lowest price I can get versus I want to sell the tire at the highest price I can get. Neither party here cares if the other goes bankrupt, nor do they pretend to. This is a very efficient way to buy and sell tires. No one is needed to oversee the transaction because everyone is openly serving his own self-interest. So why aren't the forces of the marketplace used all the time in all circumstances? Because to work... The goods and services bought and sold must possess a very clearly defined dollar value. The free market can easily establish a price for something as simple as tires. But for much else that changes hands in a work or business environment, value is hard to establish. What happens, for instance, when it takes a group of people to accomplish a certain task? 
How much does each of them contribute to the value the business adds to the product? The point is that how much an engineer is worth in a group cannot be pinned down by appealing to the free market. In fact, if we bought engineering work by the bit, I think we would end up spending more time trying to decide the value of each bit of contribution than the contribution itself is worth. Here, trying to use free market concepts becomes quite inefficient. So you say to the engineers, okay, I'll retain your services for a year for a set amount of money, and you will agree to do a certain type of work in return. We've now entered into a contract. I'll give you an office and a terminal, and you promise me to do the best you can to perform your task. Control of behavior is now based on contractual obligations, which define the kind of work you will do and the standards that will govern it. Because I can't specify in advance exactly what you will do from day to day, I must have a fair amount of generalized authority over your work. So you must give to me, as part of the contract, the right to monitor and evaluate, and if necessary, correct your work. We agree on other guidelines and work out rules that we will both obey. In return for stopping at a red light, we count on other drivers to do the same thing, and we can drive through green lights. But for lawbreakers, we need policemen, and with them, as with supervisors, we introduce overhead. A utility company presents another example of contractual obligations. Its representatives will go to somebody who works for the government and say, I'll build a $300 million generating plant and provide electricity for this portion of the state if you promise me that no one else will build one and try to sell electricity here. The state says, well, that's fine, but we're not going to let you charge whatever you want for the power you generate. We'll establish a monitoring agency called the Public Utilities Commission, and they'll tell you how much you can charge consumers and how much profit you can make. So, in exchange for a monopoly, the company is contractually obliged to accept the government's decision on pricing and profit. When the environment changes more rapidly than one can change rules, or when a set of circumstances is so ambiguous and unclear that a contract between the parties that attempted to cover all possibilities would be prohibitively complicated, we need another mode of control, one which is based on cultural values. Its most important characteristic is that the interest of the larger group to which an individual belongs takes precedence over the interest of the individual himself. When cultural values are at work, some emotionally loaded words come into play. Words like trust, because you are surrendering to the group your ability to protect yourself. And for this to happen, you must believe that you all share a common set of values, a common set of objectives, and a common set of methods. These, in turn, can only be developed by a great deal of common shared experience. What are the roles of managers when it comes to putting these behavioral controls into practice? Well, you don't need managers to supervise the workings of free market forces. In a contractual obligation, however, managers have a role in setting and modifying the rules, monitoring adherence to them, and evaluating and improving performance. As for cultural values, managers have to develop and nurture the common set of values, objectives, and methods essential for the existence of trust. How do we do that? One way is by articulation. 
by spelling out these values, objectives, and methods. The other, even more important way is by example. If our behavior at work is seen to be in line with the values we profess, that fosters the development of a group culture. There is a temptation to idealize what I've called cultural values as a mode of control because it is so nice, even utopian, because everybody presumably cares about the common good and subjugates self-interest to that common good. But this is not the most efficient mode of control under all conditions. It is no guide to buying tires, nor could awarding monopolies work this way. Accordingly, given a certain set of conditions, there is always a most appropriate mode of control, which we as managers should find and use. How do we do that? There are two variables here. The first variable is the nature of a person's motivation. It can range from self-interest to group interest. The second variable is the nature of the environment in which a person works. How much complexity, uncertainty, and ambiguity does it have? Cindy, the process engineer, is surrounded by tricky technologies, new and not fully operational equipment, and development engineers and production engineers pulling her in opposite directions. Her working environment, in short, is complex. Bruce, the marketing manager, has asked for permission to hire more people for his grossly understaffed group. His supervisor waffles, and Bruce is left with no idea if he'll get the go-ahead or what to do if he doesn't. Bruce's working environment is uncertain. Mike, whom we will now introduce as an Intel transportation supervisor, had to deal with so many committees, councils, and divisional manufacturing managers that he didn't know which, if any, end was up. He eventually quit, unable to tolerate the ambiguity of his working environment. I call complexity, uncertainty, and ambiguity the C-U-A factor in a person's environment. This factor can range from low to high. When self-interest is high and the C-U-A factor is low, the most appropriate mode of control is the market mode, which governed our tire purchase. As self-interest moves toward group interest, the contractual mode, which governed our stopping for a red light, becomes appropriate. When group interest and the CUA factor are both high, the cultural values mode becomes the best choice, which explains to us why we tried to help at the scene of the accident. And finally, when the CUA factor is high, and individual motivation is based on self-interest, no mode of control will work well. This situation, like every man for himself on a sinking ship, can only produce chaos. Let's apply our model to the work of a new employee. What is his motivation? It is very much based on self-interest. So you should give him a clearly structured job with a low CUA factor. If he does well, he will begin to feel more at home, worry less about himself, and start to care more about his team. He learns that if he is on a boat and wants to get ahead, it is better for him to help row than to run to the bow. The employee can then be promoted into a more complex, uncertain, ambiguous job. These tend to pay more. As time passes, he will continue to gain an increasing amount of shared experience with other members of the organization 
and we'll be ready to tackle more and more complex, ambiguous, and uncertain tasks. This is why promotion from within tends to be the approach favored by corporations with strong corporate cultures. Bring young people in at relatively low-level, well-defined jobs with low CUA factors, and over time they will share experiences with their peers, supervisors, and subordinates, and will learn the values, objectives, and methods of the organization. They will gradually accept, even flourish in, the complex world of multiple bosses and peer decision-making. But what do we do when, for some reason, we have to hire a senior person from outside the company? Like any other new hire, he too will come in having high self-interest. But inevitably, we will give him an organization to manage that is in trouble. After all, that was our reason for going outside. So not only does our new manager have a tough job facing him, but his working environment will have a very high CUA. Meanwhile, he has no base of common experience with the rest of the organization and no knowledge of the methods used to help him work. All we can do is cross our fingers and hope he quickly forgets self-interest and just as quickly gets on top of his job to reduce his CUA factor. Short of that, he's probably out of luck. Let's now consider what goes on during the course of a work project. Barbara's department is responsible for training the Intel sales force in her division's products. When she buys materials used in the training program, free market forces reign as binders of the required quality are purchased at the lowest possible price. The existence of the training program itself, however, presents an example of contractual obligations at work. The salespeople expect that each division will provide training on a regular basis. While the program isn't a mandated requirement spelled out somewhere in a formal policy statement, its basis is nonetheless contractual. The point is, expectations can be as binding as a legal document. When a number of divisions share a common sales force, each of them has a vested interest to train representatives to promote and sell its products. At the same time, unless the divisions are willing to sacrifice self-interest in favor of a common interest, the training sessions can easily become disjointed free-for-alls and confuse everybody. So the need to have the individual divisions present coordinated messages is governed by corporate values. Thus, in field sales training, we find all three modes of control at work. Recently, a group of factory marketing managers claimed that our salespeople were governed only by self-interest. They said that they devoted most of their attention to selling those items that produced the most commissions and bonuses. Irritated and a bit self-righteous, the managers felt they were much more concerned about the common good of the company than were their colleagues in the field. But the marketing departments themselves created the monster. To get the sales force to favor particular products, the divisions had been running contests with prizes ranging from cash bonuses to trips to exotic places. The marketing managers were competing against one another for a finite and valuable resource, the salespeople's time. And the salespeople merely responded as one might expect. But salespeople can also behave in the opposite fashion. At one time, one of our divisions had serious problems. 
leaving the sales engineers with no product to sell for nearly a year. They could have left Intel and immediately gotten other jobs and quick commissions elsewhere, but by and large they stayed with us. They stayed because they believed in the company and had faith that eventually things would get better. Belief and faith are not aspects of the market mode, but stem from adherence to cultural values. Earlier, I built a case summed up by the key sentence, the output of managers is the output of the organizations under their supervision or influence. Put another way, this means that management is a team activity. But no matter how well a team is put together, no matter how well it is directed, the team will perform only as well as the individuals on it. In other words, everything we've considered so far is useless unless the members of our team will continually try to do their best. So let's turn our attention to the players on our teams and ask, what can managers do to help people to achieve individual peak performances? We'll talk here about finding best ways to motivate people, about choosing the management style that will match the special needs of subordinates, and about using performance reviews effectively. Then I'll give you my insights into two tasks that I find particularly difficult. Interviewing potential employees and trying to talk valued employees out of quitting. And finally, we'll discuss how you can use the way you compensate employees to give them feedback about their performances. When a person is not doing his job, there can only be two reasons for it. The person either can't do it or won't do it. He is either not capable or not motivated. To determine which, we can employ a simple mental test. If the person's life depended on doing the work, could he do it? If the answer is yes, that person is not motivated. If the answer is no, he is not capable. If my life depended on playing the violin on command, I could not do it. But if I had to run a mile in six minutes, I probably could. Not that I would want to, but if my life depended on it, I probably could. The single most important task of managers is to elicit peak performance from their subordinates. So if lack of capability or lack of motivation are the two things that limit high output, managers have two ways to tackle the issue, through training and through motivation. Right now, I'd like to focus on motivation. How do managers motivate subordinates? For most of us, the word motivate implies doing something to another person. But I think motivation has to come from within somebody. Accordingly, all a manager can do is create an environment in which motivated people can flourish. Because better motivation means better performance, not a change of attitude or feeling. Subordinates saying, I feel motivated, means nothing. What matters if they perform better or worse because their environment changed? An attitude may constitute an indicator, a window into the black box of human motivation, but it is not the desired result or output. Better performance at a given skill level is. For most of Western history, including the early days of the Industrial Revolution, motivation was based mostly on fear of punishment. In Charles Dickens' time, the threat of loss of life got people to work. Because if people did not work, 
they were not paid and could not buy food. And if they stole food and got caught, they were hanged. The fear of punishment indirectly caused them to produce more than they might have otherwise. Over the past 30 years or so, a number of new approaches have begun to replace older practices keyed to fear, because the emergence of the new humanistic approaches to motivation can be traced to the decline in the relative importance of manual labor and the corresponding rise in the importance of so-called knowledge workers. The output of a manual laborer is readily measurable, and departures from the expected can be spotted and dealt with immediately. But for a knowledge worker, such departures take longer to determine, because even the expectations themselves are very difficult to state precisely. In other words, fear won't work as well with computer architects as with galley slaves. Hence, new approaches to motivation are needed. My description of what makes people perform relies heavily on Abraham Maslow's theory of motivation, simply because my own observations of working life confirm Maslow's concepts. For Maslow, motivation is closely tied to the idea of needs, which cause people to have drives, which in turn result in motivation. A need, once satisfied, stops being a need, and therefore stops being a source of motivation. Simply put, if we are to create and maintain a high degree of motivation, we must keep some needs unsatisfied at all times. People, of course, tend to have a variety of concurrent needs, but one among them is always stronger than the others, and that need is the one that largely determines an individual's motivation, and therefore his or her level of performance. Maslow defined a set of needs that lie in a hierarchy. When a lower need is satisfied, one higher is likely to take over. The lowest needs, that is, our most basic needs, are our physiological needs. These are things that money can buy, like food, clothing, and other basic necessities of life. Fear is hitched to such needs. One fears the possible deprivation of food, clothing, and other basic needs. Once our physiological needs are taken care of, our security and safety needs become strong. These needs come from a desire to protect ourselves from slipping back to being deprived of the basic necessities. Safety and security needs are fulfilled, for example, when medical insurance provides employees protection against the fear of going bankrupt trying to pay doctor and hospital fees. The existence of benefits is rarely a dominant source of employee motivation, but if benefits were absent and employees had to worry about such concerns, performance would no doubt be badly affected. Taking another step up in the hierarchy of needs brings us to our social and affiliation needs. The social needs stem from the inherent desire of human beings to belong to some group or other. But people don't want to belong to just any group. They need to belong to one whose members possess something in common with themselves. Another example of the power of social needs is provided by Jim, a young engineer. His first job after he graduated from college was with a very large, long-established company, while his two college roommates came to work at Intel. Because Jim continued to room with them, he was exposed to what working within Intel was like. Moreover, most of his roommates' friends from work were also young, unmarried, and just a year or two out of college, while most of the people where Jim worked were married and at least ten years older. Jim felt left out, and his need for a group in which he felt comfortable prompted him to come to work at Intel. 
though he very much enjoyed his work at the other company. As one's environment or condition in life changes, one's desire to satisfy a particular set of needs is replaced by a desire to satisfy another set. There's the story of a young Intel manager, Chuck, when he was a first-year student at the Harvard Business School. Initially, he was engulfed by a fear of the class material, of his professors, a failure of flunking out. After a while, his fear gave way to the realization that everyone else was in the same boat, also afraid. Students began to form study groups whose ostensible purpose was to consider class material together, but whose real purpose was to strengthen confidence. Chuck moved from being governed largely by his need for sheer survival, a physiological need, to one for security and safety. As time went on, the study groups dissolved and the students started to associate with other members of the class. The entire class, or section as it was called, developed a definite and recognizable set of characteristics. It became, in short, a team. Members enjoyed belonging, associating, and identifying with it, and worked to sustain the section's image among the professors and other students. Chuck was now satisfying his need for affiliation. Of course, regressive movement is also possible. Recently, a highly motivated, smoothly working team of manufacturing employees in one of our California plants was suddenly jolted, all too literally, from satisfying a very high level of human needs to abandoning an inventory of silicone wafers, expensive manufacturing equipment, even friends. An earthquake shook their factory. People feared for their lives, dropped everything, and ran to the nearest exit as they found themselves totally consumed by the most fundamental of all physiological needs, survival. The physiological, safety, security, and social needs all can motivate us to show up for work. But other needs make us perform once we are there. These other needs are esteem and recognition, and their strength is readily apparent in the cliché, keeping up with the Joneses. Such striving is commonly frowned upon, but if an athlete's Jones is last year's Olympic gold medalist, or if an actor's Jones is Laurence Olivier, the need to keep up with or emulate someone is a powerful source of positive motivation. The person or group whose recognition you desire may mean nothing to someone else. Esteem exists in the eyes of the beholder. If you are an aspiring high school athlete and one of the top players passes you in the hall and says, Hello, you'll feel terrific. Yet, if you try to tell your family or friends how pleased you were about the encounter, you are likely to be met with blank stares, because the hello means nothing to people who are not aspiring athletes in your high school. All of the sources of motivation we've talked about so far are self-limiting. That is, when a need is gratified, it can no longer motivate a person. Once a predetermined goal or level of achievement is reached, the need to go any further loses urgency. A friend of mine was thrust into a premature midlife crisis when in recognition of the excellent work he had been doing, he was named a vice president of the corporation. Such a position had been a lifelong goal. When he had suddenly attained it, he found himself looking for some other way to motivate himself. Another set of needs that helps us perform, and that are even more powerful than esteem and recognition, are our self-actualization needs, 
They are at the top of the hierarchy we've been talking about. For Maslow, self-actualization stems from a personal realization that what I can be, I must be. The title of a movie about athletes, Personal Best, captures what self-actualization means. The need to achieve one's utter personal best in a chosen field of endeavor. Once the source of motivation is self-actualization, the drive to perform has no limit. Thus, its most important characteristic is that, unlike other sources of motivation, which extinguish themselves after the needs are fulfilled, self-actualization continues to motivate people to ever higher levels of performance. Two inner forces can drive people to use all of their capabilities. They can be confidence-driven or achievement-driven. The former, competence-driven, concerns itself with job or task mastery. A virtuoso violinist who continues to practice day after day is obviously moved by something other than a need for esteem and recognition. She works to sharpen her own skill, trying to do a little bit better this time than the time before, just as a teenager on a skateboard practices the same trick over and over again. The same teenager may not sit still for ten minutes to do homework, but on a skateboard, he is relentless, driven by the self-actualization need, a need to get better that has no limit. That's being competence-driven. The achievement-driven path to self-actualization is not quite like this. Some people, not the majority, are moved by an abstract need to achieve in all that they do. A psychology lab experiment illustrated the behavior of such people, some volunteers were put into a room in which pegs were set at various places on the floor. Each person was given some rings, but not instructed what to do with them. People eventually started to toss the rings onto the pegs. Some casually tossed the rings at faraway pegs. Others stood over the pegs and dropped the rings down onto them. Still others walked just far enough away from the pegs so that to toss a ring onto a peg constituted a challenge. These people worked at the boundary of their capability. Researchers classified the three types of behavior. The first group, casually tossing the rings at faraway pegs, were termed gamblers. They took high risks but exerted no influence on the outcome of events. The second group, who stood over the pegs and dropped the rings down onto them, termed conservatives, were people who took very little risk. The third group, who walked just far enough away from the pegs, so that to toss the ring onto a peg constituted a challenge, were termed achievers. They had to test the limits of what they could do, and with no prompting, demonstrated the point of the experiment, namely, that some people simply must test themselves. By challenging themselves, these people were likely to miss a peg several times, but when they began to ring the peg consistently, they gained satisfaction and a sense of achievement. The point is that both competence and achievement-oriented people spontaneously try to test the outer limits of their abilities. When the need to stretch is not spontaneous, management needs to create an environment to foster it. In a management by objectives, MBO system, for example, objectives should be set at a point high enough so that even if the individuals or organizations push themselves hard, they will still only have a 50-50 chance of making them. Output 
will tend to be greater when people strive for a level of achievement beyond their immediate grasp, even though trying means failure half the time. Such goal setting is extremely important if what you want is peak performance from yourself and your subordinates. Moreover, if we want to cultivate achievement-driven motivation, we need to create an environment that values and emphasizes output. My first job was with a research and development laboratory, where a lot of people were very highly motivated but tended to be knowledge-centered. They were driven to know more, but not necessarily to know more in order to produce concrete results. Consequently, relatively little was actually achieved. The value system at Intel is completely the reverse. The Ph.D. in computer science who knows an answer in the abstract, yet does not apply it to create some tangible output, gets little recognition. But a junior engineer who produces results is highly valued and esteemed, and that is how it should be. This completes Side 9 of High Output Management by Andrew S. Grove. On the next side, we'll address the subject of what motivates people to levels of peak performance in the workplace. Is it money? Recognition? A fear of failure? We'll find out on the next side. Now, please fast forward this cassette to the end, then turn it over to your Side 10. Side 10 of Career Tracks High Output Management by Andrew Grove. As managers, our role is to first train our subordinates, and second, to bring them to the point where self actualization motivates them, because once there, their motivation will be self sustaining and limitless. Is there a systematic way to lead these people to self actualization? We'll find out as our discussion turns to the subject of motivation in the workplace. Here is Side 10. We now come to the question of how money motivates people. At the lower levels of the motivation hierarchy, money is obviously important because it buys the necessities of life. Once there is enough money to bring people up to the level they expect of themselves, more money will not motivate. Consider people who work at our assembly plant in the Caribbean. The standard of living there is quite low, and people who work for us enjoy one substantially higher than most of the population. Yet, in the early years of operation, 
many employees worked just long enough to accumulate some small sum of money and then quit. For them, money's motivation was clearly limited. Having reached a predetermined notion of how much money they wanted, more money and a steady job provided no more motivation. Now consider venture capitalists who, after making $10 million, are still very hard at work trying to make another $10 million. Physiological, safety, or social needs hardly apply here. Moreover, because venture capitalists usually don't publicize their successes, they are not driven by a need for esteem or recognition. So it appears that at the upper level of the need hierarchy, when one is self-actualized, money in itself is no longer a source of motivation, but rather a measure of achievement. Money in the physiological and security-driven modes only motivates until the need is satisfied. But money as a measure of achievement will motivate without limit. Thus, the second ten million can be just as important to these venture capitalists as the first ten million. A simple test can be used to determine where people are in the motivational hierarchy. If the absolute sum of a raise in salary that individuals receive is important to them, they are working mostly within the physiological or safety modes. If, however, what matters to them is how their raises stack up against what other people got, then they are motivated by esteem and recognition or self-actualization, because in this case, money is clearly a measure. Once they are in the self-actualization mode, people need measures to gauge their progress and achievement. The most important type of measure is feedback on performance. For self-actualized people driven to improve their competence, the feedback mechanism lies within those individuals themselves. Our virtuoso violinist knows how the music should sound, knows when it is not right, and will strive tirelessly to get it right. Accordingly, if the possibility for improvement does not exist, the desire to keep practicing vanishes. I knew an Olympic fencing champion, a Hungarian who immigrated to this country. When I ran into him recently, he told me that he had quit fencing shortly after arriving in the U.S. He said that the level of competition here was not high enough to produce someone who could give him a contest, and that he couldn't bear to fence any longer because every time he did, he felt his skill was diminishing. Now, let's talk about fear as a motivational force when people are dominated by physiological and security, safety, the loss of life or loss of job or liberty. Does fear have a place in the esteem or self-actualized modes? It does, but here it becomes the fear of failure. But is that a positive or negative source of motivation? It can be either. Given a specific task, fear of failure can spur a person on. But if it becomes a preoccupation, a person driven by a need to achieve will simply become conservative. Let's think back to the ring tossers. If people got an electrical shock each time they threw a ring and missed, soon enough they would walk over to the peg and drop the ring from directly over it to eliminate the pain associated with failure. In general, in the upper levels of motivation, fear is not something coming from the outside. It is instead fear of not satisfying yourself that causes you to back off.
You cannot stay in the self-actualized mode if you're always worried about failure. We've studied motivation to try to understand what makes people want to work so that as managers we can elicit peak performance from our subordinates, their personal best. Of course, what we are really after is the performance of the organization as a whole, but that depends on how skilled and motivated the people within it are. So our role as managers is, first, to train the individuals, and second, to bring them to the point where self-actualization motivates them. Because once there, their motivation will be self-sustaining and limitless. Is there a systematic way to lead people to self-actualization? For an answer, let's ask another question. Why does a person who is not terribly interested in his work at the office stretch himself to the limit running a marathon? What makes him run? He is trying to beat other people or the stopwatch. This is a simple model of self-actualization, wherein people will exert themselves to previously undreamed heights, forcing themselves to run farther or faster while their efforts fill barrels with sweat. They will do this not for money, but just to beat the distance, the clock, or other people. Consider what made Joe Frazier box. This is what I do. I am a fighter, he says. It's my job. I'm just doing my job. Joe doesn't deny the attractiveness of money. Who wants to work for nothing, he says. But there are things more important than money. I don't need to be a star, Joe says, because I don't need to shine. But I do need to be a boxer because that's what I am. It's as simple as that. Imagine how productive our country would become if managers could endow all work with the characteristics of competitive sports. To try to do this, we must first overcome cultural prejudice. Our society respects people who throw themselves into sports, but people who work very long hours are regarded as sick, as workaholics. So the prejudices of the majority say that sports are good and fun, but work is drudgery, a necessary evil, and in no way a source of pleasure. That makes the cliché, if you can't beat them, join them, apply. Endow work with the characteristics of competitive sports. And the best way to get that spirit into the workplace is to establish some rules of the game and ways for employees to measure themselves. Eliciting peak performance means going up against something or somebody. Let me give you a simple example. For years, the performance of the Intel Facilities Maintenance Group, which is responsible for keeping our buildings clean and neat, was mediocre and no amount of pressure or inducement seemed to do any good. We then initiated a program in which each building's upkeep was periodically scored by a resident senior manager, dubbed a building czar. The score was then compared with those given the other buildings. The condition of all of them dramatically improved almost immediately. Nothing else was done. People did not get more money or other rewards. What they did get was a racetrack, and arena of competition. If your work is facilities maintenance, having your building receive the top score is a powerful source of motivation. This is key to all managers' approach and involvement. They have to see the work as it is seen by the people who do that work every day and then create indicators so that their subordinates can watch their racetrack take shape. 
Conversely, of course, when the competition is removed, the motivation associated with it vanishes. Consider the example of a newspaper columnist reflecting on his past. This journalist thrived on beating the competition in the column, and his pleasure in his work began to wane after his paper and the competitive paper merged. I'll never forget that day of the merger, the columnist said. I walked out to get the train, and I just thought, there isn't anyone else to beat. Comparing our work to sports may also teach us how to cope with failure. As I said, one of the big impediments to a fully committed, highly motivated state of mind is preoccupation with failure. Yet we know that in any competitive sport, at least 50% of all matches are lost. All participants know that from the outset, and yet rarely do they give up at any stage of a contest. The role of managers here is also clear. They are coaches. First, ideal coaches take no personal credit for the success of their teams, and because of that their players trust them. Second, they are tough on their teams. By being critical, they try to get the best performances team members can provide. Third, good coaches were likely good players themselves at one time, and having played the game well, they also understand it well. Turning the workplace into a playing field can turn our subordinates into athletes dedicated to performing at the limit of their capabilities. And that's the key to making our teams consistent winners. I'll say again that managers' most important responsibility is to elicit top performance from their subordinates. Assuming we understand what motivates employees, the question becomes, is there a single best management style, one approach that will work better than all others? Many have looked for that optimum. Considering the issue historically, the management style most in favor seems to have changed to parallel the theory of motivation espoused at the time. At the turn of the century, ideas about work were simple. People were told what to do, and if they did it, they were paid. If they did not, they were fired. The corresponding leadership style was crisp and hierarchical. There were those who gave orders and those who took orders and executed them without question. In the 1950s, management theory shifted toward a humanistic set of beliefs that held that there was a nicer way to get people to work. The favored leadership style changed accordingly. Finally, as university behavioral science departments developed and grew, the theories of motivation and leadership became the subjects of carefully controlled experiments. Surprisingly, none of the early intuitive presumptions could be borne out. The hard findings simply would not show that one style of leadership was better than another. It was hard to escape the conclusion that no optimal management style existed. My own observations bear this out. At Intel, we frequently rotate middle managers from one group to another in order to broaden their experience. These groups tend to be similar in background and in the type of work that they do although their output tends to vary greatly. Some managers in their groups demonstrate themselves to be higher producers. Others do not. The result of moving the managers about is often surprising. Neither the managers nor the groups maintain the characteristic of being either high-producing or low-producing as the managers are switched around. 
the inevitable conclusion is that high output is associated with particular combinations of certain managers and certain groups of workers. This also suggests that a given managerial approach is not equally effective under all conditions. Some researchers in this field argue that there is a fundamental variable that tells you what the best management style is in a particular situation. That variable is the task-relevant maturity, or TRM, of the subordinates. TRM, task-relevant maturity, is a combination of the degree of people's achievement orientation and readiness to take responsibility, as well as their education, training, and experience. It is entirely possible for a person or a group of people to have a TRM that is high in one job but low in another. Let me give you an example of what I mean. We recently moved an extremely productive sales manager from the field into the plant, where he was placed in charge of a factory unit. The size and scope of the two jobs were comparable, yet the performance of the seasoned manager deteriorated, and he started to show the signs of someone overwhelmed by his work. What happened was that while the personal maturity of the manager obviously did not change, his task-relevant maturity in the new job was extremely low, since its environment, content, and tasks were all new to him. In time, he learned to cope, and his performance began to approach the outstanding levels he had exhibited earlier. What happened here should have been totally predictable, yet we were surprised. We confused the manager's general competence and maturity with his task-relevant maturity. Similarly, a person's TRM can be very high given a certain level of complexity, uncertainty, and ambiguity. But if the pace of the job accelerates, or if the job itself abruptly changes, the TRM of that individual will drop. It's a bit like a person with many years' experience driving on small country roads being suddenly asked to drive on a crowded metropolitan freeway. His TRM driving his own car will drop precipitously. The conclusion is that varying management styles are needed as task-relevant maturity varies. Specifically, when the TRM is low, the most effective approach is one that offers very precise and detailed instructions, wherein the supervisor tells the subordinate what needs to be done, when, and how. In other words, a highly structured approach. As the TRM of the subordinate grows, the most effective style moves from the structured to one more given to communication, emotional support, and encouragement, in which the manager pays more attention to the subordinate as an individual than to the task at hand. As the TRM becomes even greater, the effective management style changes again. Here, the manager's involvement should be kept to a minimum and should primarily consist of making sure that the objectives toward which the subordinate is working are mutually agreed upon. But regardless of what the task-relevant maturity may be, the manager should always monitor a subordinate's work closely enough to avoid surprises. And a word of caution is in order. Do not make a value judgment and consider a structured management style less worthy than a communication-oriented one. What is nice or not nice should have no place in how you think or what you do. Remember, we are after what is most effective. The theory here parallels the development of the relationship between parent and child. As the child matures, the most effective parental style changes. 
Parents need to tell toddlers not to touch things that might break or might hurt them. Children can't understand that the vase they want to play with is an irreplaceable heirloom, but they can understand no. As they grow older, they begin to do things on their own initiative, something the parents want to encourage while still trying to keep them from injuring themselves. Parents might suggest, for example, that children give up their tricycles for two-wheelers. The parents will not simply send them out on their own, but will accompany them to keep the bicycles from tipping over while talking to them about safety on the streets. As the children's maturity continues to grow, the parents can cut back on specific instruction. Finally, when the life-relevant maturity of the children is high enough, they leave home and perhaps go away to college. At this point, the relationship between parents and children will change again, as the parents merely monitor the children's progress. Should the children's environment suddenly change to one where their life-relevant maturity is inadequate, for example, if they run into severe academic trouble, the parents may have to revert to a style used earlier. As parental or managerial supervision moves from structured to communicating to monitoring, the degree of structure governing the behavior of children or subordinates does not really change. Teenagers know it isn't safe to cross a busy interstate highway on their bicycles, and parents no longer have to tell them not to do that. Structure moves from being externally imposed to being internally given. If parents or supervisors imparted early on to children or subordinates the right way to do things, the correct operational values, Later, the children would be likely to make decisions the way the parents would. In fact, commonality of operational values, priorities, and preferences, how an organization works together, is a must if the progression in managerial style is to occur. Without that commonality, an organization can become easily confused and lose its sense of purpose. Accordingly, the responsibility for transmitting common values rests squarely with the supervisors. They are, after all, accountable for the output of the people who report to them. Then, too, without a shared set of values, supervisors cannot effectively delegate. An associate of mine who had always done an outstanding job hired a junior person to handle some old tasks while he himself took on some new ones. The subordinate did poor work. My associate's reaction was, he has to make his own mistakes. That's how he learns. The problem with this is that the subordinate's tuition is paid by his customers, and that is absolutely wrong. The responsibility for teaching subordinates must be assumed by the supervisors and not paid for by the customers of the organization. As supervisors, we should try to raise the task-relevant maturity of our subordinates as rapidly as possible for obvious pragmatic reasons. The appropriate management style for employees with high TRM takes less time than detailed, structured supervision requires. Moreover, once operational values are learned and TRM is high enough, supervisors can delegate tasks to the subordinates. This increases managerial leverage. Finally, at the highest levels of TRM, subordinates' training is presumably complete, and motivation is likely to come from within, from self-actualization, which is the most powerful source of energy and effort managers can harness. As we've learned, people's task-relevant maturity depends on a specific working environment. When that changes, so will their TRM, as will the supervisor's most effective management style. Also, a manager's ability to operate in a style based on communication and mutual understanding depends on there being enough time for it. 
Though monitoring is, on paper, managers' most productive approach, in the real world we have to work our way up to it. If things suddenly change, we have to revert quickly to the what-when-how style. That style is one that we don't think enlightened managers should use. As a result, we often don't take it up until it is too late and events overwhelm us. We managers must learn to fight such prejudices. We should regard any management style not as either good or bad, but rather as effective or not effective, given the TRM of our subordinates within a specific working environment. This is why researchers cannot find the single best way for managers to work. It changes day by day, and sometimes hour by hour. Deciding the TRM of your subordinates is not easy. Moreover, even if managers know what the TRM is, their personal preferences tend to override the logical choice of management style. For instance, even if managers see that their subordinates' task-relevant maturity is medium, which means that the subordinates need two-way communication and encouragement, the managers are still likely to choose either a highly structured or a minimal management style. In other words, they will either become fully immersed in the work of their subordinates, making their decisions, or leave them completely alone, not wanting to be bothered. Another problem here is our perceptions of ourselves. We tend to see ourselves as doing more communication and delegation than we really do. Certainly we see ourselves doing much more communicating and delegating than our subordinates think we do. I tested this conclusion by asking a group of managers to assess the management style of their supervisors, and then by asking those supervisors what they thought their style was. Some 90% of the supervisors saw their style as more communicating or delegating than their subordinates saw it. What accounts for the large discrepancy? Well, it's partly because managers think of themselves as perfect delegators. But also, sometimes managers throw out suggestions to subordinates who receive them as marching orders, furthering the difference in perceptions. A manager once told me that his supervisor definitely practiced an effective communicating style with him because they skied and drank together. He was wrong. There is a huge distinction between a social relationship and a communicating management style, which is a caring involvement in the work of the subordinate. Close relationships off the job may help to create an equivalent relationship on the job, but they should not be confused. This brings us to the age-old question of whether friendship between supervisors and subordinates is a good thing. Some managers unhesitatingly assert that they never permit social relationships to develop with people they work with. In fact, there are pluses and minuses here. If the subordinate is a personal friend, the supervisor can move into a communicating management style quite easily. But the what-when-how mode becomes harder to revert to when necessary. It's unpleasant to give orders to a friend. I've seen several instances where a supervisor had to make a subordinate friend tow a disciplinary line. In one case, a friendship was destroyed. In another, the supervisor's action worked out because the subordinate felt, thanks to the strength of the social relationship, that the supervisor was looking out for the subordinate's professional interests. You must decide for yourself what is professional and appropriate here. A test might be to imagine yourself delivering a tough performance review to your friend. Do you cringe at the thought? If so, don't make friends at work. If your stomach remains unaffected, you are likely to be someone whose personal relationships will strengthen work relationships. Thank you.
This completes Side 10 of High Output Management by Andrew S. Grove. Now that we've covered how to motivate the people in our organization and how to increase their output by choosing the management style that is appropriate for their level of experience, let's turn to the subject of how to give effective performance reviews. So please, replace this cassette with Side 11 and continue. Now that we've covered how to motivate people through understanding their needs and how to increase their output by choosing the management style that's appropriate for their level of experience, let's go over the things managers need to know about effective performance reviews. Why are performance reviews a part of the management system of most organizations? And why do we review the performance of our subordinates? I posed both questions to a group of middle managers and got these responses to assess the subordinates work, to improve performance, to motivate, to provide feedback to a subordinate, to justify raises, to reward performance, to provide discipline, to provide work direction, and to reinforce the company culture. Next, I asked the group to imagine themselves as supervisors giving reviews to subordinates and asked them what their feelings were. Some of the answers were, Pride, anger, anxiety, discomfort, guilt, empathy and concern, embarrassment, and frustration. Finally, I asked the same group to think back to some of the performance reviews they had received and asked what, if anything, was wrong with them. Their answers were, The review comments were too general. The review gave mixed messages because the rating and the amount of the raise were inconsistent with each other. There was no indication of how to improve. The supervisor avoided all negatives. The supervisor didn't know my work. Only my recent performance was considered. There were surprises. This should tell you that giving performance reviews is a very complicated and difficult business and that we managers don't do an especially good job at it. The fact is that giving such reviews is the single most important form of task-relevant feedback we can provide. It is how we assess our subordinates' level of performance and how we deliver that assessment to them individually. It is also how we allocate the rewards, promotions, dollars, stock options, or whatever we may use. Reviews will influence subordinates' performances positively or negatively for a long time, which makes these appraisals one of our highest leverage activities. In short, reviews are extremely powerful mechanisms, and it's little wonder that opinions and feelings about them are strong and diverse. But what is their fundamental purpose? Though all of the responses given to my questions about this are correct, 
there is one that is more important than any of the others. It is to improve subordinates' performance. Reviews are usually dedicated to two things. First, the skill level of the subordinates to determine what skills are missing and to find ways to remedy that. The second, to intensify subordinates' motivation in order to get them on a higher performance curve for the same skill level. The review process also represents the most formal type of institutionalized leadership. It is the only time we managers are mandated to act as judge and jury. We're required by the organization that employs us to make a judgment regarding fellow workers and then to deliver that judgment to them face to face. Supervisors' responsibilities here are obviously very significant. What preparation have we had to do the job properly? About the only thing I can think of is that, as subordinates, we've been on the receiving end. But in general, our society values avoiding confrontation. Even the word argument is frowned upon, something I learned many years ago when I first came to this country from Hungary. In Hungarian, the word argument is frequently used to describe a difference of opinion. When I began to learn English and used the word argument, I would be corrected as people would say, oh, no, you don't mean argument, you mean debate, or you mean discussion. Among friends and peers, you are not supposed to discuss politics, religion, or anything that might possibly produce a difference of opinion and a conflict. Football scores, gardening, and the weather are okay. We are taught that well-mannered people skirt potentially emotional issues. The point is, delivering a good performance review is really a unique act, given both our cultural background and our professional training. Don't think for a moment that performance reviews should be confined to large organizations. They should be part of managerial practice in organizations of any size and kind, from the insurance agent with two office assistants to administrators in education, government, and nonprofit organizations. Two aspects of the review, assessing performance and delivering the assessment, are equally difficult. Let's look at each in a little more detail, starting with assessing performance. Determining the performance of professional employees in a strictly objective manner is very difficult because there's obviously no cut-and-dried way to completely measure and characterize their work. Most jobs involve activities that are not reflected by output in the time period covered by the review. Yet we have to give such activities appropriate weight as we assess performance, even though we know we won't necessarily be objective, since only output can be measured with true objectivity. People who supervise professionals, therefore, walk a tightrope. They need to be objective, but must not be afraid of using their judgment, even though judgment is, by definition, subjective. To make assessment less difficult, supervisors should clarify in their own minds, in advance, what it is that they expect from subordinates, and then attempt to judge whether the subordinates perform to expectations. The biggest problem with most reviews is that we don't usually define what it is we want from our subordinates. And if we don't know what we want, we are surely not going to get it. Let's think back to our concept of the managerial black box. Using it, we can characterize performance by output measures and internal measures. Output measures include such things as completing designs, meeting sales quotas, or increasing the yield in the production process, things we can and should plot on charts. The internal measures take into account activities that go on inside the black box. Whatever is being done to create output for the period under review 
and also activities that set the stage for the output of future periods. Are we reaching our current production goals in such a way that two months from now we are likely to face a group of disgruntled production employees? Are we positioning and developing people in the organization in such a way that our business can handle its tasks in the future? Are we doing all of the things that add up to a well-run department? There is no strict formula by which we can compare the relative significance of output measures and internal measures. In a given situation, the proper weighting could be 50-50, 90-10, or 10-90, and could even shift from one month to the next. But at least we should know which two variables are being traded off against each other. Then there's another kind of trade-off to be considered. We have to weigh long-term oriented against short-term oriented performance. For example, engineers working on product designs need to complete these projects on a strict schedule to generate revenue. At the same time, they may also be working on design methods that will make it easier to design similar products in the future. These engineers obviously need to have both kinds of activities evaluated and reviewed. Which is more significant, the short-term design projects or the long-term methods projects? One way to help answer questions like this is to use the idea of present value as it is used in finance. To find present value, we ask, how much will the future-oriented activity pay back over time? And how much is that worth today? There is also a time factor to consider. Certain subordinates' outputs during the review period may have all, some, or nothing to do with their activities during the same period. Accordingly, the supervisors should look at the time offsets between the activities of the subordinates and the output that results from these activities. Let me explain what I mean, because this is one lesson I learned the hard way. The organization of one of the managers reporting to me had had a superb year. All output measures were excellent. Sales increased. Profit margins were good. The products worked. You could hardly even think of giving anything but a superior review to the person in charge. Yet I had some misgivings. Turnover in his group was higher than it should have been and his people were grumbling too much. There were other such straws in the wind, but who could give credence to elusive signs when tangible, measurable performance was so outstanding? So the manager got a very positive review. The next year, his organization took a nosedive. Sales growth disappeared, his profitability declined, product development was delayed, and the turmoil among his subordinates deepened. As I prepared the next review of this manager, I struggled to sort out what had happened and concluded that, in fact, the manager's performance was improving in the second year, even as things seemed to go down the drain. The problem was that his performance had not been good a year earlier. The output indicators merely represented work done years ago, which was still holding up. The time offset between the manager's work and the output of his organization was just about a year. Greatly embarrassed, I regretfully concluded that the superior rating I had given him was totally wrong. Trusting the internal measures, I should have had the judgment and courage to give the manager a much lower rating than I did, in spite of the excellent output indicators that did not reflect the year under review. The time offset between activity and output can also work the other way around. In the early years of Intel, I was called upon to review the performance of a subordinate who was setting up a production facility from scratch. It had not manufactured anything as yet, but of course the review could not wait for tangible output. Here, I gave my subordinate credit for doing well, 
even though output remained uncertain. As managers, we are really called upon to judge performance, not just to see and record it when it's in plain sight. Finally, as you review managers, should you be judging their performances or the performances of the groups under their supervision? You should be doing both. Ultimately, what you are after are the performances of the groups, but the managers are there to add value in some way. You need to determine what that is. You must ask, are they doing anything with their groups? Are they hiring new people? Are they training the people they have and doing other things that are likely to improve the output of their teams in the future? The most difficult issues in determining professionals' performances will be based on asking questions and making judgments of this sort. One big pitfall to be avoided is the potential trap. At all times, you should force yourself to assess performance, not potential. By potential, I mean form rather than substance. I was once asked to approve the performance review of a general manager whose supervisor rated him highly for the year. The manager was responsible for a business unit that lost money, missed its revenue forecast month after month, slipped engineering schedules, and in general showed poor output and internal measures over the year. Accordingly, I could not approve the review, whereupon his supervisor said, But he is an outstanding general manager. He is knowledgeable and handles himself well. It's his organization that did not do well, not the manager himself. This cut no ice with me because the performance rating of a manager cannot be higher than the one we would accord to his organization. It is very important to assess actual performance, not appearances. Real output, not good form. Had the manager been given a high rating, Intel would have signaled to all at the company that to do well you must act like a good manager, talk like one, and emulate one, but you don't need to perform like one. A decision to promote is often linked, as it should be, to the performance review. We must recognize that no action communicates managers' values to an organization more clearly and loudly than their choices of whom they promote. By elevating certain people, we are, in effect, creating role models for others in our organization. The old saying has it that when we promote our best salespeople and make them managers, we ruin good salespeople and get bad managers. But if we think about it, we see we have no choice but to promote the good salespeople. Should our worst salespeople get the job? When we promote our best, we are saying to our subordinates that performance is what counts. It is hard enough for us to assess our subordinates' performance, but we must also try to improve it. No matter how well our subordinates have done their jobs, we can always find ways to suggest improvement, something about which we managers need not feel embarrassed. Blessed with 20-20 hindsight, we can compare what our subordinates did against what they might have done, and the variants can tell all of us how to do things better in the future. Of course, assessing people's performances is only half of the challenge here for managers. The other half is delivering your assessments. There are three L's to keep in mind when delivering review. Level, listen, and leave yourself out. You must level with your subordinate. The credibility and integrity of the entire system depend upon your being totally frank. And don't be surprised to find that praising people in a straightforward fashion can be just as hard as criticizing them without embarrassment. The word listen has special meaning here. 
The aim of communication is to transmit thoughts from the brain of person A to the brain of person B. But perhaps B has become so emotional that he or she can't understand something that would be perfectly clear to anyone else. Perhaps B has become preoccupied trying to formulate answers and can't really listen and get A's message. Perhaps B has tuned out and, as a defense, is thinking of going fishing. All of these possibilities can and do occur, and all the more so when A's message is laden with conflict. How, then, can you be sure you are being truly heard? Is it enough to have your subordinates paraphrase your words? I don't think so. What you must do is employ all of your sensory capabilities. To make sure you're being heard, you should watch the people you are talking to. Remember, the more complex the issue, the more prone communication is to being lost. Do your subordinates give appropriate responses to what you are saying? Do they allow themselves to receive your message? If their responses, verbal and nonverbal, do not completely assure you that what you've said has gotten through, it is your responsibility to keep at it until you are satisfied that you have been heard and understood. Good classroom teachers work in the same way. They know when what they are saying is being understood by their students. If it isn't, they take heed and explain things again, or explain things in a different way. All of us have had professors who lectured by looking at the blackboard, mumbling to it, and carefully avoiding direct eye contact with the class. The reason? Knowing that their presentation was murky and incomprehensible, these teachers looked away from their audience to avoid confirming visually what they already knew. So don't imitate your worst professors while delivering performance reviews. Listen with all your might to make sure your subordinates are receiving your message, and don't stop delivering it until you are satisfied that they are. The third L is leave yourself out. It is very important for you to understand that performance reviews are about and for your subordinate. So your own insecurities, anxieties, guilt, or whatever should be kept out of it. At issue are the subordinate's problems, not yours. And it is your subordinate's day in court. Anyone called upon to assess the performance of another person is likely to have strong emotions before and during the review, just as actors have stage fright. You should work to control these emotions so that they don't affect your task. I've observed three types of performance reviews. I call the first type, on the one hand, on the other hand, most reviews probably fall into this category, containing both positive and negative assessments. Common problems here include superficiality, cliches, and laundry lists of unrelated observations. All of these will leave your subordinates bewildered and will hardly improve their future performance, which is the review's basic purpose. Let me suggest some ways to help you deliver this type of review. The key is to recognize that your subordinates, like most people, have only a finite capacity to deal with facts, issues, and suggestions. You may possess seven truths about a certain person's performance, but if that person's capacity is only four, at best you'll waste your breath on the other three. At worst, the person will get a case of sensory overload and will go away without getting anything out of the review. How can you target a few key areas? First, Consider as many aspects of each subordinate's performance as possible. You should scan materials such as progress reports, performance against quarterly objectives, and one-on-one -on -one meeting notes. As you consider each subordinate's performance, write everything down on paper. Do not edit in your head. Get everything down. 
knowing that doing so doesn't commit you to do anything. Things major, minor, and trivial can be included in no particular order. When you have run out of items, you can put all of your supporting documentation away. Now, from your worksheet, look for relationships between the various items listed. You will probably begin to notice that certain items are different manifestations of the same phenomenon, and that there may be some indications why a certain strength or weakness exists. When you find such relationships, you can start calling them messages for that subordinate. Now, again, from your worksheet, begin to draw conclusions and specific examples to support them. Once your list of messages has been compiled, ask yourself if each subordinate will be able to remember all of the messages you have chosen to deliver. If not, you must delete the less important ones. Remember what you couldn't include in this review, you can probably take up in the next one. And let's talk about surprises, too. If you have discharged your supervisory responsibilities adequately throughout the year, holding regular one-on-one -on -one meetings and providing guidance when needed, there should never be any surprises at a performance review, right? Wrong. When you are using the worksheet, sometimes you come up with a message that will startle you. So what do you do? You're faced with either delivering the message or not. But if the purpose of the review is to improve performance, you must deliver it. The second type of performance review is the blast. With a little soul-searching, you may come to realize that you have a major performance problem on your hands. You have a subordinate who, unless turned around, could get fired. The blast review is an exercise of resolving conflict about a big performance problem, and it covers the five stages commonly experienced in problem-solving of all kinds. A poor performer has a strong tendency to ignore the problem. This is the first stage of problem-solving, and here you, as the manager, need facts and examples to demonstrate that the problem is real. Progress of some sort is made when the subordinate actively denies the existence of a problem rather than passively ignoring it. This is the second stage, and evidence can overcome resistance here as well. Then you enter the third stage, when the subordinate admits there is a problem, but blames others for it. This is a standard defense mechanism. Using this defense, the subordinate can continue to avoid the responsibility of remedying the situation. These three stages or steps usually follow one another in fairly rapid succession. But things tend to get stuck at the third stage, the blame others stage. If your subordinate does have a problem, there's no way of resolving it until the biggest step is taken, the step of assuming responsibility. The subordinate has to say not only that there is a problem, but that the problem is his problem or her problem. This is faithful because it means work. If it is my problem, the subordinate thinks, I have to do something about it. If I have to do something, it is likely to be unpleasant and will definitely mean a lot of work on my part. Once responsibility has been assumed, the fifth step, finding the solution, is relatively easy. This is because the move from blaming others to assuming responsibility constitutes an emotional step, while the move from assuming responsibility to finding the solution is an intellectual one, and that's easier to accept. It is the reviewer's job to get the subordinate to move through all of the stages to that of assuming responsibility, though finding the solution should be a shared task. The supervisor should keep track of what stage things are in. If the supervisor wants to go on to find the solution, 
when the subordinate is still denying or blaming others, nothing can happen. Knowing where you are will help you both move through the stages together. In the end, there are three possible outcomes. One, the subordinate accepts your assessment and your recommended cure and makes a commitment to take it. Two, the subordinate may disagree completely with your assessment but still accept your cure. Three, the subordinate disagrees with your assessment and does not make a commitment to do what you've recommended. As the supervisor, which of these three should you consider acceptable resolutions to the problem? I feel very strongly that any outcome that includes a commitment to action is acceptable. Complex issues do not lend themselves easily to universal agreement. If your subordinate makes a commitment to change things, you have to assume it's sincere. The key word here is acceptable. It is certainly more desirable for you and your subordinate to agree about the problem and the solution, because that will make you feel the person will enthusiastically work toward remedying it. So up to a point, you should try to get your subordinate to agree with you. But if you can't, accept the commitment to change and go on. Don't confuse emotional comfort with operational need. There seems to be something not quite nice about expecting anyone to walk down a path that person would rather not be on. But on the job, we are after a person's performance, not our psychological comfort. I learned the distinction between the two during one of the first reviews I had to give. I was trying very hard to persuade my subordinate to see things my way. He simply would not go along with me, and he finally said to me, Andy, you will never convince me. But why do you insist on wanting to convince me? I've already said I will do what you say. I shut up, embarrassed, not knowing why. It took me a long time before I realized I was embarrassed because my insistence had a lot to do with making me feel better and little to do with the running of the business. If it becomes clear that you are not going to get your subordinate past the blame others stage, you will have to assume the formal role of the supervisor and out with position power and say, this is what I, as your boss, am instructing you to do. I understand that you do not see it my way. You may be right or I may be right, but I am not only empowered, I am required by the organization for which we both work to give you instructions. And this is what I want you to do. And then proceed to secure your subordinate's commitment to the course of action you want and thereafter monitor the person's performance against that commitment. Recently, one of my subordinates wrote a review that I considered superficial, lacking analysis, and debt. My subordinate, after some discussion, agreed with my assessment, but he considered the issue not important enough, as he put it, to spend time rewriting the review. After more spirited discussion, we remained deadlocked. Finally, I took a deep breath and said to him, Look, I understand that you don't consider it worth your time to do it, but I want you to do it. I added that I guess there is a basic difference between us. The integrity of the performance review system is just more important to me than it is to you. That is why I have to insist. He looked back at me and, after a moment, simply said, Okay. He thought I was out in left field and resented the fact that I made him spend time on something he thought was unimportant, but he committed himself to redo the review, and in fact he did it well. His employee ended up getting the reworked, much more thorough and thoughtful review, and the fact that the review was rewritten without the agreement of my subordinate made no difference to the employee. The third type of performance review is one I call reviewing the ACE.
After trying to establish the principles of performance appraisal with a group of about 20 middle managers, I asked them to take a review they had once received and to analyze it according to our new criteria. The results were not what I expected, but I did learn from them. This group consisted of achievers, and their ratings were mostly very high. The reviews were exceptionally well-written, much better than the average at Intel. However, for content, they tended to be retrospective assessments, analyses of what the subordinate had done in the course of the prior year. Even though their key purpose was to improve the subordinate's future performances, a majority of the reviews made little or no attempt to define what the subordinates needed to do to improve, or even to maintain their current levels of performance. It seems that, for achievers, the supervisor's efforts go into determining and justifying the judgment of superior performance, while giving little attention to how the achievers could do even better. But for poor performers, the supervisors tend to concentrate heavily on ways they can improve performance, providing detailed and elaborate corrective action programs to ensure that marginal employees can pull themselves up to meet minimum requirements. I think we have our priorities reversed. Shouldn't we spend more time trying to improve the performance of our stars? After all, these people account for a disproportionately large share of the work in any organization. Put another way, concentrating on the stars is a high-leverage activity. If they get better, the impact on group output is very great indeed. I'd like to round off my comments on performance reviews with a few other thoughts in answer to common questions about reviews. Is it a good idea to ask subordinates to prepare self-reviews before being reviewed by a supervisor? Let me answer the question this way. Your own review is obviously important to you, and you really want to know how your supervisor sees your year's work. If you prepare a review and give it to your supervisor, and that person simply changes the format, retypes it, gives you a superior rating, and then hands it back to you, how will you feel? Probably cheated. If you have to tell your supervisor about your accomplishments, he or she obviously doesn't pay much attention to what you are doing. Reviewing the performance of subordinates is a formal act of leadership. If supervisors permit themselves to be prompted in one way or another, their leadership and their capacity for it will begin to appear false. What about asking your subordinates to evaluate your performance as their supervisor? I think this might be a good idea, but you should make it clear to your subordinates that it's your job to assess their performance, while their assessments of you have only advisory status. The point is, they are not your leader. You are theirs. And under no circumstances should you pretend that you and your subordinates are equal during performance reviews. Should you deliver the written review before, during, or after the face-to-face -face discussion? I have tried it all three ways. Let's consider some of the pros and cons of each. What happens if you have the reviews first, and then give your subordinates what you've written later? Upon reading it, the subordinates may find phrases that they didn't hear earlier and blow up over them. What about delivering the written reviews during the discussion? One manager told me that he gives the subordinate a copy of the review and tells the person to read the first several paragraphs, which they then discuss. Grouping the paragraphs, supervisor and subordinate work their way through the appraisal. I can see a problem with this. How can supervisors ask subordinates to stop at paragraph 3 when they're so eager to read the rest of what they've got? Another manager told me that he reads the written review to his subordinate to try to control the session. But here, too, the subordinate is left eager to know what comes next and might not pay attention to what is really being said. 
Also, when your subordinates are given written reviews during the discussion, they won't have the time to think about what to say and are likely to walk away muttering, I should have said this in response, and I should have said that. For a good meeting of minds, your subordinates should have time to work out their reactions to what's in the review. In my experience, the best thing to do is to give your subordinates the written reviews sometime before the face-to-face -face discussions. They can read them privately and digest them. They can react or overreact and then look at the messages again. By the time you get together, they will be much more prepared, both emotionally and rationally. Preparing and delivering a performance assessment is one of the hardest tasks you'll have to perform as a manager. The best way to learn how to do one is to think critically about the reviews you yourself have received. People constantly need to be prodded into doing a good job of reviewing. Every year, I read something like a hundred evaluations, all of those written by my own subordinates and a random selection from throughout Intel. I comment on them and send them back for rewrites or with a complimentary note. I do this with as much noise and visibility as I can because I want to reiterate and reaffirm the significance the system has and should have for every Intel employee. Anything less would not be appropriate for the most important kind of task-relevant feedback we can give our subordinates. In addition to performance reviews, there are two other emotionally charged tasks managers must perform. These are interviewing potential employees and trying to talk valued employees out of quitting. First, let's examine the purpose of the hiring interview. It's to select a good performer, educate that person about who you and the company are, determine if a mutual match exists, and sell that person on the job. The means at your disposal typically consist of an hour or two of interview time and a check of the candidate's references. We know how hard it is to assess the actual past performance of our own subordinates, even though we spent much time working closely with them. Here, we sit people down and try to find out in an hour how well they are likely to perform in an entirely new environment. If performance appraisal is difficult, interviewing is just about impossible. But the fact is, we managers have no choice but to perform the interviews, no matter how hard that is. But we must realize that the risks of failure are high. The other tool we have for assessing potential performance is to research past performance by checking references. But you'll often be talking to a total stranger. So even if they comment freely about your candidate, what they say won't have much meaning to you without some knowledge of how their companies do business and what values they work by. Moreover, while few references will out and out lie, they tend not to volunteer specific critical remarks. So reference checking hardly exempts you from getting as much as you can out of an interview. When you are interviewing potential employees, the applicants should do 80% of the talking, and what they talk about should be your main concern. But you have a great deal of control here by being an active listener. Keep in mind you only have an hour or so to listen. Garrulous or nervous people might go on and on with an answer, and most of us will sit and listen until the end out of courtesy. Instead, you should interrupt, because if you don't, you are wasting your only asset, the interview time, in which you have to get as much information and insight as possible. So when things go off the track, get them back on quickly. Apologize if you like and say, I would like to change the subject to X, Y, or Z. 
These interviews are yours to control, and if you don't, you have only yourself to blame. Interviews produce the most insights when you steer the discussions toward subjects familiar to both you and the candidates. The people should talk about themselves, their experience, what they have done and why, what they would have done differently if they had to do it over, and so forth. But this should be done in terms familiar to you, so you can evaluate its significance. In short, make sure the words used mean the same thing to all concerned. What are the subjects that you should bring up during hiring interviews? A group of managers provided me with what they thought were the best questions. They were, Describe some projects that were highly regarded by your management, especially by the levels above your immediate supervisor. What are your weaknesses? How are you working to eliminate them? Convince me why my company should hire you. What are some of the problems you are encountering in your current position? How are you going about solving them? What could you have done to prevent them from cropping up? Why do you think you're ready for this new job? What do you consider your most significant achievements? Why were they important to you? What do you consider your most significant failures? What did you learn from them? Why do you think an engineer should be chosen for a marketing position? Vary this one according to the situation. What was the most important course or project you completed in your college career? Why was it so important? The information to be gained here tends to fall into four distinct categories. First, you're after an understanding of the candidate's technical knowledge, what they know about performing the jobs they want. For an accountant, technical skill means an understanding of accounting. For a tax lawyer, tax laws. For an actuary, statistics and the use of actuarial tables, and so on. Second, you're trying to assess how these people performed in an earlier job using their skills and technical knowledge. In short, not just what the candidates know, but also what they did with what they know. Third, if there are discrepancies between what they know and what they did, between their capabilities and their performances, you want to know the reason why. And finally, you are trying to get a feel for their operational values, those that would guide them on the job. Let's look at how the interview questions I just gave you fit into the four categories. You find out about candidate skills and technical knowledge when you ask them to describe some projects and to describe their weaknesses. You discover what they did with their knowledge when you ask them about their past achievements and failures. Asking them what they have learned from their failures and what problems they have in their current positions tells you if there are discrepancies between what they know and what they did. And you can get a good idea of their operational values when you ask them why they're ready to change jobs, why they think your company should hire them, why they think their skills are right for the particular job, and what they consider their most important college courses and projects. The ultimate purpose of interviewing is to make a judgment about how candidates would perform in your company's environment. And you can't get away from relying on a candidate's self-assessment. But that's not a bad way to get direct answers to direct questions. If, for example, you were to ask, how good are you technically? Interviewees might be taken back momentarily, but then say timidly, well, I think I'm pretty good at as you listen, you'll probably get a decent fix on how capable they really are. Don't worry about being blunt. Direct questions tend to bring direct answers, and when they don't, they produce other forms of insight into candidates. Asking a candidate to handle a hypothetical situation can also enlighten you. 
I once interviewed someone for the position of cost accountant at Intel. He had a Harvard MBA and came from the food service industry. He knew nothing about the semiconductor business, and I knew nothing about finance, so we really couldn't talk in much detail about his technical ability to do the job. I decided to take him through the semiconductor manufacturing process step by step. After saying I would answer any specific questions he had, I asked him what the finished cost of a wafer would be. He asked some questions and pondered matters for a while. He then started to think his way through the basic semiconductor cost accounting principles, discovering some of them as he went along, and ultimately came up with the correct answer. He was hired because this exercise demonstrated, as it turns out correctly, that his problem-solving capacity was first-rate. Here's another approach that you may want to use while interviewing. The candidates can tell you a great deal about their capabilities, skills, and values by asking you questions. Ask the candidates what they would like to know about you, the company, or the job. The questions they ask will tell you what they already know about the company, what they would like to know more about, and how well prepared they are for the interview. There's nothing foolproof about this, however. Once, a prospective manager came to my office with a copy of our annual report, which he had read very carefully and marked up with penetrating questions. In fact, I couldn't answer many of them. I was very impressed. We hired him, and he failed badly on the job. As I said, interviewing is a high-risk proposition. A final point about references. When you were talking to them, you're really after the same information that you tried to get directly from the candidate. If you know the references personally, you have a much better chance of getting real information. If you don't, try to keep them on the phone long enough to let some sort of personal bond develop. If you can uncover some common experience or association, the references will probably become more open with you. In my experience, the last ten minutes of a half-hour conversation are much more valuable than the first ten minutes, thanks to that bond. If possible, you should talk with applicants again after you have checked their references, because you may have gotten some new perspectives. Such follow-up interviews can be quite focused affairs. What about tricks? The best ones I've heard about come to me from somebody who had tried to get into the Navy's nuclear submarine program. Admiral Rickover apparently personally interviewed each candidate and employed techniques like having the candidate sit on a three-legged chair. When it tipped over, the poor man would be left sprawling on the floor. Rickover evidently thought the trick tested strength of character in the face of embarrassment. But I think the interviews should be completely straightforward. Remember, candidates are potential employees. They will go away from having talked to you with a strong set of first impressions. If those are wrong, and you hire these people, it will take a long time before those impressions change. So show yourself and your environment as they really are. Are there any guarantees of success? Several years ago, I interviewed a person for a high-level position at Intel. I did the work as carefully and thoroughly as I could. I had a very good feel, I thought, of the whys and wherefores of the person's skills, past performance, and values, and we hired him. From day one, he was a disaster. Much humbled, I've since gone over my notes from the interviews and the conversations with references. To this day, I haven't a clue about why I didn't spot the candidate's considerable flaws. So in the end, careful interviewing doesn't guarantee you anything. It merely increases your odds of getting lucky.
This concludes Side 11 of High Output Management by Andrew S. Grove. On the next side, we'll continue the discussion of interviewing potential new employees. Please fast forward this cassette to the end, then turn it over to hear Side 12. Welcome to Side 12 of Career Track's High Output Management by Andrew Grove. If there is one managerial task that is even more difficult than interviewing, it's talking people out of quitting. On this side, Andrew provides useful tips when you're faced with this situation. Here is Side 12. Having highly valued and esteemed subordinates decide to quit, is what I dread most as manager. I'm not talking about people whose motives are more money and better perks than another company, but about employees who are dedicated and loyal, yet feel their work is not appreciated. You and the company don't want to lose them, and their decisions to leave reflect on you. If they feel their efforts have gone unrecognized, you have failed as their manager. The opening shot usually occurs when you are on the run, on your way to what you consider an important meeting your subordinate timidly stops you and mutters, Do you have a minute? The subordinate then mutters further, I've decided to leave the company. Your initial reaction to this announcement is absolutely crucial. If you're human, you'll probably want to escape to your meeting, and you mumble something back about talking things over later. But in almost all such cases, employees are quitting because they feel they are not important to you. If you do not deal with the situation right at the first mention, You'll confirm their feelings, and the outcome is inevitable. Drop what you are doing. Sit them down and ask why they're quitting. Let them talk. Don't argue about anything with them. Believe me, they've rehearsed their speeches countless times during more than one sleepless night. After they've finished going through all their reasons for wanting to leave, they won't be good ones. Ask them more questions. Make them talk, because after the prepared points are delivered, the real issues may come out. Don't argue, don't lecture, and don't panic. You have to convey to them, by what you do, that they're important to you, and you have to find out what is really troubling them. Don't try to change their minds at this point, but buy time. After they've said all they have to say, ask for whatever time you feel is necessary to prepare yourself for the next round, but know that you must follow through on whatever you've committed yourself to do. What's your next move? Because you have a major problem, you go to your supervisor for help and advice. Your supervisor, no doubt, is also on the way to an important meeting, and, like you, will try to put things off. After all, it is your subordinate who has decided to quit. It is up to you to make it your supervisor's problem, and make your supervisor participate in the solution to your problem. Corporate citizenship will probably play a substantial role in what happens next. Your subordinates are valued employees of the company. You must vigorously pursue every avenue available to you to keep them with the firm, even if it means transferring them to another department. If it seems that is the likely solution, you must become the project manager of that solution until the whole thing is settled. You may ask why you should put yourself out to keep employees whom you are going to lose. There is a basic principle involved. You owe it to your employer to save an employee for the company. Beyond this, the golden rule can become more than a nice ideal in situations of this sort. 
Today, you save a valued contributor for the company by virtually giving him to a fellow manager. Tomorrow, it will be his turn to do you the same favor. In the long run, if all managers take this position, they will all win. Now, you may be ready to go back to the subordinates with a solution, one that addresses their real reasons for wanting to quit, and one that in turn will benefit the company. By now, they should know that they're important to you, but they might say that you should have offered them new positions long ago. They might go on to say that you're only doing it now because they forced you into it, the feeling being that if I stay, you'll think of me as the blackmailer forever. You now have to make them feel comfortable with the new arrangement. You might say something like, you did not blackmail us into doing anything we shouldn't have done anyway. When you almost quit, you shook us up and made us aware of the error of our ways. We are just doing what we should have done without any of this happening. Also, subordinates may say they've accepted jobs somewhere else and can't back out. You have to make them quit again. You say they've really made two commitments. First, to potential employers they know only vaguely, and second, to you, their present employer. And commitments they have made to the people they have been working with daily are far stronger than ones made to casual new acquaintances. As I said, the whole thing is not easy, either for the subordinates or the supervisors, but you must give it your best shot. Because the good of the company is involved, and the issue is even more important than keeping valued employees. When subordinates are valuable and important, they have attributes that make them so. Other employees respect them, and they identify with them. So other superior performers will track what happens to these people, and their morale and commitment to the company will hinge on the outcome. As I've pointed out, you can help each player on your team to reach peak performance by understanding each subordinate's needs, choosing the right management style, and using performance reviews effectively. Another way to leverage your management output and help people improve performance is to use compensation as task-relevant feedback. Remember Maslow's motivation hierarchy? Money has significance at all levels of this hierarchy of needs. A person uses money to buy food, housing, and insurance policies, which are part of everyone's physiological and safety security needs. But as one moves up the need hierarchy, money begins to mean something else, a measure of one's worth in a competitive environment. So if the absolute amount of a raise in salary is important, that person is probably motivated by physiological or safety security needs. If the relative amount of a raise what a person got compared to others is the important issue. That person is likely to be motivated by self-actualization because money here is a measure, not a necessity. At higher levels of compensation, an incremental amount of money gradually will have less and less material utility to the person who gets it. In my experience, middle managers are usually paid well enough that money does not have crucial material significance to them, but not well enough that it is without any material significance. Of course, one middle manager's needs can differ greatly from another's depending on individual circumstances, number of children, a working spouse or not, and so on. As a supervisor, you have to be very sensitive toward the various money needs of your subordinates and show empathy toward them. You must be especially careful not to project your own circumstances onto others. As managers, our concern is to get a high level of performance from our subordinates. So we want to dispense allocate and use money as a way to deliver task-relevant feedback. To do this, compensation should obviously be tied to performance, 
But because middle managers cannot be paid by the piece, their jobs can never be defined by simple output. And because their performances are woven into the performances of their teams, it is hard to design compensation schemes tied directly to individual performance. But compromises can be set up. We can base a portion of middle manager's compensation on performance. Let's call this portion a performance bonus. The percentage that the bonus represents of manager's total compensation should rise with the total compensation. Thus, for highly paid senior managers, for whom the absolute dollars make relatively little difference, the performance bonuses should be as high as 50%, while middle managers should receive more in the range of 10 to 25% of their total compensation this way. To design a good performance bonus scheme, we must deal with a variety of issues. We need to figure out if performance is linked to a team or if it is mostly related to individual work. If it is the former, the team, who makes up the team? Is it a project team, a division, or the entire corporation? We also need to figure out what period performance bonuses should cover, realizing again that cause and effect tend to be offset from each other, often by a long time. But bonuses need to be paid close enough to the time the work was done that subordinates can remember why they were awarded. Furthermore, we must think about whether the bonuses should be based strictly on countable items, financial performance, for example, on achieving measurable objectives, or on some subjective elements that might get us drawn into a beauty contest. Finally, of course, we don't want to devise something that pays out lavishly even as the company is going bankrupt. If you take all of this into account, you are likely to come up with some complex arrangements. For example, you might have a scheme in which managers' performance bonuses are based on three factors. The first would include individual performance only, as judged by their supervisors. The second would account for their immediate team's objective performance. The third factor would be linked to the overall financial performance of the corporation. When you take, let's say, 20% of manager's compensation and split it into three parts, any one part will have only a small impact on total compensation, yet attention will still be called to its significance. Now let's look at the administration of base salaries. In the abstract, there are two ways to do it. At one extreme, the dollar level is determined by experience only. At the other, by merit alone. In the experience only approach, employer salaries increase with the time they have spent in a particular position. A key point here is that any job has a maximum value. No matter how long an individual has been in it, the salary ultimately has to level off. In the merit-only approach, salary is independent of the time spent in the job. Here the theory says, I don't care if you're one year out of college or have spent 20 years in the workforce. I only care to see how you perform in this job. But here too, of course, a given job still has a maximum value. Social norms can force us into some unfortunate compensation practices. For instance, even though we say that every job has a finite value where compensation should level off, we often let an individual become too highly paid because we keep giving routine raises. Many organizations practice a pure experience-only form of salary administration. Apart from whether this is fair or not, the message from management here is that performance doesn't matter much. Consider teachers in many school systems. A good one gets paid the same salary as a bad one if they both have been around for the same length of time. How a teacher is evaluated is not usually tied even symbolically to compensation. At the same time, 
merit-only salary administration is impractical in its pure form. It is very hard to ignore a person's experience as you try to pay a fair salary. Thus, most companies choose a course between the two extremes, so that while people start at the same salary level, they move up at different speeds and arrive at different places, depending upon individual performance. Of the three schemes, the one based on experience only is obviously the easiest to administer. On the other hand, a supervisor trying to administer some type of merit-based or compromise scheme has to deal with the allocation of a finite resource, money, and this requires thought and effort. If we want to use such schemes, we have to come to terms with the principle, troubling to many managers, that any merit-based system requires a competitive, comparative evaluation of individuals. Merit-based compensation simply cannot work unless we understand that if someone is going to be first, somebody else has to be last. As Americans, we have no problem accepting a competitive ranking in a sports event. Even the person who comes in last in a race feels comfortable about the system that says someone has to finish last. But at work, unfortunately, competitive ranking frequently becomes a highly charged issue, difficult to accept and to administer. Yet it is a must if we want to use salary as a way to encourage performance. Promotions, defined as a substantial change in a person's job, are very important to the health of any organization and should be considered with great care. Obviously, for the individual concerned, promotions often produce a big raise. As we have seen, promotions are also readily seen by other members of the organization and so take on a vitally important role in communicating a value system to the rest of the company. Promotions must be based on performance, because that is the only way to keep the idea of performance highlighted, maintained, and perpetuated. If we are going to consider promotions, we have to consider the Peter Principle, which says that when someone is good at his job, he is promoted. He keeps getting promoted until he reaches his level of incompetence and then stays there. Like all good caricatures, this one captures at least some of what really happens in a merit-based promotion system. Typically, when people are starting out in their jobs, their performance is only average. In the jargon of performance assessment, they meet the requirements of their jobs. As time passes, they receive more training and become more motivated and improve, reaching an above-average level. At this point, they exceed the requirements of their jobs. We now consider them promotable, so we move them to a second job, where at first they will once again just meet the requirements. With more experience, however, they will again exceed the requirements. Eventually, they will get promoted again, and the cycle repeats itself. So, achievers will alternate between meeting requirements and exceeding requirements throughout their careers, until they eventually settle at a meets requirements level, at which time they will no longer be promoted. This, perhaps, is a better description of how the Peter Principle works. Now, is there an alternative to this? I say there is not. If we don't offer people more work and greater challenges, even though they exceed the requirements of their jobs, we are not fully utilizing the human resources of the company. In time, these people will atrophy, and their performance will return to a meets requirements level and stay there. In any company, you'll find two basic types of meets requirements performers. One type has no motivation to do more or faces no challenge to do more. They are the non-competitors who have become settled and satisfied in their jobs. 
The other type of meets requirements performers are the competitors. Each time they reach a level of exceeds requirements, they become candidates for promotion. These are the people Dr. Peter wrote about. But we really have no choice but to promote them until a level of incompetence is reached. At least this way, we drive our subordinates toward higher performance. And while they may perform at a meets requirements level half the time, they will do that at an increasingly more challenging and difficult job level. There are times when people are promoted into positions so much over their heads that they perform in below-average fashion for too long a time. The solution is to recycle them, to put them back into the jobs they did well before they were promoted. Unfortunately, this is a very difficult thing to do in our society. People tend to view it as a personal failure. In fact, management was at fault for misjudging the employee's readiness for more responsibility. Usually, the people who were promoted beyond their capabilities are forced to leave the company rather than encouraged to take a step back. This is often rationalized by the notion that it is better that we let them go for their own sake. I think it is dead wrong to force people in such circumstances out of the company. Instead, I think management ought to face up to its own error in judgment and take forthright and deliberate steps to place the people into jobs they can do. Management should also support the employees in the face of the embarrassment that they are likely to feel. If recycling is done openly, all will be pleasantly surprised how short-lived that embarrassment will be. And the result will be people doing work we know from past experience they can perform well. In my experience, such people, once they regain their confidence, will be excellent candidates for another promotion at a later time. And the second time, they are likely to succeed. We managers must be responsible and provide our subordinates with honest performance ratings and honest merit-based compensation. If we do, the eventual result will be performance valued for its own sake throughout our organization. As an important addition to the information you've just heard, we've included a list of 25 assignments to help you become a high-output manager. Here is our narrator, Bob Askey, to tell you how to get the most from these assignments. Now, because I know you've invested the price of this audio cassette program and several hours of your time to listen to me telling you how to become a high-output manager, I want to ask you to do one more thing to make that investment of yours really pay off. You're going to hear a set of assignments dealing with production, leverage, and performance. And for each assignment you complete, you'll get a number of points, either 10 or 20, depending on the difficulty of the assignment. If you listen to the list and complete at least 100 points worth of assignments, you'll be putting what you've heard into action. You'll increase your output and your subordinates' output, and you'll be a distinctly better manager. Now, here's that list of assignments. Assignments in production. One, identify the operations in your work that are most like the production steps of process, assembly, and test operations. Ten points. Two, take a project you are working on and identify the limiting step. Map out the flow of work around that limiting step. Ten points. Three, 
Define the things in your work that are equivalent to receiving inspections, in-process inspections, and final inspections. Decide whether these inspections should be monitoring steps or gate-like steps, where the flow stops if problems are discovered. Identify the conditions under which you can relax things and move to a variable inspection scheme. Ten points. Four. Identify half a dozen new indicators for your group's output. They should measure both the quantity and quality of the output. Ten points. Five. Install the indicators you identified in the fourth assignment as a routine in your work area and review them regularly in your staff meetings. Twenty points. Six. What is the most important strategy, plan of action, you are pursuing now? Describe the environmental demand that prompted it and your current status or momentum. Is your strategy likely to result in a satisfactory state of affairs for you or your organization if successfully implemented? Twenty points. Those are the assignments in production. Here are the assignments in leverage. One. Conduct work simplification on your most tedious, time-consuming task. Eliminate at least 30% of the total number of steps involved. Ten points. Two, define your output. What are the output elements of the organization you manage and the organizations you can influence? List them in order of importance. Ten points. Three, Analyze your information and knowledge-gathering system. Is it properly balanced among headlines, newspaper articles, and weekly news magazines? Or are there areas in which it is redundant? Ten points. Four. Take a tour of what your subordinates are doing. Afterwards, list the transactions you got involved in as you made the tour. Ten points. Five. Create a once-a-month excuse for a tour. Ten points. Six. Describe how you will monitor the next project you delegate to a subordinate. What will you look for? How? How frequently? Ten points. Seven. Generate an inventory of projects on which you can work at discretionary times. Ten points. Eight. Hold a scheduled one-on-one -on -one with each of your subordinates. Explain to them in advance what a one-on-one -on -one is about. Have them prepare for it. Twenty points. Nine. Look at your calendar for the last week. Classify your activities as low, medium, or high leverage. Generate a plan of action to do more of the high leverage category. What activities will you reduce? Ten points. 10. Forecast the demand on your time for the next week. What portion of your time is likely to be spent in meetings? Which of these are process-oriented meetings? Which are mission-oriented meetings? If the mission-oriented meetings take more than 25% of your total time, what should you do to reduce them? 10 points. 11. Define the three most important objectives for your organization for the next three months. Support them by identifying key results. Twenty points. Twelve. 
Have your subordinates define their three most important objectives for the next three months. Have them support them by identifying key results. 20 points. 13. Generate an inventory of pending decisions you are responsible for. Take three and structure the decision-making process for them using the six-question approach for each. Ask, what decision needs to be made? When does it have to be made? Who will decide? Who will need to be consulted prior to making the decision? Who will ratify or veto the decision? Who will need to be informed of the decision? 20 points. Those are your assignments in leverage. Now, here are your performance assignments. 1. Evaluate what motivates you most strongly in terms of the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Physiological needs, security and safety needs, social and affiliation needs, esteem and recognition needs, and self-actualization needs. Do the same for each of your subordinates. 10 points. 2. Give each of your subordinates a racetrack to perform on. Define a set of performance indicators for each subordinate. 20 points. 3. List the various forms of task-relevant feedback your subordinates receive. How well can they gauge their progress using all these forms? 10 points. 4. Classify the task-relevant maturity of each of your subordinates as low, medium, or high. Evaluate the management style that would be most appropriate for each. Compare what your own style is with what it should be. 10 points. 5. Evaluate the last performance review you received and also the last set of reviews you gave to your subordinates as a means of delivering task-relevant feedback. How well did the reviews do to improve performance? What was the nature of the communication process during each review? 20 points. 6. Redo one of these reviews as it should have been done. 10 points. This concludes CareerTrack's High Output Management by Dr. Andrew S. Grove. We hope this program has provided the kinds of powerful, practical information to help make you a better, more effective manager. As an added bonus, we'd like to take this opportunity to introduce you to another highly rated audio program from CareerTrack, Team Building with Mark Sanborn. In this presentation, Mark Sanborn shows you how teamwork leads to greater productivity and creativity, increased employee self-esteem, and ultimately to the success of your people, your company, and yourself. He also examines how to find the best team members, get them committed, and how to lead them to be their best. We hope you enjoy this special bonus excerpt from CareerTrack's Team Building with Mark Sanborn. One aspect of feedback that we need to cover is in the area of interpersonal conflict. Now, when we talk about conflict, it is not a matter of if, but only a matter of when. Put two or more people together for more than 10 minutes and you run the risk of interpersonal conflict. To deal with it, 
let's come up with some agreements as a team, not individually, but as a group. Let's discuss some basic approaches with team members about how to deal with conflict. One of the first things that I want to discuss about conflict is that, number one, conflict is like turbulence. If you're in an airplane, if you're flying or if you're a passenger, and there's turbulence up ahead, the pilot will do one of several things. They will go over the turbulence, they will go under it, they will go around it, or they will go through it. I'm a licensed pilot. I have traveled over one and a half million air miles, and never in my memory has the turbulence been so severe that we had to go back and land and wait for it to pass. You go over, under, around, or through. When a conflict arises in your team, treat it like turbulence. Refocus people's attention from the conflict onto the mission. The mission becomes the destination. The mission is the larger sense of purpose. And let people know that, hey, unless it is an earth-shattering conflict, we are not going to let it affect our progress towards the important goals and mission of the team. Number two, I would encourage team members to use a three-step approach to conflict. Before they tell anybody else about an interpersonal conflict that they're experiencing, I would encourage them to talk to the person they have the conflict with. I want to reward people for solving their own problems, not for becoming tattletales and not for dragging in unnecessary third parties. So before I as a team leader or I as another team member will deal with an interpersonal conflict between two other people, my first question is, have you told them about it? If two team members are unable to resolve their conflict, the next step, the next tier, is what I call mediation. Mediation is where the two parties involved in the conflict would meet before an objective third party who would recommend a solution. Now, the important thing about mediation is it's not binding. If I'm a mediator, I will suggest a solution to you, but it's up to you and that other person to implement it. This is a half step between solving it yourself and the third tier, which is arbitration. Arbitration is a binding solution that is imposed by someone else. In a work group, arbitration is only ever done by the boss. In a team, here's another radical idea, arbitration could be done by any other team member as long as both parties agreed, we will live by whatever solution you impose. Deal with the individual you have a conflict with. If that doesn't work, go to mediation. And as a last resort, go to arbitration. Now, I'm about to share with you the single most useful concept I've ever encountered for dealing with conflict. The concept is called diplomatic confrontation. Anytime you interact with a person in such a way that they do not feel trusted, respected, or valued, they will become defensive. So the first lesson we can learn about conflict is to not confront people. Have you ever noticed when there's a problem, we all say, well, I've got to confront them. How many of you woke up this morning, looked at your watch and said, hot dog, I'm going to have a confrontation about 9.30, another one at 1. If I really hurry, I can schedule a third confrontation before the end of the day. People don't do that. Have you ever been checking into a hotel where the person in line in front of you has had their reservation lost? They had a confirmed reservation, but for some reason, the person behind the desk can't find it or the person behind the desk says it just plain doesn't exist. Typically, what does that, that guest with a lost reservation do? They get mad. And who do they attack? The person behind the desk. Now, we call this stupid thinking. Because the only person in the hotel that can give you a key to the room is the person behind the desk. The message of diplomatic confrontation is don't attack the people who hold the keys to the solution. Attack the problem. Going back to something I mentioned in the area of feedback, if you can separate the person from the problem, you can be tough on the problem and soft on the person. And diplomatic confrontation is the same approach. 
When I am disciplined enough to do so, I will say to the person behind the front desk, I know you didn't lose the reservation. I am angry about the situation. I am a little bit upset, but I need your help. And when I attack the problem rather than the person, I have created an ally rather than an opponent. Now, I've got to tell you, it's a lot more fun to attack people. <laughs> but the question is, do you want a key to the room or do you want to get a solution to your problem? Do not confront people, confront problems. That's the essence of diplomatic confrontation. This completes our bonus excerpt from Career Track's team building with Mark Sanborn, and this completes our presentation. In addition to the information packed program you've just heard, Career Track offers a wide range of seminars and audio and video cassette tapes on a variety of topics in professional development, self improvement, and business training. To order your copy of Team Building or any Career Track product, simply pick up the phone and call toll free 1 800 334 1018. And here's a final note to remember our famous one-year unconditional guarantee. If you are not 100% completely satisfied with any career track product for any reason, you have up to one full year to return it for an exchange or a full refund. That's how sure we are that you'll find career track materials to be a wise investment. Thank you for listening to High Output Management by Dr. Andrew S. Grove. And thank you for making career track your success company. <laughs>